everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 363. I'm your host, Chris Zona, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span and Bix. This is week number two of three of our Patreon-requested series in July here. Of and all 2,000 shows, too. Yeah. Of all 2,000 shows, and uh, this one probably is going to be the biggest of them all. Yes. Because we have someone who was actually at the Noah Tokyo Dome show that we'll be talking about this week. Yeah, and on for the full show. As we are joined this week by someone who has been on the show as a guest a long time ago. And uh, he wanted to uh, talk about this. And he put the money down at patreon.com slash 20 sheets. $100. And he's going to be on the whole show. So we're glad to have him back. And also glad to have somebody back from uh, across the pond so to speak, as we are joined by a different of ours, Keith Harris. Keith, welcome back to the show. Uh, well, it's great to be back. Um, and uh, I'll just give a shout out to another of our friends, Alan Cunihan. So this is sort of like a follow-up show from a year ago when he uh, talked about the first Noah Dome show. So, you know, maybe some uh, listeners would like to listen to that first if they want to know what was happening a year ago in uh, Noah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, he did that show. So, uh, yeah, so that was the first Noah Dome show. And you were at the second Noah Dome show, which we'll get into that uh, coming up a little bit later. But, um, yeah, I mean, we always, whenever we have a patron, patron on the show, we always ask why they want to pick the week. And that's pretty obvious for you why you wanted to pick this week to talk about. So, uh, so yeah, so we'll, uh, we'll get more into that when we get into the Dome show discussion. But first off, let's open the show as we're discussing the week that was July the 12th through the 19th. We got an extra day. Because many moons ago, we did uh, July 5th to the 11th on show 103, which was covering Shinya Hashimoto's death. So um, we had that back then, So, which I think was a Patreon-requested show, too. I think it's one of the earliest Patreon-requested shows. So, um, so yeah, you can go back and listen to that, show 103 on the, uh, on the feed. Go find it. It's up. And listen to that to... Uh, you know, go along with this show and um, get kind of the gist of what was going on before this week happened. So anyway, let's go to the eight-day week, July 12th to the 19th, 2005. And we begin with World Wrestling Entertainment. And on that show that we did on Show 103, we talked about the infamous angle that they did with Muhammad Hassan when his uh, mass terrorist attacking The Undertaker on SmackDown. Well, here comes the heat. And I ain't talking about Sunday night heat either. It took five days, but WWE ended up with a considerable amount of mainstream media criticism for the Muhammad Hassan angle on July 7th SmackDown and tried to claim there was no way it could have altered the tape at such a late date. This doesn't address how it was able to do so for four markets, why there were two different versions of Velocity out, and why the night of the bombing they put the footage on their website. In a New York Post article, Kevin Dunn came off as terrible saying, uh, we're very proud of our product. We try to be sensitive with everything we portray, but there's got to be protagonists and antagonists on our TV shows. We just happen to reflect the politics of the world sometimes, especially with these Arab-American characters. We are firmly in the entertainment business. And Dunn said that the angle should have been taken tongue-in-cheek. Yes, it was portrayed on television like a usual comedic wrestling angle. 
We all feel bad about the time we had a segment that said company spokesman Gary Davis. People will see what happens this week as the storyline changes and it gets straightened out. Davis offered up the, it's not a cross, it's a symbol explanation for the segment. Saying the angle was not meant to appear to be a terrorist attack, but understood how some viewers could have seen it that way. Now let's go to the media attention here. Joanna Lowry of UPN said the network has the option to edit the show, but didn't think it was necessary. UPN released a statement saying, due to the tragic events in London, we took the added measure of running an advisory four times throughout the broadcast so that viewers could make the appropriate viewing decision for their households. We will continue to monitor the situation involving this character and storyline. It ended up being covered throughout mainstream media the rest of the day, including CNN and MSNBC. And this is on Raw. This is on the, well, this is, it's, it's during our week. I can't remember which day it was. But anyway, um, larger reports taken from the two stories. We got reports that have been brought up on radio talk shows around the country with a general theme that both UPN and WB should take equal blame and should apologize. On a national television basis, the biggest debating of the story came on the situation with Tucker Carlson on MSNBC. Carlson and ESPN radio host Matt Kellerman debated the issue. Carlson's role was to defend WWE, but his best argument was that pro wrestling has always had villains like Nazis and Russians, so modern villains should be radical Islamic extremists. Kellerman responded, I am very serious about this. Anything that trivializes terrorism. Listen, in the 50s, World War II had already been decided. The Nazis were no longer a threat. You know, Nikolai Volkov wrestled during the Gorbachev era of the Cold War, but Gorbachev was a guy who could reasonably talk to Ronald Reagan. This is not the same thing. These terrorists are the equivalent of using Nazis during World War II. They are people who should be hunted down and brought to justice and in most cases killed. They should not be trivialized by WWE or anything that turns them into caricatures. Carlson then conceded the subject immediately. Kellerman concluded saying, my objection is not from being a Muslim or along the lines of racial stereotyping because they were clearly shouldn't be terrorists, but I mean they simulated a beheading. Not only was this segment in very poor taste, but again, anything that makes a character out of this issue or trivializes it, this is a completely serious issue. There's no room for it to be trivialized. SmackDown was taped on July 12th, the day all the publicity broke. So there it is. It was on July 12th, first day of our week. WWE was planning on changing the Muhammad Hassan character in some form, likely dumping the terrorist and trying to have him explain his way out of the mess. But after all the pub, UPN told WWE they to show that they didn't want Hassan appearing on the show this week. Assigned an interview that appeared to be taped for Velocity with Davari, who's back alive. So apparently the angle of the previous week was an unexpected, unexplained bad dream. The terrorists are naturally gone, and the two of them, the Shane twins, worked the mask in a dark match, and the other three weren't booked for the show. And no decisions were made before UPN came down with this decision. Hassan claimed he was unfairly labeled a terrorist by Don Kaplan in the New York Post. And we have some man hates the New York Post because that's the newspaper that Phil Mustard writes for, which for which will make a story in of itself. But in actuality, he's a true American hero. During SmackDown, accepted in an angle where someone claimed to be the lawyer for Hassan, he said Hassan would be taking a leave of absence and would not return to the Grand American Bash pay-per-view on July 24th. Undertaker then chokeslammed and tombstone the lawyer. Now, the torch has this. Among the media entities covering the SmackDown terrorist thing or controversy the past week was Advertising Age. The article notes that Hassan's real name is Mark Capani and that he is an Italian-American. An excerpt, a spokesman for Wrestling Entertainment has acknowledged that airing a match featuring a supposed Arab-American wrestler named Muhammad Hassan on the day of the London subway and bus bombings was terrible. 
Gary Davis told advertising agents that WWE has received hundreds of complaints despite a warning crawl that it aired during the broadcast that some people might find the material offensive. In the match, Hassan and his cohorts were seen entering the ring and beating up a popular wrestler called The Undertaker. Davis said, however, Hassan is actually an angry, disillusioned Arab America embracing his roots after experiencing racism following the 9-11 attacks. The WWE terrorism storyline was the lead story on TVGuide.com on July 13th. The main headline accompanied by a picture of Muhammad Hassan stated, Breaking news! UPN comes under fire for terror-like smackdown stunt. Excerpt. Meanwhile, WWE spokesman Gary Davis is urging viewers to tune in this Thursday to see how the plot gets straightened out. If you don't, then the terrorists will have won! The WWE terrorism storyline also got a write-up in Media Life magazine, which stated WWE says it's an entertainment business and that plot shouldn't be taken seriously. Chicago Tribune also wrote a story on the controversy. And then comes the New York Times on July 18th, where they came down on WWE for the angle. And though the WWE received hundreds of letters complaining after airing the original angle, when the excuse given was the bombing in London, which happened on the morning of the show, was too late to edit the show, the Times was critical of UPN for not pulling the entire two-hour show. WWE stated it was able to edit the show in the UK because it didn't air there until Friday. But Dave, like Dave says, that's bullshit, because a new tape was sent to the UK with the edited version of the show within hours of the bombing. In fact, when Dave woke up that morning, he had emails and phone calls from people in England and others who had talked with WWE officials about editing the U.S. version and still was being considered. And the show for the U.K. had already been edited. And this is before Dave even turned on the news that morning. Really, the angle sucked no matter what day it would have aired. We did everything we could to advise people there might be a material that might be offensive to some, said W. Spokesman Gary Davis. The real problem is the perception of viewers watching that segment. Davis explained that Hassan's character is not a terrorist, but angry disillusioned Arab America complained about racism he, he had encountered in the U.S. since 9-11. Dave guess Hassan just happened to hire mask guys dressed up like exactly like the terrorists to copy the same exact actions of the beheading of Nick Berg. The article also quoted Layla Al-Khatami, communications director of the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, which had complained to WWE about the portrayal of the Arabs and the Islamic region with the character. She said she understood pro wrestling was entertainment, but objected to the overwhelming emphasis of, on his character and how characters is designed to teach racism towards Arab Americans. You in no way would feel for him. The way he gets so worked up, it seems to reinforce the idea that Arab Americans are somehow different from other Americans. Though he claimed his stereotypical images, that it is these stereotypical images that many people hold that we hope to debunk as part of Hassan's story. And real quick, regarding Hassan, there is heat on him personally. Most of the company were not unhappy in the least about the negative publicity. There are schools of thought on it. Dave guessed they thought all the pub made Hassan into a media star and would help ratings. Problem is, the heat in the publicity wasn't on Hassan. It was on WWE and UPN. The heat on Hassan is that he's balked at some of their ideas to put major heat on him, whether it be fear for his own safety or just being uncomfortable with them. The talk has been he has never done anything in wrestling and therefore shouldn't be saying no to any ideas. We got a lot here. Keith, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Oh, this starts it. I mean, well, this is based in London. You know, this whole thing here is of what happens. Well, actually, real the quick, the I just realized there's something we need to mention, though, because most people aren't going to be familiar with this, and it's not mentioned in our week, and it's important for what we're about to discuss. I believe the reasoning gave in the initial reporting from the week it aired was that people in WWE told Dave that the reason they didn't air it edited in the States was that they didn't expect American viewers to care about world events. That's one thing. 
Yeah, I think we brought that up on that on that show we did years ago. Right. But 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 here it but here it is, uh, Keith. This is you know kind of based off of what happened in London at that at that time with the bombings and everything and the Berg beheading. I mean, what what are your memories of what it was like being around when all that was going on? Um, well, maybe I've filtered it out of my brain a bit, but yeah, it was a, it was a major story like any terrorist incident was, you know, and, you know, you know, like a lot of these events, it's very chaotic on the day because people don't know the details of what happened. People are very worried that there could be perhaps copycat incidents you know so yeah it's a it was a very probably frightening time for the public and then and then we had the situation here where they have edited the show for the uk sent it out basically before smackdown aired in the united states an edited version chris it's worse than that i think i think they edited it out of Every international airing, if I remember right. Yes, you're right. Every international airing, but yet when not edited off the U.S. airing. Amazing. Amazing stuff. I mean, mean, it's possible that it might have been edited anyway because of the violence in the angle, you know, because of the specifically the part where you know, The Undertaker was choked out in, like, a grot-style fashion, you know, with a metal wire, metal bar. Uh, It's possible that in some areas they would have had to have uh, edited it out because of the violence, you know. And one thing I was thinking is maybe this angle is one of the reasons why, you know, there was the whole controversy with Daniel Bryan choking out uh, Justin Roberts with a tie six years later. You know, uh, so that's just something I was thinking about uh, when I was uh, sort of going through the notes. Wasn't that a Benoit thing, though? Yeah, there's that too. Benoit <laughs> thing to one degree and uh, a Mattel thing to the other, and neither of those were yeah. in play at this point. Yeah, there, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot more different things going on in the climate uh, when that happened. But all right, so Bix. All right, so how about the fact that they were expecting all the heat to be on Hassan and not them? <laughs> how do I put this? It's is this the first time they really get heat on the company by mistake, though? I think it kind of feels like it is, right? Um, from an angle, yeah, yeah, I think so. So you can sort of see that. I mean, it's dumb, but you can sort of see it. Uh, so, so, I mean, this is very similar to the Iraq War angle in 1991 that they got a lot of heat for at the no, time. No, but they didn't. They didn't cosplay actual beheading videos or anything like that before this. Yeah, well, that, I mean, there, there, there's the, the big difference in that way. I mean, basically what they got heat for on that, Keith, was exploiting the war. Yeah. This is a, this is, 
it's it's just, it's a different different uh, you know set of set, uh, set of circumstances here. Is that you know they're not exploiting a war, they're you know doing terrorism cosplay. Well, I mean, I I remember all the rhetoric about the war on terrorism which I don't know, was definitely a thing in the UK. I'm not oh, sure. Oh, yeah. 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 So, you know, um, you know, and, and you know, you know um, we, we were still, you know, involved in Afghanistan at the time. So, you know, so it, you know, it isn't quite the same, but I think, you know, there's a lot of repeating the same mistakes, the, the 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 big the big similarity is is that it was co- contemporaneous to what was going on in the real world, which is like you know Max Kellerman was saying you know in the in the Tarkovsky debate when they did the Nazi ripoff gimmicks and the you know the evil Japanese get that's after the war you know after the war's over with you know you had the we had the Russian gimmicks in the eighties but that was that was different because. It was the Cold War, and the, uh, it was it was just a different situation. So, because nobody had done anything to nobody, you know, it, it, between the United States and Russia, direct, there wasn't anything that was going. There was always the threat, but there wasn't anything that was going on. And here, and here in this case, and then you know, in the Iraq case, we're in active situations. So that, that that's kind of the big difference here in that regard, I, I would say, between this and anything else that we've had before this. So this was, you know, something completely new, starting with the Iraqi angle and coming in here with this. Yeah, but, we, uh, we need to consider yeah. that this may very well have been a very controversial angle, excuse me, even if the 7-7 bombing didn't happen. Oh, yes, it definitely is. It's controversial no matter what. It's like Dave said, it's what sucked anyway. Yeah. I think it, in some sense, it could have saved the WWE from themselves in the sense, and I think this ties back to Mohammed Hassan refusing to do certain things that maybe they had even more offensive ideas or if the angle kept going, you know, you know it would be, be even more more toxic to the company. So and good, and, and you know what? And good for him. I mean, because he's a guy. It's like I said here. You know, he's a guy who had, you know, had, is very young to the business. A guy who's, you know, d- doesn't have the power to say no, basically. But he does anyway. It cost and it cost him his career in a way because of this. He took a stand. He paid for it. And I mean, it, he was out of the business not too long after this because of this. I mean, so he he stood up for himself in that way. If if he would have just went along with the punches, I mean, who knows how long this thing goes, and, and how much worse it might would have gotten, you know? So because it seems like here you listen to, I mean, that the rationale is you know it's like Gary Davis, boy Gary Davis is very Steve Flanamina. And this one, Bix, and all the stuff he says, yeah. I guess you need to t- tune in and see what happens, you know, and stuff like that. It's like that they're being very tongue-in-cheek on their end regarding the whole thing anyway, because they they want they want this publicity. And, I, and, and as the old saying, any publicity is good publicity. 
But they want this publicity because people are going to watch. And, you know, we've seen that in 2022, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. Um, with Vince. Honestly, Doug so, comes off even worse, though, with the tongue-in-cheek comment. Yeah. I think oh, yeah, also... Oh, yeah. That's uh, Kevin Dunn. Yeah. I think also, though, it's really ridiculous to blame the viewer for coming to the conclusions they did because they clearly wanted it to come across as a simulated, like, terrorist heading. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, can't you come up with something, you know, better than that? You know, is like, you know, I mean... Yeah, you're just treating the media for fools there, I think. And, well, when you got yeah. when you got people when you got people that is in power that does not really like foreigners, basically in their mind. I mean, that that has a that phobia about foreigners, then yeah, that's gonna be a problem too. Go ahead. Well, oh, sorry, no, sorry, you, sorry. Well, I think this is even worse than, say, the Iraqi angle for the reason was that it isn't targeting foreigners. It's targeting Americans that are of Arabian descent. And sort of the, you know, I think that, you know, the character was nuanced in the beginning, but then there was this tonal shift. You know, and it turns out he's a terrorist. And what that means is, is that, you know, because there's no other Arabian American characters on WWE TV, you're you're sort of sending the message that you should suspect all, you know, Arabian Americans of secretly being, you know, uh, you know, terrorist sympathizers. So, yeah, they're playing on the fear. They're pl- trying to play on the fears of their fans. Yeah, but but that that their fans aren't you know that some of their fans will be um, of um, Arabian descent. I mean, this this strikes home to me personally because my best friend at high school was Iranian, and he moved to America. And I've had conversations with him about how, you know, after September 11, you know, things got much tougher for him in America, you know, in terms of, you know, things like uh, security at American airports and, you know, just how people treated him. So, you know, you shouldn't be feeding into those fears when, you know, it affects people in your domestic market. Yeah, but they're they're looking at that though as I mean, his heat. That that's how they they're seeing as heat and they think that's gonna make money. That's that's the difference. They see it as a way to uh to draw on the fears and make thinking that the fans can that the fans will want to pay to see this guy get his from the American heroes. Like the Undertaker. Yeah, the American I mean, badass. One thing that just hit me too, um, I, w- I won't get too graphic or anything, but I feel like it's still a point that should be raised. <sighs> they're not just playing off this actual terrorist murder. They're playing off of the guy basically being tortured to death on video. 
Yes, that's the thing. This is a, a video deal. And that, and I mean, and I use that wording because then I won't go beyond this. I gotta think that piano wire is not the quickest way to do that. Oh no, no that so, no that yeah. that yeah that that that's a purposeful thing to make yes, the person exactly. suffer even more. Absolutely. Yeah, so the yes. fact that you have these guys dressed up like this with the masks and using the piano wire to garrot taker, it ugh, just bad. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, all right. So there's that. The draft lottery, as we shift, was supposed to be a big facelift to Doty's television show, but the past week has been one of the most amazing rapid-fire changes of all. Between the mass firings, which took place before our week, and the exchange of new stars, as well as the return of Matt Hardy and the departure of Triple H, there have been numerous changes in the plans for SummerSlam. The original idea for the company's traditional number three show of the year, which takes place on August 21st at the MCI Center in Washington, D.C., was to build around Hulk Hogan and Shawn Michaels in a dream match. Title matches of John Cena versus Edge, and most likely Batista versus Muhammad Hassan, as well as Ric Flair versus Triple H. Things have changed noticeably from those plans, especially regarding Batista and Hassan. Nobody's ever told Dave that one. This step based on SmackDown when a great American Bash had Batista versus JBL as a title match, and another versus Hassan for the title shot led Dave to believe that most likely had been uh, Hassan. But based on what happened on July 12th, who knows if that will change. Now, regarding Hassan, UPN would not allow Hassan to appear on the July 14th SmackDown on WWE last minute due to all the media heat of the previous week's show. WWE then, on the show, did an angle where it was announced Hassan would not be appearing on television again until after he beat the Undertaker at Grim American Bash. Given WWE's track record of lashing back at negative publicity by increasing pushes, thinking as fighting back against the people who in reality could care less, it shouldn't shock anyone to see them think they could make Hassan a major player out of this. Dave just remembers what all that mainstream press did for the careers of Billy and Chuck. There's an argument that Batista chasing JBL for the belt is stronger than the other way around. But when the impending arrival of Brock Lesnar, the big direction that should be protected is Batista remaining as a champion, Lesnar coming in and running through people until they set the match. Batista versus The Undertaker is a bad idea because it might, may not be a good match, and the crowd reactions will be harder to control. I mean, yeah, it, seem, it seems to me that that was their plan was to you know, push us on and possibly give him the championship. Mm -hmm. But him standing up for himself, you know, pretty much put the kibosh on all that. Well, I think it was more UPN not wanting to use him. Yeah, he gets held off at the next pay-per-view. There's that, but, I mean, still, he's he's not wanting to go do things that they want to do it, you know? He's not wanting to go as far as they're wanting to go. Yeah. Well, well, it's probably the combination of the two, but you know, if UPN doesn't want the character on their TV show anymore, then he would have had to have moved to Raw if you could want to move back to Raw if you wanted to continue the angle. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting situation. Well, what could have been? That's for sure. And all this. All right, so SmackDown was taped on July the twelfth. And uh, we have Axel Rotten and Balls Mahoney beating the Shane Twins. They're not dark match. The crowd chanting ECW strongly, but this is a bad match. Frankie Kazarian debuted on Velocity using the Frankie the Future gimmick and got Mike time after the match to say, the future looks good. Uh, Nova was already back as Simon Dean 
and pin Mike Cruel. He was back to his old gimmick, and he shoved the protein bar down Cruel's throat after the match. Things don't look good for the Blue World Order. And then Hassan and Davari did their velocity promo. SmackDown. And this is, let's go to Brian Alvarez. I, I did want to mention real quick, just how many people even remember that Frankie Kazarian was ever even on the roster? <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, it wasn't very long. Wasn't, wasn't there a story, you know, that he refused to get his hair cut or something? And then he got oh. fired, and then he cut his hair. Something yeah, like that. because like that. That, that's the only reason I remember that he had his uh, WWE stint is the reasons for his firing, because he never appeared on any of the major shows, I don't think. Right, I remembered that, but I didn't remember him being on TV or anything. Yeah, that was like the big thing about Kazarian. Then you know, look at now he's got short hair. But hey, that happens. All right, um, so SmackDown show up and with uh, Eddie coming down to the ring, looking like he hadn't showered or shaved in a number of days. A man after Alvarez's own heart. Eddie said he heard Ray wasn't going to be there that evening, and this disappointed him greatly. A fan held up a sign that read, "Eddie, stop blackmailing Ray." Shockingly, Eddie did not take this sign into consideration. He said he was sad because he had big plans to humiliate Ray over and over again, and there was nothing Ray could do about it because if he tried, Eddie would reveal the secret. But he said whether Ray was there or not, he was going to humiliate him. Brian says, I know. He said, we'll just tell that little secret right now. He said he knew Ray and Dominic were watching, so they should scoot up close to the TV and listen well. Uncle Eddie, he said, was going to tell him the bedtime story he meant to tell him a long time ago. Uh, quick question. If you were Ray and what happened last week happened to you, would you stay home the next week with your son Dominic and watch a show on TV? And if he did, and Eddie started doing what he's doing right now, would you not change the channel? Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was a little boy named Dominic. And as Dominic ran into the woods to play with his uncle Eddie, they suddenly stopped because coming down the aisle was Vicky, his wife, with their children. They all looked profoundly uncomfortable. Vicky pleaded with him not to do this. He screamed at her to go to the back. So she grabbed the mic and said she couldn't. She didn't come out here to, to be angry with him. She came out to calm him down. She said she had to do this because it was getting out of hand. Whatever the secret was, he needed to keep it to himself. This could hurt a lot of people. This could hurt me. This could hurt our kids. This could hurt you. It just hurt Ray's family. Ray's a good man. So Eddie grabbed her and dragged her backstage, and that was the end. We're off to a killer start, Brian said. This is Vicky's first promo, isn't it, Bix? I think so, yeah. I mean, she might have been on TV once or twice, because I think she would have been there with for the angle with the JBL in El Paso the year before with Eddie's mom. But otherwise, yeah, I think this is her first promo. Yeah. And uh, after the commercial, Eddie and Vicky were continuing their argument backstage. Well, to their credit, the Guerreros were slightly better than most families who get cameos on these shows. Suddenly up walked Bob Holly, Peacemaker. Eddie was so irate, he shoved him. This was a foolish idea. Bob jumped up and shoved him hard into the car. Eddie turned into his wife and said, just get in the car and leave before I get hurt, he screamed. <laughs> okay, that was awesome. This is a sorry state of affairs, Cole said. Truer words have never come out of that man's mouth. Oh my God, Keith! What'd you think of the uh, this whole Eddie Ray Dominic storyline here? I I really liked it. I mean, I, I rewatched this, and I think really Eddie 
was perhaps at the height of his powers as a character with this angle. So I thought this was a tremendous segment. And I think what what was particularly impressive was like how Eddie sort of flipped his behavior when Vicky came out. So he's all, you know, before she came out, he's all being creepy and, you know, maniacal. Yeah, and then when she comes out, he he's being more the duplicitous but caring, loving husband. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And also, I think you know Vicky Guerrero and you know uh, the the two uh, daughters, they they were really good considering that they were amateurs like i think vicky guerrero was sort of a natural and she was very believable being you know i guess the trying to be eddie's conscience in this whole situation um and i i really loved also the blow off you know the summer slam ladder match which i thought was one of wwe's better character driven matches of that period yeah, where the storylines all come together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a very memorable angle in a lot of ways. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you got to see that, uh, you know, Vicky, I mean, she could talk. And, good Lord, you know, she she would definitely use this to her advantage later on. And, um, yeah, it's a very memorable angle to this day, and especially with Dominic now being a wrestler. And, you know, and then and you got Ray and Dominic doing 80 tribute spots in their matches. So it's wild how things have changed. Tribute to his real dad, as we would learn later in the (laughs) storyline. Yes. All right. So we follow that with Scotty Tuhani, Paul London, and Funaki. What a team that is. Against the Mexicals. Mexi sold a lot early before cutting off Scotty and working him over. At this point, the Rudo beatdown began. Viva! Brian determined during this match that as much as he hates the idea of people losing their jobs, they need to fire more white people and hire more Mexicans. <laughs> London got the hot tag and made the stiffest comeback ever. Brian thought crazy, particularly was wondering what the hell he got himself into. Paul almost killed himself with the drop salt. Then almost killed Hoovy with a belly to belly. Luckily, both tragedies were averted. Crazy ended up hitting London with a moonsault, then Hoovy with a 450. Landed shin first right on London's face. This looked bad. Bad news. And a couple of th- trainers hit the ring to make sure London was still among the living. He was, but he may need a new orbital bone. First match, Hoovy already fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it was Hoovy's first match of the- on TV. <laughs> well, that was taken. Good lord. But, uh,. Yeah, on the Mexicals. Christian had a meeting with Candice Michelle's breast. <laughs> he was ranting and raving about how great he was when Booker T walked up. He said all Christian ever did was trash talk and couldn't back it up. They got into an argument and led to a match being signed. Josh interviewed Big Dave about his match with JBL. Dave said JBL was nothing but a punk and a loud mouth. You know what to do with one of those. You beat him up. I guarantee the only thing Bradshaw was leaving with pay was an attitude adjustment. That's interesting words considering John Cena's uh, future uh, finishing maneuver name. Melina and Tori had a bitchy meeting backstage and up agreeing to do a bra and panties match at the pay-per-view. 
Melina said nobody would ever see her in her bra and panties because she was going to win and rip every single piece of clothing off of Tori. Brian said this segment made him hate both of these women. The next thing he knew, Eminem was attacking Heinrich again from the show a few weeks ago. Melina, fresh off her compelling confrontation with Tori, hit the ring to bury him after he'd been thrown into a post, screaming, You have no friends! So, of course, his newest friend came out. And his friend was, of all people, Road Warrior Animal. Well, the Road Warrior DVD just came out. Animal looks distressingly like Jim Neidhart from the neck down these days, but what he did in the ring was fine. Crad shouted LOD. Animal cut a classic old school promo about having been traveling over the country signing Road Warrior DVDs, and all you heard was that there was a, this new great tag team called Eminem. You guys nothing but punks, he screamed. Johnny Nitro was appalled. Joey Mercury said if Animal wanted to relive his glory, fine. The preview would be the Eminem. It would be Eminem defending the tag titles against the Road Warriors. You can't do that, Joe, Nitro added, because your partner's dead. <laughs> yes, they didn't laugh for that. Well, this has been quite the week for Vincent Mann. Heinrich said he might not be Hall, but he was willing to team of Animal to take the match. And so it was official. This was intriguing. <laughs> your partner's dead. <laughs> <laughs> also, I had forgotten that the uh, Heidenreich Molina thing we covered on the last 2005 show was what led to this. Yeah. Your partner's dead. <laughs> My I think, goodness. I think gracious. they delivered the line well. Can, can yeah, they... Oh, yeah, they did. You can say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't have scripted it myself. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure I'm sure they ran it past uh, Joe. I'm sure they ran it past Animal, and he said that's fine. But we're in a different, you know, this is a different time. Well, that, might, th- that might not work today. <laughs> one thing I meant, want to mention, having watched this, uh, going back a little bit. Well, Chris, Chris, like, what have uh, we been seeing on Dynamite the last two weeks? I'm missing what Jungle Boy, Christian. Oh, yeah, etc. Yeah, but th- it's yeah. I guess it's similar but different. All right, go ahead, Keith. So, going back to one of the earlier segments about uh, so um, so it was Melina and Tori their bitchy meeting. So <laughs> Melina was uh, calling essentially Tori a has been and washed up. Now, how how old do you think Tori Wilson was? Uh, you know, in 2005 when uh, Melina was calling her sort of old and haggard. Ooh, I know okay. she's in her 40s now. Well, she was uh, in her early to mid-20s in WCW. This is 05, so let's say six years. I'm going to say she is at most 30, probably more likely 28 or 29. She's probably, I'm, I'm with this, I think she's probably around 30. I think she was 30 because I looked this up because, you know, I think it shows how much the standards are different uh, for women. She, t- she, turned thir- she turned 30 on July 24th, so we're almost there. Yeah. Yeah. So it shows how, 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 how much the standards then were for women that you could be, uh, you know, derided for being old and washed up at the age of 30. Well... <laughs> and some people's uh, minds at that time, that's what it was. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Even then? Absolutely. 
It's time to bring the, the new blood. You know, you didn't you didn't hit your wall. So, and, and but but, you, but when you have people that are in, in power, that their main source of you know thinking about women is pornography, then more often than not, I mean, they're going to go with that eighteen to twenty nine or whatever because. Back in you know back then, if you hit over thirty, more often than not, you know you're kind of you know starting to get into a different genre of porn <laughs> than you were in. You're getting to that milk porn now. You're your mother. So, <laughs> well, they weren't they weren't doing anything with Tory Wilson at the time, you know. And I think probably they they never made full use of her talents. I think she was a more interesting character in WCW. Oh, well, yeah, I think we talked about that before. She was way more interested in WCW, but, I mean, she became a star in WWE, so there is that. All right, Bob Holly gets Eddie. Bob just killed him with chops. Eddie returned fire, and it was a full-fledged chop war erupting. These guys are beating the living piss out of each other, trying to have a great match, but for whatever reason, nobody in the crowd cared. Brian should know that it was mostly Bob beating the living piss out of Eddie. It was a terrifying spot. Eddie was on the apron, and Bob was trying to pull him off to the floor. Eddie was grabbing the ropes in desperation. Ref was trying to get them both inside. Eddie and his struggle poked the ref in the eyes. Bob finally won the tug of war, and Brian screamed, fearing that Bob was going to German suplex him off the apron through the announce table. Instead, Bob just stumbled back and nailed his lower back on the corner of the announce table. He hit it hard. In addition to that, Eddie's full weight was added to it. Brian presumed Bob did not clear this spot with Ricky Steamboat. The ref was still blinded, so Eddie went under the ring and grabbed the pipe, clomped Bob in the knee with it. Bob sold like a king, clearly saw the cuts, and decided to put 500% into this match. Eddie then put him in the lasso for the submission. Afterwards, Eddie grabbed the mic and continued his promo from top of the show. A fan screamed something, and he responded, I'm making an apology to my wife. Shut the hell up. <laughs> Then he unleashed a string of profanities, one long bleep after another. Well, he said he was going to prove how much he loved her by making an effort in amends. He said maybe she was right about the Ray thing. Therefore, he was going to give him the opportunity to prove her right at the bash. If Ray beats me at the Great American Bash, I'll do exactly what you said, baby. I'll keep that secret inside locked away and throw away the key. That was no way, that way was no one gets hurt. But if I win and truth and justice prevail, then I get to finish my little bedtime story to Dominic. A man. Okay. So Eddie is so great in this whole angle. Just every way. Like we were talking about. That's fantastic. And I think also, um, you know, I think looking at the Eddie Bob Holly match, I think it it was remarkable that he was putting on these quality TV matches you know, entertaining TV matches whilst his body was breaking down. You know, so I think in, in some sense, I think of Eddie Guerrero a bit like Beethoven, you know, the 2004 to five period in, in the sense that, you know, he was still producing some of the greatest work of his career whilst his body was shot. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. That's why he's one of the all-time greats. Absolutely. A man identifies Muhammad Hassan's attorney came out. He took his sweet time. This man was clearly a worker. He was. He read prepared. 
Yeah, who was it? Well, okay. Read this, and then I'll play the beginning of the clip so you can get figure out who it is. Okay. He uh, he took uh, he read a prepared statement that basically said Hassan was so sad that everyone hated him. He was taking leave of absence from SmackDown. This lawyer's wacky accent was coming and going. Hassan had vowed he'd never return to SmackDown until after he beats the Undertaker. Brian had never been a bigger fan of the Undertaker. Taker took about five minutes to come to the ring, and according to Brian's counter, then chose slam the tombstone the light of death. Yep, a worker. All right, well, let's see this. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mohammed Hassan's personal attorney. <laughs> As we told you moments ago, a prepared statement apparently from this attorney tonight. Bottom line is this, in 10 days... Thomas Whitney. <laughs> Who Champ. is that? Chopper. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't recognize him. <laughs> yeah, that's that's Chopper. Still, one thing we also can say about Hassan, still great music. That's a great theme song right there. Yes. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, see, let's, see, let's hear a little Chopper. At the Great American Bash Tag. Also, I never noticed this before. You know who he facially looks a lot like here? Who? Marco. Yeah, in a way, yeah. Well, this attorney's client, Muhammad Hassan, is going to go into perhaps the most important match of his career against The Undertaker, because the winner of that matchup will become the number one contender for the World Heavyweight Championship. And I, I you know, I personally, I, I can't think of anything more high stakes than, than, than be, be possibly facing the World Heavyweight Champion. That, that, that's what a number one contender match is about. I wonder what the sign that got blurred is. <laughs> but the other question is who will the world heavyweight champion be that's a great question will it be batista or will it be jbl they meet in 10 days of the great american bash later on tonight batista claims he's going to make an example of orlando jordan jbl's chief of staff i presume oh, taping is in new england yeah this should be extremely interesting Is that a sign with the Carino logo? Yes, it is. <laughs> this is the port, uh, Portland, My name no, is Thomas Whitney, Esquire. And I am the legal counsel for Mr. Muhammad Hassan. It's not that he has a wacky accent. It's that he's trying to hide his own accent. <laughs> yes. He's trying to make sure that he's not talking about parking the car in Harvard Yard. <laughs> he made some Worcester. Yeah. Then Worcester. Broke in with his friend Kofi Kingston. <laughs> anyway. Should I keep playing this? A little bit. Just a little bit. Let's look here a little bit more reading. Mr. Hassan has authorized me to read this statement on his behalf. Mr. Hassan has an... Mr. <laughs> Sounded like Alec Price there. George, so much emotional distress as a result of the vitriolic hatred he has encountered over the last week. Garbage, you could say. 
<laughs> As a result, he has chosen to take a leave of absence from SmackDown. Wasn't it nice when they would time the sweetening with the crowd actually doing I'd stuff? like to remind you yeah. that Mr. Hassan is as American as each and every one of you. He has the same rights and privileges under the First Amendment, including freedom of expression. And it is a sad day in America in which someone like my client has found need to retain an attorney to protect his fundamental rights. Accent almost came through on fundamental. <laughs> to freedom oh of goodness. speech and For freedom reason. from discrimination. Like all other Americans, you should not be prejudiced against Mr. Hassan or his manager, Costro. <laughs> I have to hear that again. Davari. Davari. Fundamental rights to freedom of speech and freedom from discrimination. Like all other Americans, you should not be prejudiced not. against Mr. Hassan or his manager, Kosro Davari. Or his manager, Kosro Davari. We're going to get better than that. So. Therefore, Therefore, my client will never <laughs> again appear here on SmackDown. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Until such time as he defeats The Undertaker at a pay-per-view ironically enough called ironically. The Great American Bash. And furthermore, my client will no longer man. be appearing on... No longer. Uh, we, we, we got where we need to be. <laughs> Let's see if there's more talking, though. Or, excuse me, talking. There is a little bit more talking, so... Psycho killer. <laughs> All right, come on. Does he talk more? Okay, here we go. Let's see yeah. what he says to the Undertaker. Be careful. There we go. Sir, sir, I do not know your intentions, but sir, need I remind you that I am not a wrestler, <laughs> sir. <laughs> I am an attorney. And? Oh. <laughs> All right, there you go. <laughs> Uh, before they were stars. No I wonder Triple H likes him so much. <laughs> I think that was probably the best way to get out the mess they were in, you know, considering yeah. you know, the restrictions they were under. <laughs> yeah. They could have done worse. All right. John Cena be Booker T. 
You know, the matches on the show hasn't been much to write home about for the most part, but everyone sure is working hard. It's, I guess it should be Christian versus Booker. It's just Cena. Christian beat Booker T. Christian beat him half to death before the bell rang and the ref was screaming at him to leave Booker alone or, or he wouldn't ring the bell to start the match. Christian finally backed off. Booker was limping around and groggy and could hardly stand. The ref decided he was just fine the work and write the bell. Christian immediately gave him the prettier and got the pin. Yep, Booker is turning heel for sure. Oh, he sure is. <laughs> he sure is. King Booker is on the way. JBR came. Props to Booker T for putting over Christian so strong, though, even though he's turning heel. Because when I was watching it, I was surprised at, you know, how well he put over Christian here. You know, given that they're probably of equal star status at that point in their careers. Yeah. JBL came out and uh, cut a promo looking like absolute hell. His eyes were all puffy and cut up and worse. He showed the top of his head, which he which he had been shaved, so he could staple him back together again. Ow, ow, ow. He buried Blue Meanie, calling him pretty much everything but except that fat little blue fuck. Though Brian knows he was thinking this. And saying thanks to Batista, he lost to that fat little blue fuck, and it was the worst day of his whole entire life. He said the Great American Bash was his favorite view, and it'd be what the WrestleMania main event should have been. He said there were legends, Hall of Famers, and all-time greats, but there was one, only one wrestling god, and that was him. This was a hell of a little promo. Ah, uh, yes. JBL and Meanie. We'll be talking that eventually when we do that week. Um, <laughs> which I think, wait, wait a minute, we may have already done that. I think that was part of that show. Yeah, I think it was One Night Stand was part of that show we did. So there you go. Well, no, One out. Night Stand's in June, but we might have done it anyway. I can't remember. All right, uh, Big Dave Orlando Jordan for the title. Title versus title. Yes, Orlando has a title, the U.S. title. Orlando got the heat after JBL tripped Big Dave up and threw him to the steps outside. Brian reset the timer so we could see how long Batista sold for Orlando Jordan. Two-minute alert. Orlando was working over his leg. Crowd was dead. JBL was yelling stuff at ringside. Suddenly a Batista chant started, mostly from women and children. Three-minute mark. Big Dave just started his comeback. Okay, that wasn't so bad after all. He not rushed off the apron. Then the ref took a bump. Big Dave went for the demon bomb. And then JB hit the ring and waffled him with a chair shot. He threw Orlando on top and woke up the referee, but Big Dave kicked out. JB hit the ring again. Hit clothes like from hell. Batista got him off with his clothes on. Then pinned Orlando with the powerball. It looked like he hurt his hamstring on the landing, but then Brian remembered he was selling his leg. And sure enough, JB immediately clipped him from behind and laid him out with the lariat. Showing him with JB holding the belt over his head in victory. A decent show, but not to be memorable. Now after the TV taping in, then Triple H hit the ring and attacked Batista for a two-on-one. Cena ran out for the save, then the usual double pinfall finish. As Batista pinned Triple H after Batista bomb, and Cena pinned JBL after the FU. Oh yes, this is the days of the dark match main event where uh, you would have like the Raw guys and the working SmackDown guys in the dark match. So, yeah, that was going on at this time period. So, SmackDown did a 3.1 fast national rating, an early estimate of 4.99 million viewers. There were those internally who believed all the media publicity from the Hassan incident and talk it created would lead to an increase in ratings. Using the Aaron Bischoff doctrine of controversy equals cash. That sometimes is true. Although WCW's history showed lots of talk about stupid decisions and attempting to create controversy only equals bankruptcy. 
In this case, however, the quarter hour involvement Undertaker did exceedingly well. So, yeah, it may add a little intrigue to it, but not too much where we made a huge bump in the ratings. So, not what they wanted. Raw, July 18th, starting with Eric Bischoff coming out as Lillian Garcia was interested in the opener. He said, last week something happened that was so appalling and so heinous they could not let it go unaddressed. This is still Brian. Clips aired of John Cena giving Bischoff the FU. Bischoff said he was in charge and therefore he could suspend or fire Cena if he wished. But alas, he had a better idea. John Cena versus Schnitzky right here on Raw. Jesus, that's punishment for Brian. <laughs> Not only that, he said it would be a lumberjack match. Brian remember back in the day when there was a reason lumberjack matches were signed. He officially predicted that tonight would be the beginning of the end of Cena's title raid. They followed up by plugging the Diva search and Kane and Matt Hardy in a cage match. Yes, Matt Hardy's back. And Carlito and Shelton Benjamin. Lillian noted that in this match, the title could change hands on count out. You know, because last week, Carlito got himself counted out. Shelton botched about his third dive in four weeks, so something is up. Coach said it was clear something wasn't right with Benjamin since he first took that awful bump in his first match with Carlito. Well, at least they can make a storyline out of his missed spots. These guys were busting their asses, though. There was a bit of miscommunication near the finish. Shelton made a, a big comeback, and they traded near falls. Guess the finish. Shelton went for the Urnagi. Carlito gave him a blatant low blow for the DQ. Since they specified he could only change hands via pinfall, submission, or countout, he kept the belt, and this feud must continue. And then we get clips from the Shawn Michaels Roddy Piper deal from last week. Kurt Angle came out for the weekly Angle Challenge. They had two indie guys dressed up as security guards out there, and it's good they were indie guys because both men had hairdos you'd never see on actual security guards. Angle claimed he fooled everyone last week because he could have beaten Matt Stryker at any second, but waited until 259 for the drama of it all. This week, though, he said he wasn't in the mood for three minutes, so it could, would be short and sweet. Out came Matt Stryker again. He grabbed the mic and said he was Matt Martell from right there in Philadelphia. And he was the guy who took Angle to the limit last week. I won another shot at your Olympic gold medal, he said. Angle said this guy was the biggest liar he ever met. And there was no way he was giving him a, a pathological liar another shot. As Stryker was leaving, Angle shut him from behind and said he changed his mind. He went for the Olympic slam, but Stryker slipped behind and put a rear naked choke on him. Lawler was going nuts as an illegal move. Angle fought to escape, but Stryker scissored his body and refused to let go. Angle finally got free with a minute left and booted him in the chops. He went for the angle slam, but Stryker got the ropes. Angle finally hit the slam and put the ankle lock on with, for a tap out with 27 seconds left. What a feud this has become, and they've done the entire thing in less than six minutes. Coach said Angle was awesome because he gave us drama all at once again. So, yes, Kurt Angle's new gimmick is that he's a worker. I tell you, I mean, they did a good job here at building Matt Stryker up, and good no, good Lord, nothing, nothing came out of that, Bix. <laughs> is he even signed yet at this point? Mm-mm. Right, they're just bringing him no. in for a one-shot off of the publicity from his losing the his teaching job. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, that's it. Which, I guess we talked about this on the when we did the week before um yes whatever anyone thinks of matt striker he did get a raw, raw deal from that school district like yes um, he yeah. the the thing they ended up docking him for he was using sick days instead of personal days which was the distinction they made but if he's using the allotted day and not any like if he's specifically using the allotted paid time off who cares mm-hmm 
it's like who cares if it's a sick to hair personal dick? Like if he you say he did to go wrestle, right? If he's you now, if he didn't have his P- PTO or he still had or you know didn't have any left or whatever, and claimed like a death in the family or something to wrestle, that would be different. But that's not what happened. He wasn't lying about anything. He just asked for day off. Days off. Yeah. Also, they clearly knew when he would take weeks off to tour zero one and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's something that you can find by reading. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they got, they, they built him up very nicely in these segments and then just, you know, nothing. Yeah. So, anyway. TCS or Ty Grisham. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, we're not going over that one again. <laughs> interviewed HBK about the Hogan deal. Sean said Hogan was there tonight, so we'd all find out whether he was man enough to accept. If Sean's supposed to be a full-fledged heel, he's doing a pretty shitty job of it. Oh, Chris, but that was... I just pulled up Wikipedia. No, the, the first striker challenge was in February. He wasn't on the week before. Oh, okay. So he came back for this. Okay. Yes. Yes. Both were in Philly. Okay. Interesting. There's a... I think there's a couple of things before the Hogan deal. Um, so one of which that Brian didn't cover, uh, which was the Diva Search segment. Um, so this was a repeat of the infamous segment where you know they had to give reasons for who they wanted to eliminate from the competition. Just uh, Diva, yes. This the diva. Um, so this was a complete dud of a segment because they got them to pre-record their their comments so they wouldn't have a repeat of the, I guess, sexual baselers that happened uh, the the previous year where they did the segment live. But essentially, most of them were saying. I pick this other woman to be eliminated because I think she would be much better suited for being, let's say, a model or or some other sort of job rather than being a WWE diva. So it was, you know, um, really, really a boring segment. And probably the only women that stood out were Crystal and Ashley. And that's just because they had a unique look rather than anything they particularly said. And there were the two that made it out yeah. of that group. So there you go. All right. So, so we got the HPK Hogan thing, which will come up later. Um, Chris Masters came after his usual boring segment. Who should answer the challenge but Rosie? Rosie fought like a mofo, but lost. Apparently, $20,000 is on the line here. Whoever learns nothing from OVW. Masters kept ranting and raving afterwards about how the big, how bigger you are, the harder you fall. So out came the big show. Brian said, you've been so happy to see that, man. Show said Masters always said, didn't matter how big the opponent was, and he was as big as they came. Masters pushed out and hit the bricks. Why he for that? Show said Masters was just like a squirrel in the wintertime. He had no nuts. And that was the end. I guess we'll find out next week for the conclusion. Hope Brian could bear it. Todd interviewed Edge about the cage match. 
He said he was fine with it because it would keep insane madmen out. Edge buried Matt six feet under without saying his name, then buried internet fans for commenting on his personal life despite the fact they never had any girlfriends in their lives. He said the whole deal was bullshit. This was without question the most passionate promo of Edge's career, so clearly a nerve was touched. I mean, that's the thing. This, this even though they're they're working, I mean they're all working together and they're working angles. You gotta believe there's still some real life shit going on here. There's still feelings from all directions in this. Of course. So oh, okay. Here's something I've wondered about. Um, no one involved has said when Matt's substance issue started, have they? No. That's something I've wondered about over the years. Because, you know, when, you know, Matt's in the throes of his addiction and gets into the whole weird spat with Punk over... Over just the straight edge stuff, but also Punk's relationship with Lita. Like, I'm sure some of that was intertwined then, but like in terms of the breakdown of the relationship, like, I don't think anyone has ever said whether or not Matt's issues had cropped up by then. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, he, he was trying to ape Brian Pillman. You know, who who you know had his own issues when he was doing the loose cannon gimmick. Um, yeah, he was. Yeah, there's a lot going on here, and we'll have a lot more on it later. All right, uh, Hogan came out, and got one of his wacky hour-long ovations. He said he wanted to thank all the fans for helping Hogan knows best do the best numbers for premiering the history of VH1. Like most of Hogan's bullshit, this was true. Nasty Nick was shown sitting in the front row. God, Brian hoped he'd get super kicked. <laughs> Hogan said, if Sean wanted to answer, he needed to come out and face him like a man. Michaels came out to a very mixed reaction in his gear. He stayed on the ramp, though. and said, we'd come down and join him, but he was afraid to have to wait another two weeks for Hogan to answer. After all, the last time they were in the ring together, Hogan was flat on his back staring at the lights. He said Hogan had faced everyone in his career, but no one with the passion of HBK. Sean took way too long to spit this out. Hogan cut his mo- most dude-rific and brother-tastic promo in a long time. He said Sean wanted just wanted one more match, and all he had to do was ask, because your ass is on. And so the match is official. Hogan was classically great here. What, is it safe to say that this is the last great Hulk Hogan feud? How are we defining great? I mean, it was a great feud. Um, I mean, it's the last the Sean, real, the pro as a program, definitely yes. I mean, because Sean, Sean was fantastic in all this, and you know that that made the feud because it looked like Sean was motivated again in this feud, and you wanted him to turn heel, but he he didn't do it. He he did make his character. Edgier, though. yeah, but then when the feud, Hogan feuds over with, he's back being Sean again, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the problem, but yeah, I mean, just great stuff here. That, 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 I mean, the whole start of the whole feud, that you know, the super kick and all that stuff coming out of nowhere. I mean, yeah, great stuff here. All right, uh, Jericho, I mean, when a lumberjack for later, he said he wanted these men to do whatever it took to get the job done. 
Next, we get Kane versus Edge. As Kane was coming to the ring, Matt Hardy jumped him out of nowhere and quickly held up by security. Hardy would be better off fighting Vanderlei Silva every week than getting manhandled every show by Fit Vanderlei. Edge called him an asshole and a piece of shit, the foremost bleep, the only the foremost bleep. Somehow Hardy got away from security and fled through the crowd. Thankfully, thankfully the cops didn't shoot him. As he ran off, they cut to a shot of Nancy Nick standing there in the front row laughing his ass off. Good thing Cornette wasn't there. Another totally out-of-control scene, out scene. It was cool. Unfortunately, next we had to have the match. The only thing that said from saved it was the she's a crack whore chance. That will never get old, Brian said, Bix. <laughs> he was wrong. Kane gigged and was bleeding all over. He finally made his big comeback around wild. Edge kicked him low to escape the choke slam. This match had those escape, lame escape the cage rules, so Edge ran for his life. Kane cut him off with a hard power bomb, but Edge kicked out. As Brian was watching this, he saw the cage and the Matt Hardy running in the blood and all near falls. All I could think was Edge and Cena had to be a rib because not only was it happening, but they were asking for it to follow this. Lead it through the briefcase to the ring, but Kane hit a desperation choke slam. Denny had the brilliant idea of trying to climb out the wind. What a fool. Edge cut him off with three briefcase shots and climbed out the wind. Quite the little spectacle here. Bryce says, okay, I give this view permission to end now. Next, Brian's Angel Maria interviewed John Cena about the Lumberjack match. And Keith requested us to play this clip. So let's go to Brian's Angel Maria and John Cena. I'm trying to bite my tongue given some of what we talked about off, off the air as far as uh, comments he would make about her boyfriend several months later. Although they're not together yet, but... Match and not much love to come later on tonight in that lumberjack match, I can assure you. But I tell you what, we got some guys here I love to watch. You lay in baseball. Look, there's all the Philadelphia Phillies. There's Chase Utley. There's Jimmy Rollins. Ryan Howard. Jason Michaels. My all-time favorite, Kenny Lawson. They'd rather be here than sit at home watching baseball. I can tell you that. Guess so the have best players in the Phillies are there. WWE's SmackDown Magazine presents the SmackDown Rebound. Champion versus champion, the world heavyweight champion well, Batista versus the United States champion. Yeah, yeah. It would be nice to have proper chapter marks for this, but whatever. <laughs> I, I guess there's too many chapters for him. Yeah, I guess all right. so. All right, all right, all right. I'm going back. Here we go. Maria wearing a lime green dress. Will Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome WWE Champion, John Cena. <laughs> so, John, you got a lumberjack match tonight against Snitsky. Yeah. I mean, are you nervous about getting hit by an axe or getting smashed by any fallen trees? I mean... <laughs> uh, I'll answer that question with a question. When you go down south on Cena Safari, are you scared of the venom of the great white trouser snake? No! You just go down there and you're ready for action. Tonight, I'm ready for action. I don't care if it's axes or falling... Wait a minute. I forgot my flannel shirt. Oh, Marie, I can't have a lumberjack match without a flannel shirt. You know that. I need you. Could you do me a favor? For this, for everything that's right, could you go get my flannel shirt, please? I'd love to. Right, I'll, I'll hold on to this. You go ahead. All right, then. 
Last week, Eric Bischoff threatens me and gets the F you. So now I'm in a lumberjack match as punishment where I got to swim with the sharks. I expected that. Why? Because Bischoff, last week when you were on your back helpless, I looked you dead in the eye and said, welcome to the new Raw. I am not why too cheap Chris Jericho and my head is not up your ass. Y'all two want to be lovers? Fine, go kiss and make up. Have dinner and a movie, buy each other flowers, play with my little ponies, have a freaking sleepover. I will be in that ring taking names and kicking ass. Why? Because that is raw. The champ is here. Snitsky seen a lumberjack match. What? <laughs> you could tell this scene is trying to get into this new version of his character where he's not rapping his promos. Yeah, but he's got the street accent, so to speak. He's, he's transitioning from over, you know, because he's still that guy, but he's, he's still Dr. Thugonomic Cena in a way, but he's already got the different music. He's not wearing the jerseys anymore, really. Well, of course he's and, still Dr. Thugonomics. They just introduced the spinner belt. No, did he have the, the when did he get the other music? Um, the, the music he uses now would have been, uh, I want to say like a few weeks before the draft. That's what I'm saying. So maybe he's not, he's, he's not Dr. Thugonomous when he doesn't have the song. I get what you're saying. Okay. So, but yeah, he's still doing the spinning stuff in a way, but it's, it's just, it's different, you know, and he's, I think the last time he wears a, the jersey is on the draft. Hmm. So... He's starting to become a different character. Yeah. But he's still got the, the old ticks of his old character. Yeah. But, uh, all right, Keith, what, caught, what, what what got you about this promo? Well, you know, partly it was Brian not, you know, Brian's comments not mentioning the, the bit where, you know, um, sort of, you know, Cena was sort of hitting on Maria without Maria with Maria being oblivious to it, I guess, you know, you know, which is uh, sort of interesting in the, in the current environment with what's going on with the uh, Vince McMahon and everything with the uh, sexual harassment. Um, and, and I, I guess I also wonder, like, I, I thought Cena came off as quite, quite a dick in terms of how he treated Maria afterwards, like sort of rolling his eyes. And I don't know. But her character's supposed to be she's a moron. And what he's doing is he's looking at the camera and like, yeah, I know she's a moron. Yes. That's that's basically what he's doing. Yeah, but... And that's that's a babyface move. It does it well, though the fans did turn on him, so you know. Well, uh, they they turned on him for different reasons. Yes. Overpush is one reason why they turned. And on they him. start turning on him because of everything that happens in this point, where Jericho kind of works him in a way that undermines him. Yeah, there's that too. Jericho put the screws to him, so to speak. Yeah. And then Angle the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, and they changed his character. I mean, and then, and then they changed his character. They made him into this different guy from when he got over big time as a babyface on SmackDown. Yeah. He, he came. He came off more. In, um, no, I want to say fake, but not as authentic. Yes, and uh, as far as Maria, I mean, a few things. One, it's weird looking back at her doing a voice because I don't think think we think of it as that way, but she's very obviously doing a voice as the original Maria character. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, okay, this is twofold. One, dear God, was she good at that character? But she was. She was so good at it that I think for a long time people bought into it. Like, they didn't think she was the character, but I think they didn't think she was smart. Yes. Now, I'm sure there's some misogyny baked into that, too, but it's interesting how people bought into it to the degree they did when she's probably actually one of the smartest people in the wrestling business. But well, this, I, this I, I thing, found but... that out. <laughs> Yeah, you know, sort of, uh, you know, uh, being set up to uh, interview her for cage side seats, which was an interesting, you know, whilst she was working for TNA, which was sort of interesting how that got set up. <laughs> I mean, she, she, that's, that's the thing about, you know, her being so good at characters, it's the complete opposite of her. Yeah. And that's the way a lot of that goes. I mean, some of your best characters are the complete opposites of that person's real life, you know, persona. Because it gives them a way to cut loose. Yeah. All right, Jericho and Angle were the biggest names of Muslim Lumberjacks. Of course, they were all heels. So whenever Cena ended up outside, he got stomped. Whenever Gene ended up outside, he was caressed. <laughs> they went to commercial. When they returned, Gene had him in a hold. Yes, the camel clutch, to be exact. To be fair, this is better than Brian expected, but try to comprehend this, his statement. Gene Snitsky was outworking John Cena. Maybe Snitsky should take a tour of Mexico so Paco Alonso could tell him what he told Heavy Metal last month. They need to start going to the wrestling schools on Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Which we talked about that in the last show. That's the 2005 show. Jericho on the outside was getting bleep left and right. Gene put him in the third Cobra Clutch in the evening. Okay, Brian's going to take back everything he wrote earlier. Gene sucks, and this sucks. Cena went for the FU, but Angle clipped his leg behind the rest back. Cena kicked out to a big pop. Cena up outside that, and Jericho really laid a beating on him. He was tossed back in the ring, and Snitsky booted him, but Cena still kicked out. Suddenly, eight million babyfaces hit ringside, including Shelton, who slipped on a dive again. Thankfully, this was this one was just off the steps. The last babyface out was Big Viss, who humped both heartbreakers. All Brian can pray is that this is the storyline that turns him gay. <laughs> Bischoff came out to tremendous heat. Ringside was a war zone. But this match needs all the help he can get. Jericho in the ring with a chair, but Cena beat him up, tossed him outside, then hit Gene with the FU for the pin. Crowd went ballistic for the finish. So say what you will about, about it, but it worked. A fun ending to a better show than we've seen the last few weeks. So there you go. There's Raw. <laughs> having having watched the match, I'm not sure I'd say Gene Snitsky was outworking John Cena. I guess at the beginning he may have met Brian thought he was but yes i think i think there was some ropey moments with some of cedar's comebacks which were very basic in terms of punches and kicks but i think also though like working involves selling 
you know, and Cena was, you know, very good at selling, even at this point, you know, selling the beat down. That I think, you know, um, I think that may be a bit unfair to to Cena. Um, and obviously, this is a bit stream of consciousness because uh, he changed his mind about Snitsky as the match went on. But I, I thought, you know, given given the limitations of Snitsky as the worker, this was, you know, you know, a pretty good main event. Like, you know, they did have a lot of smoke and mirrors that helped them with the lumberjack match. And another thing I would say was like. Brian was saying that there was no reason to have a lumberjack match, but it was clearly explained as the show went on, you know, which was that, you know, Eric Bischoff wanted revenge on John Cena. So he set up the lumberjack match so that all the heels could beat up on John Cena. So, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, that's the rationale, basically. It's the heels are a manager, you know, trying to get over. Yeah. And I also thought it was refreshing at the beginning of the show to have a promo that didn't last like 20, 25 minutes or so. Well, there's a reason for that, which we'll get into in a second. (laughs) Yeah, somebody's not around. Now, let's talk about the rating real quick. Raw did a 3.8 rating. So there's that. All right, to your promo uh, thing there. Trip, this is the purpose of Torch. Triple H has been working recent house shows and dark matches at TV tapings, but won't be returning to TV for roughly another two or three months. Hunter plans to take around two months off from wrestling for personal reasons and to let his body rest. He is not suffering from any health problems that require time off. While he won't be wrestling, he will be acting behind the scenes as he will be going through an orientation process at WWE headquarters, learning about how the Enterprise works outside the traveling live event world. Hunter is off the scene at the headquarters already, and his reputation for being cordial and friendly with the front office staff. He's most often spotted in the workout room and headquarters, formerly known as Titan Towers, which is open to all employees, and is often frequented by Vincent Mann himself. Shane and Stephanie worked uh, in almost every department here over the years, even if it was just one, one day a week, a day or a week, since one longtime WWE employee. It'd be good for Hunter to learn even more about things, how things operate in all the departments. Hunter's time off is apparently not directly related to Hulk Hogan's returns as a regular, as has been rumored but it may have prompted plans to bring him back and put the match against Shawn Michaels in Hunter's absence. One source was on the impression Hunter would return to SummerSlam, face Ric Flair, then take his time off afterwards. Both sources say Hunter's delayed plans to feud with Flair. His return date could be as late as November. It was McMahon's idea for Hunter to spend a lot of time at the headquarters during his time off. It's another sign that Hunter is truly part of the family and an heir to the throne along with Shane and Stephanie. Now, when a man was interviewed by Scripps News, Howard News Service several months after not being, being found not guilty 10 years ago when the U.S. government attempted to send him to prison for steroid distribution and conspiracy to distribute, the man said, after the trial, I'm walking back to the car. And somebody said, what are you going to do now, Vince? And without even hesitating, Vince said, I'm going back to work because that's what I love to do. Well, here's why Triple H is taking time off. It's time to have a child. He's getting off the, he's getting off the gas. And, well, uh, we don't know that. Uh, Aurora Rose. I know she she would have born... been conceived around November. Yes. I'm Aurora Rose Levesque. She okay. Don't have her specific birth date. I can't see. Oh, it was born July six, two thousand six. 
Oh, so uh, wait a second. Oh, wait, so... July. Oh, yeah, wait, I'm doing the math wrong. So that would mean she was conceived around. No, maybe actually. No, if we're going a full nine months, more like October. Yeah. So. And he returned. But he's got to get off the. He's got to get off the gas, though. Who's to say so... he's on the gas? <laughs> he comes back in October, though. Amazingly, I know. Yeah. And it's uh yeah early October so. And are any actually okay yeah there was a TV show in, oh yeah he's not back on TV until the end of October amazingly, so, right after the baby would have been conceived, amazing, I'm I'm sure he had other reasons for taking time off he just needed a vacation. I mean it's part of it. I think though given the timing yeah I think it made sense from a character perspective as well yeah. Uh, to to take some time off as he needed a break. Yeah, he just put over Batista really strong, and you know I think business was strong enough because they'd made Cena and Batista into big enough stars that they could draw you know on the road that they didn't need Triple H as Triple H being a full timer at that point. And they also had Hogan coming back as well. So it was the right time for him to take some time off to, you know, freshen up his character, rest up and, you know, learn the ropes, you know, um, for his future, you know, uh, jobs behind the scenes in WWE. Um, And one other thing that I thought was amusing was how uh, Wade Keller said he was an heir to the throne along with Shane and Stephanie, which, you know, I don't know. By by this point, it probably should have been clear that, you know, uh, that Stephanie, you know, was probably the one who would get the throne, not Shane. You know, particularly... Yeah, Shane's the- still involved, though. At this yeah. point in time, he's still around. He he was always in his sort of own bubble, his own division. Yeah, he wasn't involved in creative like Stephanie was. He he wasn't training with Vince McMahon all the time like Triple H was, which I think is a really key factor as well. You know, is that Triple H was developing the personal relationship with Vince. And, you know, I think in some respects, you know, know, I think in some respects, Triple H was more of the type of perhaps individual he wanted his son to be, (laughs) you know, bodybuilder and, you know, uh, perhaps a bit more ruthless, you know, in how he went about things. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, but to the broad point, though, I mean, he definitely need, needed that time off to, mm-hmm. to get him off TV and try to, you know, reboot his character, so to speak, in a way. All right, so we had a lot of wrestlers fired the week before, and we talked about that on that previous show. Well, we, we had a big fire during our week. Earl Hebner, the most famous referee in modern history of pro wrestling, was fired on July 18th after 17 years with the company. His brother Dave, a former referee who has been a road agent with the company, named about 21 years, was suspended. Why, you may ask? 
The allegations both twin brothers were involved in selling WWE merchandise with WWE logos at their pro shirt shop in St. Louis that they own with Nick Rittenhauer without authorization. Dave Hebner's in charge of the merchandise at the house shows on the tours he handles, agents' duties, and has been in that role for years. Internally, the feeling is, was that it was a case of mildly agreed by two guys who had made great living for years with the company. Investigation to trace merchandising discrepancies has started that pending results. Dave Kidnap is gone as well. Oh, Heather was the most highly regarded referee in the company. It was assigned to almost every pay-per-view main event. And after the brand split, every Raw main event, for as long as anyone can remember, although Mike Yoda had been moved to the main event spot in some of his pay-per-views. Of course, he's mostly Mrs. referee who called for the belt. Well, when Sean had Brett in the sharpshooter at Survivor Series 97, which is probably the most famous wrestling match of the past 15 years. The Heathers were much part of that story, and, and that night, Brett, fearing a double cross, asked Earl who told Brett that he swore the title, swore to life his kids, then he wouldn't screw him. When the match itself was going on, Dave Heathers was waiting in a getaway car with a motor running and everyone's gear packed. As Earl was told by my man and Joe Briscoe to call for the bell, Immediately sprang the ring, through the dressing room, get to the car, leaving the building before any refs figured out what had happened. For his role, Earl became the highest paid referee in the history of the business. He claimed to have gotten a new contract for $500,000 per year in newspaper interviews the next year. His son, Brian, refereed on SmackDown and was nearly fired after getting out of control on an Australia tour. Man, you know what jumps out about that paragraph uh, reading it in July 2022? What? Chris, how much has Rita Chatterton claimed that Vince McMahon said he would sign her to a contract for? 500000 a year. Yeah. I guess that's his magic no- magic number. For referees? Anyway. Or just, uh, just his number. Yeah. Okay, so with this firing, because Dave and Brian also do get fired. Um, it's If I remember right, it is never said outright in the reporting in any of the newsletters, but the obvious implication is there were shirts that were unaccounted for and there were official WWE shop shirts at the St. Louis store and people put two and two together. Yes. Yeah, I mean, how how hard would it have been for them to ask permission to sell them? Yeah, I thought that too. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you've been there for that long, and you're willing to basically just throw away all these years over some shit like that. I mean, why not just ask? Well, I guess they thought they were untouchable, you know, because, you know, of, you know, what happened in Montreal. But I think it's also interesting, you know, sort of linking to the mindset of Montreal, you know, Vince signed this contract that he didn't want to, um, you know, abide by with Brett. I could see that when this happened, you know, Vince going, why am I paying this guy so much money? I want to offload that contract, you know, particularly when they sort of, probably in his eyes betrayed them by, you know, trying to, you know, uh, sell T-shirt, you know, sort of, well, essentially stealing T-shirts to sell at their own shop, you know, that they, you know, particularly Earl was paid, you know, more handsomely than I guess Vince 
would think a referee would would you know deserve to make. I mean, I guess. I mean, Bix, what what are your thoughts? As far as which part? As far as the whole thing. I think it's weird that they did this, especially that Earl would, with the money he's making, um, and the security that it seems like the family had in the company otherwise. You know, it's just, I'd, I'd love to know if there's more to it, if there were other financial issues or whatever that the family was having. It, it also just strikes me as weird because it seems like it would have been obvious at some point that they would have gotten caught. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. How long do you think you're going to get away with this? I'd also like to know how long it was actually going on. Yeah, is that too? Yeah. There's a lot of unanswered questions in this one. Yeah, and I'm also, like, I guess because it's a crime is why the dirt sheets uh, don't connect the dots entirely. But that's always been the implication. Like, there's no other way to read the story as it's been told. Yeah. It's it's also one of those stories that was quite a big deal, but you know never never really got followed up on. You know, I don't know if there was any further details in like future newsletters. No, not, pretty much. No, it's not a story that you know that's been talked about much since then, and you know it is a pretty big deal. You know, uh, given how close the relationship the Hebners had with the McMahons. Yeah. All right, well, let's go to a, a wild week in the story of Matt Hardy, Edge, and Lita. Oh, boy. Some more regarding Matt Hardy and the angle. Hardy signed a new W contract roughly three weeks ago. On June 20th, when the Hardy music played at the wedding, he had not signed the contract, but Hardy, Lita, and Edge had agreed to at least work the angle together. The pop Hardy's music got was the impetus of him being asked to come back, although there was discussion on it long before that had aired. While it seemed stupid to play his music on the air and put over a guy with the tie, but appeared to be headed to TNA in a few weeks, it's clear the company believed that they could set their fingers any time to get him back. There were some debates on whether to bring him back, but in the end, the feeling was he was a good employee when he was there and did nothing that deserved being fired over. Another example of something John Laurinaitis was overruled on, since he was the one who made the call to fire him in the first place. All agreed it would be best for business to work it from there as if it was a shoot. In that sense, they should, since for some of the audience, this is an intriguing issue because you don't know when they do the interviews what it, what is and isn't reality. As far as the TV show went, and this now comes from several sources, the segments for the tease where they had Edge and Stinsky watched a clip of the Hardy music from the wedding and the backstage beatdown were both opposed by virtually everyone. Dave was told it was basically unanimous that the in-ring segment should have stood on its own. It was Vince who was adamant there had to be a beginning, a middle, and an end to the story and insisted on both segments. Now they, go ahead, Keith. Are you going to say something? Um, so I, I think one of the problems with work shoot angles and this one in particular is that you overthink things, you know. So I think there's a couple of re- things, a couple of ideas I have about this. So the first thing is I think the angle should have been really simple, which was Matt Hardy was angry because Edge and Lita had been flaunting their relationship on TV you know, for the past, you know, several months, 
HBO. Uh, and that was what the angle should have been about. And, well, as we'll see from the bite this, you know, um, you know, bite this show, they, they, they really got too far into the weeds, I think, of what went on. Um, and I think the, the other thing is, is like going back to the angle on Raw, it, it was shocking, it was gritty, but, you know, when you have to pretend that, you know, it wasn't meant to happen, even though everyone knows that it's scripted, it means that there's no follow-up to it, you know, so the announcers just, you know, don't bring it up again, even though it's a really big plot point, you know, um, and, you know, you know, I mean, I don't think you get much benefit by people thinking, you know, trying to con people into believing that something's actually a shoot. I think I think portraying it as a shoot has benefits because it comes across more gritty and realistic. But, you know, trying to I think you can go too far into that. You know, you know, particularly with the announcers just not bringing, you know, trying to move on and not, you know, making it a big deal. Because, you know, if something happened in real life in the news that you didn't expect, people are going to bring it up and talk about it. They're not going to, like, pretend it didn't happen. This is a risk you take in doing this type of angle because you're, you're – you're playing towards a certain fan base that's not your complete fan base. So that's the other thing too with doing these types of angles, especially on television. All right. Um, so they continue the angle on bite this on July 13th, which according to one source was the most watched show in the history of the program. Although Dave doesn't have that independently verified. The most watched show he ever heard of was one Paul Heyman the week for the East Step pay-per-view. The funny part was that it was the weirdest work shoot. Lita acted like she was in love with Edge and still with him, even though that's no longer the case. They pretend the Kane thing never happened, which at this point, Dave guesses that they have to because nobody ever brought the Kane Edge storyline as evidence by all, but who all the chants were for. But she came off more as a face and Hardy came off, cra- came off crazy, although to play the Pillman role, he does have to act crazy. He cut promos on both Adam Copeland and Johnny Ace for his being fired. Lita hinted it was Matt who slashed Edge tires months ago. Matt's never publicly stated that a name, but probably has said it was Jason Art, who's a boyfriend of Matt's current girlfriend. Anyway, Hardy vowed revenge, plus that he works for Ring of Honor, etc. Somewhere in there, she walked off. Dave's not sure if that was or wasn't a part of the plan. He's told it was not, that she was supposed to stay for the entire hour by one source, but another company source said nothing of the sort. But there was heat on Matt Hardy for when the show was over. She was clearly working, and well, if he was working, he pretty much fooled everyone. But then again, that's part of the pillman game. But the idea was for her to come off as the heel. Company people feel felt if Hardy went on and on about her dumping him, they'll turn him turn her face because people won't support a guy who whines forever about being dumped and thought he came off as bullying and badgering her. Still a percentage of fans to see by this minuscule compared to the TV audience, so it's not going to turn my Hardy heel. As evidenced by the fact Hardy was bayface every win after the show. 
They apparently told him ahead of time to avoid that direction, but he went there anyway. It's do it like we said, doing this type of it's work shoot angle can get dangerous because you're you're blurring the lines between what's on television and what's not, and when you start bringing it to television, then it blurs it even more. And you know, from the video that's still around from this, that's you know on the documentaries and stuff, it's very obvious. Matt still feels like he's legit needing to settle a score. Um, Adam and Amy are over it and just trying to get through it while understanding it's probably best for big business. Yeah. They look incredibly uncomfortable here. Yeah. And also, because I think that stuff was all before they signed him back. I mean, especially from Amy's perspective... He was fucking putting up videos online of him putting a picture of her on a tree and shooting it with a gun. Talked about that last week's show. I mean, last 2005 show. Like, that's a lot. I don't know if he's talked about, like, what his regrets are from all this, but he took, he, if this happened now, it would have gotten to the point where he would have lost all sympathy. Yes. Yeah. You can't well, do that. You can't do that type of stuff. Today. Well, also because but, they wouldn't be using it as a springboard to make the Alita character, quote unquote, slutty either. That's a whole yeah. other part of it. Wait, wait. I, I watched the bite this segment and Lita came across like, you know, even though she is meant to be playing heel, like she was you know, sympathetic, a lot of her arguments, you know, about wanting a private life and how it wasn't the business of fans. They had some callers in, live callers, who, you know, were supportive of her. You know, um... I mean, she comes off exasperated. I haven't watched it in a while, but, like, yeah, like, yeah, like, she, she honestly comes off the most sympathetic by far. Um... And also, I hadn't realized, like, obviously, we wouldn't have the time to play it here. Yeah, the whole thing is actually on YouTube. I hadn't realized. Yeah, that's how I could watch it. So, and and I think also, I mean, I I think actually Matt comes more sympathetic when he talks about, you know, the, the, you know, the relationship breakdown and the betrayal and, you know, how he was unfairly fired. It was everything surrounding that about the revenge uh, that was sort of uncomfortable, you know, which was more the typical sort of wrestling promo type of thing. And, you know, I think the, the bits where Lita was meant to come across as a heel you know, I I just found like hilarious the pithy like breakdowns of Matt. You know, were like you know you know because he 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 was coming across as a bit bitter ex and you know being obsessed on the internet and things like that. So Lita's pithy breakdowns, you know, you know they're blunt, but 
you sort of agreed with them, you know, even though they were meant to be probably the heel lines, I guess, you know, so it, it didn't work as a segment if it was designed to, to uh, get people, you know, on Hardy's side. Yeah. All right, should I play a random snippet of at least the WWE upload just so we can get a just a brief yeah. of the vibe? I think we kind of have to. I mean, yeah. you might want to play the end, like towards the end, which is when Lita okay, walks off. Yeah, so maybe a bit bef- before them. Because Late- Matt Hardy isn't on until the second half of the um, the video, if you want to focus on that. Okay, let's see. Lita walks off at the end. All right, so go with that, you think? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, right. I'll go back like a minute or two before that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'll start with where she's listening to Matt. It looks where it looks like she's like trying to wants to roll her eyes. Okay. Let me do the screen share. Good for whoever actually downloaded this whole thing and uploaded it to YouTube a few years ago. By the way. I think Monday night I came out there and I called him Adam because that's all I know him as. And I didn't even call you Amy because the Amy Dumas I know, that, that girl, she's dead. She's gone. Lita's all I know. This filthy hanging out with Edge. That's all I know now. I don't even know who Amy Dumas is anymore. What the fuck, dude? <laughs> shoot, shoot names, shoot names. No, shoot the, names. Bleeping, the bleeping that it seems like he called her a whore or slut on the air. Probably the slut. I mean, that was a common word on W television. Okay, I mean, and, and so why why should I want to be with you after a, a rant like this? And well, re- I, no, I'll tell you what, I don't want to be with you either. The whole thing is, I'm the kind of person, I, I, I'm vindictive, I'll tell you that right now. And if you, it, 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 if you screw over Matt Hardy, believe me, I will make your life miserable. You did that to me, because I looked at you on the same level as myself. I mean, actually, wrestling is all I've known, it's all I've loved my entire life. And then it came to a point where I loved you more than wrestling. I put you first, and I put my career second. In case people don't know this, I was on SmackDown. I was in the midst of the best time I'd ever had as a singles wrestler in my career. The whole reason I came to Raw was to be with this girl, Amy Dumas, to be with Lita on TV so it wouldn't mess up our schedule, so it wouldn't mess up our relationship. And coming over there did nothing for me. It was a career killer, and part of it was your fault because you got heat when I got over there. And then I came over there for you just for our relationship because relationship was number one to me, wrestling was second. When I was out hurt, though, it seems to you that my relationship, our relationship didn't mean anything. Wrestling was first to you, and then even your relationship with Edge became first to you. So now, because you've done that, I'll get retribution against you, I'll get retribution against Adam, and I'll also get retribution against that company because I am the kind of person, I don't just like, people don't run over me, and then I lay down and die. If people Okay, we should probably say what she looks like during this. She looks just legit checked out, like she'd rather be anywhere else at this point. Yeah. Like, she's just got her head, like, tilted in her hand, and just is, like, is clearly just looking at the clock here. Yeah, she's ready for this to be over with. People run over me, I will get up and I will massacre them. I will dismantle them. And you have no idea. You know what it's like to be my closest ally and have me do anything for you? And you're going to see what it's like to be my worst enemy. And I you're, know, you're I know. Like I, read, I read already, Matt. Good. Thank you. Well, just, just to reiterate, because I know you're not too you're not too up on your internet on your uh, internet sites and you're not too up on your articles and whatnot. So just so you know, I want to warn you before I come. Okay. Thanks. And um, 
We are now hosting the Bite This Show. I am your host, Lita. We have Matt Hardy here as a guest who, um, if he didn't say enough over the past months, um, he has actually more to say, folks. I know you're on the edge of your seats. What else have you got for us, Matt? Oh, yeah. You, you, would you like to hear some more? This is all I'm going to say right now. From now on, I am a free man. My 98 No Complete Clause, my No Compete Clause has ended. And you never know where I'll show up. This Friday, I'll just go ahead and plug it for you. I'll be in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Come out and see Matt Hardy. This Saturday, I'll be in for Ring of Honor. Come out and see Matt Hardy. Come out and see Ring of Honor, a real wrestling promotion, as opposed to the uh, WWE and his soap opera storylines. And this Sunday, you never know where I'll show up. Might go down to Florida for a vacation. Monday, you never know where I'll show up there. Tuesday, there's a big wrestling show that day. All right, that's all the time we have yeah. today, folks, on Bite This. Matt Hardy, we appreciate you so much for stopping by today. Thank you. We'll be talking to you later. Hey, Amy. Amy, on a serious note, why? Why, why did you do it? Why, why would you make? Why, why would you do it? There's obviously something missing there for me to go fall in love with somebody else, Matt. What was missing? What was missing? I don't think I need to share that with the rest of the world, Matt. Is uh, even though that's how you seem to be dealing with things, um, there's still places that um, I don't want to go, and I don't, I don't think I should have to. Go ahead. Don't be afraid now. Uh, Matt Lita has uh, has, has left. Unfortunately, I, I guess that uh, concludes our interview. Thanks for calling in and, and clearing the air a little bit. And uh, all the fans writing in want to know what, what's what's next for you. What, what do you have in store? You keep talking about doing these things in the WWE. Okay. Um, uh, having not seen this part in a very long time, and now with all the hindsight we have, maybe not what his issues would be with later. He absolutely sounds like he's on something here. Yeah, I thought he that. sounds yeah. like he's speeding. And it sure is easy to read into Amy's comment at the end, isn't it? Yeah. If you want to. Um, I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, besides that, like, he absolutely just, with the way he sounds and the way she sounds, like, how it, like, not only does it feel flipped from what the intent is, like, it almost comes off as, like, some, you know, straight off, straight up, like, Darvo type, you know, abuse stuff. Um, She comes off, like, she came off sympathetic then, like we just talked about. Now, 17 years later, you know, thank God Matt's gotten his shit together, but he does he does not come off well here at all, despite being someone who at least initially, you know, was, was still in many ways a wronged party. Well, he was a big, he was the big baby face in all this, you know, as far as the, the fans' eyes. Yeah. Well, that's partly how you know Lita was portrayed on screen. I think. I mean, yeah, that's part of it, but still, it's, but that was but also still playing Matt, off of the real life issues anyway. Even before, but that. it's Matt Hardy. Yeah. Matt Hardy was he was always popular anyway, you know. So it's like he's going to have that on his side no matter what. So. And they shouldn't have fired him the way they did, probably. They probably should have just kept him under contract and waited for him to heal up, even if they didn't want to use him anymore. Just, you know, not 
you know, I think firing him exacerbated the situation and probably made things worse for uh, Lita, you know, because she probably had to face the blowback from him being fired, I think. Well, as John Laurinaitis, you know, making the call, as as Dave said earlier, and it just came back to bite him because he fired him and then he gets hired back. So... Yeah, it's quite the quite the time there in the lives of these people. So there you go. Yeah, and one thing I'd be curious to check the timeline on though is had any of his more egregious stuff happened yet when he got cut, or at the time he got cut, was it mainly just complaining online about his girlfriend leaving him and cheating on him with one of his best friends? And here's something too that we, we you know we've talked about, but we're not talking about with this so far. She's also, Lita's also not, you know, having to deal with this. She's also still having to pretend she's in love with Edge. Mm-hmm. So that's got to be weighing on her mentally, too. Yeah, as we talked about when we did the last 05 show, they had already long since stopped seeing each other by the time they became a couple on screen. Yeah. So, exactly. All right, well, speaking of the people that are uh, reconciling, Bret Hart and Vincent Mann are back talking. And this time there are no intermediaries. McMahon wants Brett to return to WrestleMania next year to be inducted in the Hall of Fame, as well as put out DVD of his career. They once again are also trying to get the rights to Brett's career encyclopedia book. Whether it's because it almost surely be the best-selling wrestling book in Canada, at least in years, or because they want to neuter aspects of the book, or both, it's premature to say. Well, they don't get the, they don't get the rights to the book, but everything else happens. And thank God they didn't, I think, because yeah, uh, you know, I, you know, the the book is probably one of the, you know, best wrestling books that's you know ever been written, and you know, I don't I don't think it would come up would have been as good once uh, WWE's editors got a hold of it. I think. Well, no. Absolutely not. Yeah, there were certain stories that I, I guess, uh, you know, they they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't want repeating in the book. No, not at all. Um, so I just remembered um, that uh, Colette Arendt had done a story at Fanbyte called "The History of Creeps in Pro Wrestling." I think that talks about how the Matt Lita stuff played out at the time. And I feel like I should read this, because this does add to the question I just asked. In his first post about the relationship, because remember, what ends up getting him fired is being so vocal about it, at least, or that's how it was explained at the time. Hardy noted that he asked his site's administrator to take all photos of Dumas off his page, writing, quote, if you happen to run into Amy in an appearance, I think you should ask her why her pictures have been taken down. Later adding, quote, Matt fact number five. Matt hates being lied to and having his trust broken. He began by asking his fans to stalk and harass his... It says girlfriend here, but ex-girlfriend. Almost immediately, house show reports of fans chanting about how Matt was screwed and betrayed started filing filing in, which made it to Dumas' WrestleMania appearance, which became a regular occurrence on television. Once it reached this point, Hardy was released. With Dave Meltzer writing... uh, quote, could be almost described as morally reprehensible. Uh, the firing, uh, what Hardy did to precipitate it, 
Hardy's account of his firing painted himself as a victim of cruel circumstance. And, you know, not, you know, you get the gist. But then on his blog, Hardy continued to thank fans for pressing his harassment campaign. And, you know, and then uh, Edge's ex-wife posts on his message board and calls Amy a bitch and says she looks like a man. I'm not reading directly at this point. Um, so... And that's nothing that plays into it. That's nothing that plays into this whole thing, too, is fans with Alita as breaking up Edge's marriage. Yes, but... The Valvina's sister. No, this is the second wife. This is, oh, uh, well, Lisa. sorry. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Forgot about yeah, that. He, yeah, the Alana Morley uh, marriage did not last long. Um, no. But the fact that he started it out on the note he did... I think especially with all the years of hindsight, I don't know about firing him, but I think they're not wrong, at least in disciplining him. Yeah. You know, yeah, there was the infidelity, but that's not something you can really punish them for as a company. Whereas basically inviting fans to harass her at appearances, that's a different matter. Yeah. That's a different level right there. The the other thing is, um, you know, looking forward to the future a bit is I think Matt Hardy was, you know, well, clearly not not thinking things very rationally is that, you know, people in WWE have long memories. And, you know, I mean, he did get the feud with uh, Edge, you know, um, but. You know, you know, quickly thereafter, his uh, career took quite the downswing and he had to, you know, serve his time in, in the uh, doghouse, you know. And I, I guess there was probably other, other, you know, probably infractions, of, you know, that, you know, they did something wrong that caused that. But I think probably, you know, they were... I, I would expect I would expect that WWE management weren't very happy, you know, in terms of their hand sort of being forced, you know, to bring him back and do this program. Yeah. They're also looking at, you know, the fact that we're taking him away from somebody else that could use him to make money. Exactly. For the angle that happened on our watch. So, all right. House show in OVW country in Louisville on July 16th saw Viscera beat Tyson. That's Tomko. Who booked this? Brian Alvarez said. The Blonde Bomber for the Thrill Seekers to retain WWE Southern Tag Titles. Carlito beat Shelton using the ropes. Eugene made a triumphant return to an enormous ovation and beat Coach and Renee Debris. Christy Hemme beat Victoria. Oh, yes, via pinfall. Rosie and Hurricane beat the Heartthrobs. Kerwin White beat Tajiri. Kerwin apparently has the widest music in history. Kane and Big Show beat Edge and Stacey with a double choke slam finish. Michaels beat Flair. Wow, they're sure going all out with his Michaels heel turn. His perhaps most overgone on the show. Maybe it was the first ever John Cena Triple H match. How about that? That Cena won with the FU. Cena was super over with the kids as well. Didn't hear anything about the match quality, so probably nothing special. So, yeah. Now, this was a disaster. As most of you probably aware by now, it was an outdoor show, and as soon as the boogeyman made his appearance, the Lord opened up the heavens and poured down rain, and the show was promptly canceled. 
This is a VW's uh, show. There's also done their lining and win the terror company in this and the proof got a sense of humor. No video takes catch at this moment. That'd been the single greatest interest video of all time. Everyone's tried, told to hold on to their tickets and the show will be rebooked to another date, hopefully without the boogeyman. Now, this was at Six Flags, I think. Now, there was a ton of finger pointing on July 15th of Randy Orton not being at Six Flags. But both VW and W were aware that Orton wasn't going to be there and continued advertising push for a Ken Doan Orton showdown. The stories that W approved Orton as the outside star for July 15th, but apparently never told Orton this, and he made up the plans. Everyone was blaming everyone for the mix-up, and it wasn't until the angles were shot and the first TVs were shot that had already announced it that the communications got to where they realized he wasn't going to be there. By the end, Cornette was so frustrated, he kept promoting him and promoting him. W never told him not to. Wait, 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 this wait, wait time you're telling me that he, oh, he false advertised something? I'm shocked. <laughs> well, hold on. The luck this time was with Cornette, though, because the Raw crew was working in Lexington that night, a relatively short drive. Cornette asked if he could get someone as a replacement and asked for Ric Flair. By that point, Cornette rationalized if the replacement was a bigger star than the original, it'd be okay. So he worked out a scenario where Flair would confront Kenny Doan to lead to Doan versus Ort. So Doan came out early in the show said Ort wouldn't be there. So he had transportation problems. And it started running him down until Flair's music suddenly hit. Flair arrived surrounded by a bunch of the students as valets and Alexis Lurie. He and Dunn went back and forth until Dunn laid Flair out with the RKO. There was considerable debate on this, as WWE did not want this angle, even though it was at a minor show, and wanted Flair making a comeback on his own and firing shops to Dunn, who would run away. When Flair got there and realized they were building Dunn up for Orton, he said the right thing for business would be for him to get laid out and give Dunn the rub. Why cool him off by running before he had the headline against Orton? And Flair asked to refuse to do any other scenario. Not only did Flair put him over, he then refused where Danny Davis offered him a bonus for making the guy. Flair then turned down being paid at all and left for Lexington. Well, that's nice. So Flair yeah. did a freebie. Props <laughs> to Flair there, you know. Um, you know, I mean, particularly, I mean, you know, this this whole micromanagement of shows that aren't even taped, you know, and you know, no one will no one will know other than the hardcore fans what what happens. Why are you micromanaging so much? I mean, you know, um, it doesn't doesn't matter that Flair gets laid out with an RKO on this show. They and have it, to they have to get over on the another promotion. That's just the mentality. You know, that's why they, that's why interpromotional angles never work in WWE. Yeah, but it's it's a developmental territory. Don't so. matter. <laughs> it's one of the, it's one of their guys. I mean, there. Doan is one of their guys, and Doan would be brought up very Don't, shortly. Yeah, but he's not he's not on national television at that time, and he's not Ric Flair. Yeah, it's still silly. I think. <laughs> well, of course it's silly, but that, I'm just trying to say what they're what they're thinking. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, the, the results of this show, the Thrill Seekers, Johnny Jr. and Matt Capitale defeated Danny Doring and Roadkill. Nick Nemeth, he wouldn't do anything, defeated Paul Burchill. Chris Cage and Seth Skyfire defeated the Blonde Bombers, Chad Tolan and Tank Tolan. Brent Albright beat Aaron Yale Stevens in a coward waves the flag match. <laughs> uh, Elijah Burke and Duche defeated Mike Mondo and Bobby Lashley. That's a group of talent 
Yeah. I mean, in a match. I'm particularly impressed how by... Aside from Jeter in the opener, they concentrated all of the got their love of the business beaten out of them by WWE guys into one match. <laughs> yeah. With Cage and Skyfire against the Tollins. I mean, are you sure? Well, I, I guess there's Mike Mondo as well in the main event. No, but Mike Mondo stuck around wrestling. Yeah. I, 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 I think they probably uh, quite a few of the other people on this card probably even if their love of wrestling didn't wasn't completely beaten out of them. Oh, I get what you're saying. Yes, uh, but they didn't they didn't necessarily leave the business for good out of you know you know the way that those guys did. Yeah, but I I think a lot of them probably had you know an an, an experience on the main roster that was trying. I guess. Yeah. Other than Bobby, well, even Bobby Lashley, given. Well, uh, the whole uh, shit he had to go through, you know, with Michael Hayes and everything. So, oh, you mean someone who he and his then wife we literally know because it was reported in the sheets at the time has an NDA? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh, that's timely. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to Japan now, and before we get into the uh, Tokyo Dome show, we have much bigger news in Japan to talk about. The funeral of Shinoshimoto on July 16th, attended by a virtual who's who of the Japanese professional wrestling community, was described by insiders as Hashimoto's final storyline. For reasons unclear other than that phrase, final storyline itself, virtually all Japanese media reported that 15,000 people attended, which would be among the biggest celebrity funerals of recent years. The live report we got said the number was really closer to 3,000. But there was a media agreement to actually miss the funeral due to the fly problems coming from New York. Uh, well, there's something got lost in translation there. Uh, it's about Anoki. Anoki, who was scheduled, Anoki missed the funeral due to flight problems coming up in New York. I don't know what happened there on the cut and paste, but oh well. Uh, Anoki was scheduled to go to Newton, Iowa for his induction into the George Tregos Lutez Hall of Fame. Cancels his appearance to return to Japan for the funeral, but after a delay at the airport, didn't arrive back at Japan in time. They even rushed into Yokohama from the airport. He arrived two hours late. His life was too short. He lived his own lifestyle. I won't cry because he wouldn't want me to. I hope he will do very well in heaven. That last sentence, when I did the notes, tripped me out. I hope he will do very well in heaven. <laughs> That's an Anoki thing to say. So there you go. Besides family and close childhood friends, the pallbearers all came from his contemporaries from his glory days at New Japan Pro Wrestling. Seiji Saguchi, Don Arakawa, Tetsumi Fujinami. Keiji Muto, Masira Chono, Jisha Thunder Liger wearing his mask, and Hashimoto's personal protégés who became top stars, Hiroshi Tenzan and Manama Nakanishi. The ending was very moving to everyone as his ring music played while thousands of fans threw red streamers at his casket and chanted his name, while his son, 13-year-old Taichi Hashimoto, yes, the all-Japan wrestler Taichi Shikari's ring name is actually named after Hashimoto's son as Hashimoto gave him his ring name, Told those gathering to please never forget my father. His actual burial place would be in Takai City, where he grew up next to his father. Besides top stars from every pro wrestling group, major front office figures from both Pride, Heroes, and K1, including K1's two major promoters, Sadaharu Tanagawa and Nobuaki Kakuda, Heroes major promoters, Akira Maeda and Fumihiko Yue, and many Pride officials, as well as Nobuki Sakibara and Nobuhiko Takada. 
the reporters for 20 different television stations, and every major network carried coverage of the funeral. Many of the top wrestlers, including Naira Agawa, Mudo, Chono, and Kensuke Sasaki, were visibly crying throughout the ceremony. It is said that Mudo, Chono, and Ogawa are going to present a Shinha Shimoto Memorial Wrestling Event in the Tokyo Dome, the building he sold out more money than any wrestler ever for the fall or winter. And versus everyone from Zero One Max, LLPW, and each Japan Pro Wrestler was in attendance, as well as Big Japan owner Shinya Kojika, retired wrestler Kunya Kobayashi, Kantaro Hoshino, and Katetsu Yamamoto, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, Kyoshi Tamura, Mitsuharu Masawa, Kenda Kabashi, Toshaki Kawada, Sushi Onida, Riki Choshu, Takumasano, and numerous others. An amazing coincidence, the week of his death, two of his protégés, Hiroshi Tenzan and Kazuki Fujita, were battling for the IWGP World Heavyweight title belt. The actual physical bed itself they were battling for was introduced in early 1997 when Hashimoto was presented it at the tw- company's 25th anniversary party. During the match, both men honored Hashimoto by doing some of his trademark spots. Tenzan used his big chops and implanted TDT, while Fujita used the German suplex and the brain buster. After Fujita won the title in 1359, after a series of knees to the head, Fujita took the belt and left the ring with it. There was a large symbolic photo at ringside on a chair of Hashimoto with the idea he was watching his two protégés battle for his belt. Fujita went over to the photo, prayed, and wrapped the belt around the photo of Hashimoto. He then went to the back without the title belt. Fujita said he wanted to thank New Japan Hashimoto, who he trained under from 1996-98, for teaching him how to fight and building the foundation for his current status as Japan's top heavyweight fighter. The next day, New Japan President Simon Inoki said they would be retiring that physical belt to honor Hashimoto, and will make either a new belt or bring back the pre-1997 belt for Fujita to defend. And uh, Yasuo Tsukamoto, the mayor of Takai City, announced that August the 28th would be Shinoshimoto Day in the city, and they will have many activities to honor him. All right, Keith, you were in Japan this time, and you were telling us off the air that uh, this was all over the television there. Yeah, so obviously I couldn't understand what they were saying, but yeah, it was all over the uh tv news broadcasts and i think what was interesting was like the pictures and clips um uh, of his career were from the hustle promotion not new japan which uh, was a bit strange for me you know coming you know outside that culture you know um but yeah it was clearly a very big deal as it was you know, it, it seemed at least for the first couple of days I was over in Japan, it was like, you know, on the TV news broadcasts when I was like looking at the TV in my hotel room. Yeah, I mean, 20 different networks are covering it. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure, you know, if you just flip the channel during the news uh, times, I'm sure you would catch all the different ones, you know, reporting on it and everything. But, uh, I mean, that is interesting that, that the Hustle uh, photos was used. So I guess it may have been uh, whichever station you were watching probably had the uh, had Hustle or something and was able to get that you know, a whole lot easier than trying to get from TVSI or something like that. So that, probably, that could have been what that was. But uh, yeah, I mean, because we did the whole show on his death years ago that like we talked about earlier. And um, this death, I mean, this was a definitely a... Uh, a major deal in Japan at that time. I remember I, I, that was one of the hardest things I had to work on was, uh, was that story when I was doing the, the new stuff for Death Valley Driver, because there's just so much out there, you know, at that time, people, 
with all their tributes and all these different news coming out. I mean, his death in Japan is, would have been is equal to any major sports star dying here in their prime. You know, in their prime, it, it was that big. He has more Tokyo Dome sellouts than anyone by far. I mean, it's probably more Dome sellouts. Period. You know, yeah. that that's the easiest way to describe it. And you know, the last really strong New Japan business period of that era is with him as the clear top star. Yeah, absolutely. And he was beloved. Yeah. That's another thing too. He was beloved by everyone, as you can tell by how he was, re- you know, received received at the funeral. And it just it kind of makes you wonder, you know, how. You know, how his New Japan run ended. I hope that people made amends with each other before his, his passing, you know, because there was a lot of heat there. And, uh, you mean as far as with Toshu and guys like that, or, uh, Fujinami yeah. was, was, was a lot of that too. But Choshu, yeah. But, I mean, he came back and worked for New Japan, if, if, you know, but still, I mean, he didn't work. You know, he wasn't a regular by any stretch of imagination, but he did work some shows for them, the Tokyo Dome shows and such. So that's why, you know, you know, even though you may have issues with somebody, it's always good to, you know, try to make amends because you never know what the future holds. Okay. And you don't want you don't want to have somebody pass and have that hanging over, you know, hanging over you like you never got to say I'm sorry or whatever and never got to squash your beep. So... Yeah, and actually, I know, he, how, I, oh, I know how we are as humans that we, we sometimes we can hold some grudges and stuff like that, but uh, sometimes, sometimes you gotta let it go. Yeah. Um. Okay. I just looked. His only New Japan match after the split is the tag from the anniver- from the thirtieth uh, anniversary show. There you go. That's the only one then. Yeah. Yes, where it's him and Ogawa over uh, Tenzan and Norton with Kotetsu Yamamoto as the guest referee. And Tenzan's in that match. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Norton, and you know, it, one of his greatest rivals, too. It, 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 you know, that's something people don't think about was Hashimoto's presence as a trainer. Mm-hmm. After Hase, you know, after Hase left, Hashimoto became a, you know, a big-time influence in training, although he was before then, you know. But basically, more like he had Tenzan and Nakanishi were like his young boys. But I mean, he he would train some of these guys as well, you know. After Hase left, mm-hmm. and yeah, I mean, it definitely um, was a major influence on on these guys' careers, especially Kazuki Fujita. So, yes, um, something I want to mention too, because I don't know why it doesn't come up that often. You know, as far as his influence and stuff, I mean, we still, I mean, well, he's been off for a couple months doing. TV work, but Samoa Joe's whole persona, once he figures himself out, is Hashimoto. Yes. And Hashimoto oh, never gets close to enough credit for that. No. Hashimoto doesn't get credit from nearly enough credit for anything. No. Because, I mean, that went back to when he was in his prime. I mean, New Japan in the 90s, as we talked about this many times before, the Western fans is all about the junior heavyweights. Mm-hmm. All, that's all it was about, junior heavyweights. 
this dude's selling out Tokyo domes left and right, you know, in major programs. And it's not appreciated because he's not Masawa Kawada and Kabashi. Mm-hmm. And look at, and look at today, you know, everybody still talks up Masawa Kawada Kabashi and you have, you have some that will talk about Shimoto and stuff like that, but it's not nearly to that level. Nope. You, you know, so there's no, we have the four pillars of all Japan, but you don't see a whole lot of people doing the three musketeers in New Japan. When the three musketeers in New Japan, <laughs> business wise, may have done better overall than the four pillars in business. So, yeah. Yeah, New Japan heavyweight scene doesn't get nearly appreciated like it should. Absolutely. Because it wasn't strong, it wasn't King's Road. So, but that's a whole other story. And then. American Hashimoto became one of the best and most well-regarded American wrestlers of his era. Yeah. So, it worked out, as far as that, in the end. Yeah, but still, Hashimoto doesn't get enough credit. Nope. It's a shame. One minor thing I was wondering. So, yes. what, what was Hashimoto's connection to LLPW? Because that just struck me as strange. As um, I think it's just was there. I mean, it's just something that Dave uh, was was putting out there that the people were there. You know, I mean, LLPW. I mean, Shinobu Kandori. I mean, a lot of those wrestlers were tight. You know. Well, that's what I was gonna say that. Kandori was tighter with the male wrestlers than a lot of the other women stars. Yeah. So, that's probably, you know, there's all kinds of connections there, so I'm sure. So, that's probably why. All right. So, let's talk about the big news here Pro Wrestling Noah. Katakabashi and Kensuke Saki have one on paper. Was an impossible task to live up to? The two placed one and two in every rest of the year balloting last year in Japan. They never had wrestled before. Their first ever match was on July 18th at the Tokyo Dome. A show would have to live up to the standard set last year for Noah's first ever Tokyo Dome event, which Harley Race, as well as many Japanese reporters covering the show and several wrestlers on the show, called the greatest show you ever seen. The match they would be compared with was Kabashi's main event on that show with Junakiyama, which Harley Race called the greatest match he'd ever seen. I hope this continues forever. So the NTV announcer and what may go down as a memorable line in history of wrestling broadcasting. When Kobashi and Sasaki were trading blistering shots for nearly five straight minutes with a crowd at a fever pitch midway through the match. The color commentator returned to the Tokyo Dome was Yoshiro Takayama, who until one year ago figured to be the third man in a three-way battle for Japan's pro wrestling MVP. Takayama had the best match of his career and it didn't involve his face looking like it was on fire and someone put it out with an axe against one of the two. He had a great match with the other. But unfortunately, it was so brutal they may have ended his career. But watching, watching his two rivals go at it, he was in awe at this point, saying with an understated voice, these two are unbelievable wrestlers. Kabashi had to figure out after winning the match of the year war in 2003 against Mitsuharu Masawa and last year against Akiyama in a match referred to earlier as a way to top that. They did the brutal high-angle suplexes, absolutely brutal chops, 189 in all, and the one killer spot that defined the match. Against Masawa, Kobashi took a tire suplex off the ramp to the floor. Against Takayama, he took an exploder off the middle rope to the floor. In this match, he took a Northern Lights bomb off the apron to the floor, teasing he was knocked out and teasing a loss via countout. When it was over, with Kobashi winning, nearly every reporter watching it said it was a match of the year. 
Over the match, the card itself was said to be not as good on television. It aired on NTV in a two-and-a-half-hour two edited form starting at 2.30 a.m. that night because television simply couldn't capture the amazing atmosphere of the show and stiffness of the chops. Well, let's talk about that, then, because we have someone here that was there live to, to, to talk about that atmosphere. Keith, I mean, this is 17 years ago now, but I'm pretty sure you, this is still, you know, in your memory pretty good. So what were your memories of this match and the atmosphere and the, and just everything involved here? Uh, well, it was total blast, you know, to watch it, you know, and I think one thing that didn't come up from, like, I rewatched it for this show is that you don't, like, get, like, the crowd stomping their feet for all the near falls, you know, so it doesn't capture what what it was like to be in the crowd. And I think... And, I, it, and, I, and, and I'm sure part of that is because it's in the dome and the acoustics are what they are, so it's kind of hard to hear all of that in a dome where you would hear that better in somewhere like Budokan or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, the, you know, the crowd was red hot throughout this match. They never lost the crowd, you know, and, and particularly like the, the chop exchange, it was like, you know, I think they, they worked it so well with the facial expressions and probably the pacing that, you know, you thought they were going to stop. And then they picked it up again and again, and it just kept popping the crowd each time they did that. So that that was a real blast. I think strike exchanges are often overused in Japan, but this that is what made the match so memorable, was that sequence where they kept chopping the hell out of each other. Because it's those two guys. You know, I mean, that's the... You, if you put just two guys in there that's doing stuff like that, it doesn't get over nearly to the extent of those two guys because that's two of their, I mean, two of their big trademark spots is their chops, and to have them, you know, firing away, you know, kind of like Tenru and stuff like that, you have them firing away with their shots. I mean, that's gonna make that, you know, atmosphere even better because of who it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing, I think Sasaki was at his peak of his stardom in this time period. And, you know, I think he had found himself as a performer with the charisma, which, you know, he didn't have uh, that same confidence when he was, you know, working his way up the ranks in New Japan in the late 90s. Well, Ken, Kensuke, and this was something I was going to bring up too, this is right when Kensuke is going through his major career renaissance in this era because he, I mean, the guy was in world Japan, you know, just two years earlier. But he leaves world Japan, goes back to New Japan, and it's also the same time that him and Hokuto become TV stars. They have a TV show, and that's that's the thing that's the catalyst for him being popular is they have they have a TV show in Japan, and Nakajima becomes involved in that. And they you know adopt him and the, with the rest of their family. 
So they become television stars, and that's what gets him over as a wrestler even more, because he's he's now a, you know a uh, a dual star. Bix, you remember that, don't you? The whole thing with him and Hokuto's TV stars. Oh yeah, I mean, they continue to be TV stars to this day. Yeah, but I, just for perspective too, I just you know was looking on Cage Match to try to get the timeline right. We're only just over a year and a half removed from the Choshu split. Yes. That's how recent this is. And, you know, we've talked about it on this show before. If you were not around for it at the time, you cannot appreciate what it was like to follow along with the Japanese blogs and see the photos and everything and see the transformation of this man becoming a different person away from Ricky Choshu. Yes. Like... <laughs> without knowing someone it is i can't think of a case of any other celebrity where you look back on them and it very become it becomes quick comes obvious very quickly because of how much happier he is that he was not happy previously like it's a stark difference you know all of a sudden now he's just hanging out with his family and they're getting their flu shots together, and but he's just smiling everywhere. When I mean, when did when did you ever see Kensuke Sasaki? At least after his main event run, where he was explicitly Choshu Junior. started. When did you ever see him smile in public? You didn't, right? You didn't. So, it, yeah, totally. It's a, he be, became a totally different person. He was able to cut loose, you know, and. So, uh, Okoto, and you know, this was she having the health problems at that point? No, that was much later. Okay, because I can't remember. But yeah, so so she's not having health problems yet. So so yeah, I mean, they just they were just major television stars. And Kabashi, of course, is in the middle of this great run. Yeah. So and these guys have never faced each other before, and this it was just the, the perfect storm for what this match became. As, as everything involved in the match. Yes. So, uh, yeah, we'll have more on that as we go along when we talk about the match. Let's get back to the show itself. First of all, Morton lived up to the standard of last year's show of the year with a sellout crowd of 52,000 fans announced at 62,000 coming to the Dome. This is the most successful pro wrestling event in Tokyo Dome since New Japan's dual sellouts on October 9th, 2000 and January 4th, 2001 during the first All Japan New Japan program. Headlined by Toshaka Kawada and Kensuke Saki. The show was not sold out in advance as there were a few tickets still available at the door, although no ticket outlet had any tickets the last few days before the show. But unlike last year's show, which had 13,000 free tickets out to take, make a little pack, this year they got to a very strong advance and there was no papering. That's pretty impressive. No papering. The reports that a lot of people down on Pro Wrestling came out of this show bullish, noting that they reached a level with this show and the atmosphere that even Pride hasn't been able to achieve. It left hope for the future of what many see as a dying business and proof that if you consistently give people the great Pro Wrestling product with protected top stars, that the glory days of Japanese Pro Wrestling may not be over. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not so fast. Uh, Kobashi versus Sasaki figured to be the show stealer, but the main event was Mitsuharu Masao against Toshiaki Kawada, the two men who had some of the most legendary battles of pro wrestling history, meaning for the first time in five years. It was their second match at the Tokyo Dome as on May 1st, 1998, in their All Japan days, 
Kawada won the Triple Crown title in its highest profile win of Misawa before nearly full house. While not as good as the Kabashi Sasaki match or all the level of the matches the two had during their prime, it was said to have been an excellent match on its own. After Masao won, Kawada in the dressing room said he was sad after the match, realizing that two of them had lost the past five years of their careers of matches against each other due to political bitterness that they could never get back. Kawada put Masao over, saying he won the rematch, and that Masao was the better man. The finishes were all predictable. There were four outsider acts on the show, free agents, Sasaki, and Tenukurichiro. Kawada from all Japan, who from a contract standpoint is also technically a free agent, and Hiroshi Tanahashi from New Japan. The only winner of those four was Tenru, and he faced someone of nowhere near his star power and one-time protege, Yoshinari Ogawa. All right, Masawa Kawada. And we'll talk about the match more later, but, I mean, Keita, even though Kabashi and Kensuke was the match that, you know, was the match of the year, blah, 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 there was no way in hell they could put that in the main event over Masawa Kawada here. Uh, well, I think Misawa versus Kawada was the only match possible that could follow the the match that Kabashi versus Sasaki put on because of all their history, you know, and it was their you know first and 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 last match in their legendary feud. So it would be their first match for over five years. So you know, it was quite the one-two-two punch, and you know that that is what led six of us Brits to go over to Japan to see you know to see this event was that one-two punch of dream matches that you didn't think you would see. Well, seven Masao Kawada, you didn't think you'd ever probably see that again. You know. Um... But Bix, this sure is a uh, Kawada's statements after that match is very interesting, isn't it? I, I mean, he has one foot out the door at this point. So is anyone really surprised with hindsight? He can't say that. But just the fact, but yeah, but just the fact is Kawada saying political bullshit is the reason why we didn't wrestle each other for five years. Yes. When we could have had great matches, you know, and yeah, I mean. It's sad that it can't, that 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 what happened happened, and those two had a very intense personal rivalry long before but, the split, though, too. Oh yeah, well for years. But the thing is, is it, but here's the thing: you get them away from each other for a long period of time, and that I, you know, that that ice begins to thaw. Yeah, and also just in terms of match quality and the matches they could have had with each other in the intervening years, although. You know, with how Masawa was breaking down, it, they probably would have hit the ceiling on that sooner rather than later. I mean, something to think about. If not for the Gonzo bomb spot fucking up the psychology of the match so much, you can make a strong argument that that January 99 Triple Crown title changed their best match. Yeah. They were not done yet, you know, when the split happened. You know, they still had a lot left they could do. Well, think about the, the Kawada Kabashi matches that we lost, too. Right, because they I were only back. really starting to get going as established top guys, too. So. Now, had there had there been a major Kawada Kabashi since the June 98 title change? No. Because Kawada, I mean, not as far as major, no. I think they did wrestle in a, 
won the champion carnivals. Right, right. But you know, think about but that one. got hurt. Well, yeah, he kept getting hurt, but also, um, where was I going with this? That June '98 match is. I feel like it gets a little more appreciation than it used to, but still, that's maybe one of the most, I don't know if underrated is the right word, because it was widely praised at the time, but historically underrated major All Japan matches, too. Yeah. You know, there's a lot that could have happened that did not, because of the split. And then, you know, at this point, Kawad is realizing he's almost done, and there's a lot that he missed out on. So I I have a question for you both to see if you remember this. So what happened next in the Missoula Kawada relationship? Oh my god! Oh, didn't they tag? No. So what happened was more political bullshit, because I think this is in the this week's Observer, but I think it might have been the week after or shortly thereafter that I think Kawada got heat from Misawa because he he did, like, a promo after the match, which they weren't... Misawa wasn't expecting, and it caused them to overrun the show or something. But I, I always found that story a little strange, um, unless I'm misremembering some of the details, because... You know, he did say something after the match, but it was very short. It was like one minute or so. So, but, you know, again, like, Kawada is trying to make amends here because it would be the best for his career. And, you know, obviously the relationship fell fell apart again because he never wrestled for Noah again until Misawa's second tribute show. After he died, yeah, I don't. There was nothing in the Observer or anything that we got in the notes about anything about that. So that's interesting because I don't. I don't remember that. So, I mean, it's those two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It's those two, and you know, it's just something that I can see that happening. Absolutely. And you know, probably they could have used Kawada as a freelancer particularly after business started to go down, you know, in the, you know, 2006, 2000 well, that's, period. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing, you know, Dave's talking about, you know, this could be the the beginning of something. And I was like, uh, no, because it's not. Because, I mean, Kabashi starts breaking down. And, yeah, it's not, no one starts going down as the decade goes to an end. Just like all the pro wrestling Japan until New Japan, you know, has their big renaissance. I mean, it's it's just that it was the way it was. You couldn't really do anything about it at that time. You need something new. Well, and, there was a big red flag on this show about the future of the Japanese pro wrestling business, which we'll we'll get to later on. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, let's continue then. Masawa's Booker isn't much for surprises, and his success record in recent years speaks for itself by at least having a clear philosophy and, for the most part, sticking to it. But in the top two matches, either Sasaki or Kawada should have won at least one of the matches. The show itself was filled with good to great matches. The only negative was the GHC heavyweight title match, where Takeshi Rikio defended against Hiroshi Tanahashi. 
Tanashi came out wearing his New Japan gear, and Noah fans booed him. There was a lot of Tokyo area New Japan fans at the show also cheering him to win the title. Rikyo was also booed as he's seen as a pretender, similar in many ways to Ronnie Garvin in 1987. As a guy who people liked, but the minute they saw him with the title belt, they turned on him. Fans weren't into the match for the most part. The view from ringside was they had a good match, but it lacked heat. From other parts of the building, there was more booing. From a work standpoint, Tanahashi worked very hard, but Rikyo was not in his league. Coming across a comparison like an average wrestler on a night when average meant bottom of the barrel. Rikyo won in 17-11 after a Muso, vertical suplex to a rock bottom. The only title change was the expected coronation of Kenta as GAC Junior Champion, pinning Yoshinobu Kanemaru in a match given four and a half to four and three quarter stars based on different reports that we got. And some are calling the match of your candidate until a few more matches where nobody was saying it again. Tanashi and Rikyo, I remember this at the time. Um, I know all the New Japan fans were de- over here. They were you know, desperately campaigning for Tanahashi to win the title because of, you know, how was New Japan? He was being treated in New Japan, and thinking maybe maybe he can get the title here and Noah and be able to showcase what he can do. And Rikyo was a lame duck champion at that time. Well, that doesn't happen. And Keith, you—I mean, you're there in the building. Um, what about the atmosphere for this match and how how it was different than uh, the other matches on the show? Well, I think if I'm putting this bluntly, I think at least in the upper deck where I was, this seemed to be treated as the concession stand match or the bathroom break. Like, you know, fans were you know, very disinterested in this match. I mean, Tanahashi did draw booze when he came out for the match, but he worked it, worked the match completely clean babyface. And I think that probably led to a lack of interest because, you know, uh, the Noah fans, you know, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, they, they weren't, weren't seeing Riccio as champion level. And, you know, I don't think they were that interested in, in Tanahashi, you know. So being there live, you know, and, and I think from a booking perspective, you know, I mean, Dave mentions this later, he was saying the same thing, but it would have been completely insane for Noah to put the belt on Tanahashi. Uh, you know, th- this match was booked to assert Noah's promotional dominance again, you know, of New Japan at this point. You know, that was the purpose, you know, and really, you know, I- I'm sort of surprised that New Japan let them do, you know, do that, have Rikyo beat Tanahashi clean because Tanahashi was one of their two rising stars. But the other thing is, is, if you had Tanahashi win the belt here, he would go into the G1 Climax as champion, almost certainly, and would have lost multiple matches. So if they didn't change the booking for the G1 Climax, Tanahashi would have lost to the IWGP champion of the time, Vegeta. He would have lost to Nakamura. He would have lost to Nakanishi. And he would have gone to a 30-minute draw with Toru Yano. So, I mean, you know, Misawa's booking philosophy was always to protect the belts. 
and make them seem important. And putting the belt on Tanahashi here would have, you know, you know would have been silly because, you know, uh, none of those losses in the G1 climax would have led to any like matches for Noah. And also Tanahashi wasn't over enough as an outsider to put the belt on him. Like if you're going to put a belt on an outsider, you should have put it on Suzuki, Minoru Suzuki or Sasaki or Kawada, you know, or, you know, you know, um, someone else as they did in, in Tawei. And I, I think, you know, taking the title off Riccio so soon, even though he shouldn't have been champion, I think you compound the mistake by taking it off him so soon. Uh, and, you know, business was hot at this point, so they didn't need to take the belt off him. Uh, even, you know, with him, you know, being uh, a champion that no one uh, was behind, they still sold out the next two Budokan Hall shows with him as champion. You know, partly because I think fans were rooting for his opponents to take the belt off him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Noah was... By that time, it was people were coming to see Noah because it was Noah, too. So, it, you know, it might not actually matter who you had as champion at that point in time, but that would change. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, um, you know I think once Kabashi started to uh, break down and not put the level of performances and get the cancer, then who who was champion was more key for drawing because you couldn't rely on Kabashi being in a sort of, you know, high profile semi-card, semi-card, semi-final match to draw the crowd, you know, uh, that, you know, Kabashi was their, their big draw. Um, Yeah. You know, one, one thing coming off this show that they didn't do is that if I was Misawa, you know, with the reaction from the Kabashi Sasaki match, I would have done what it took to get Sasaki in as a regular. Uh, so Sasaki, you know, um, was used on a few more major shows over the next six months, but he didn't come in as a regular until 2008 when the bloom was off the rose to a degree with uh, Sasaki as a star. He wasn't quite at the same peak he was here. Yeah. All right. Uh, we didn't get a number of merchandise sales that have been through the roof. In particular, when I saw Kawada merchandise sold like crazy, including new expensive dolls of both men that sold out hours before the show even started. Action figures, Dave. Some other notes from the show were that Bob Sapp, trainer Sam Greco, and K1 promoter Sadaharu Tanagawa came for a meeting with Masawa. K1 was trying to put together a deal for Sap to wrestle Junakayama first and Kobashi later for Fumihiko Yue and Akira Maeda's Wrestle 1, should be Heroes promotion. Sap watched most of the show. He'd never seen Noah before live and so he'd never seen a show like it. Masawa did agree to allow Akiyama to go to the Heroes tournament at uh, Sumo Hall on August the 4th in Tokyo. Maybe it was Russell One. I don't know. Tanagawa Sap proposed a deal where they wanted to put together dream matches where Masao, Akiyama, Kabashi face either Sap or Akabono. 
The problem is that line of thinking is several years too late, and there's no longer a lot of interest in bad pro wrestling featuring celebrity fighters. Getting into this game too deeply for no one end up in the same direction New Japan has gone. Testing it out with a match here or there won't hurt, but they need to limit it greatly and not when to pull it out and know when to pull it out. During the show, we we're working out that Fujita had beaten Tenzon for the for the IWGP title. As a general rule, that news did not go over well with the fans, particularly the New Japan fans. In addition, it was noted there were a lot more kids at this show than any wrestling show anyone could remember, due to the debut of kids character Musha King Terry, played by Kotaro Suzuki. He did a high-flying Lucha Libre style with Black Mask, its kid's character's rival, who's played by Ricky Marvin. The only foreigner on the card. The estimates for that 5,000 more fans were young children, and there had never been anything like that for Japanese pro wrestling since the early 80s heyday of Satoru Sayama's original Tiger Mask. The show itself lasted four hours and 20 minutes, with them saving the expected long matches for later in the show. Yeah, Masawa's not going to go for that deal <laughs> with... With uh, Sapp and those guys, I mean, that's just not what he does. That doesn't that doesn't fit what they do. Though Akibono did work a Budokan Hall show in a tag with Kabashi. On, yeah. Like, um, you know, I think six months later. You know, so but again, it was like Dave was saying that. You know, I mean. You know, it wasn't the over-reliance. And, you know, at that point, Budokan Hall shows were stacked. So, you know, I think it was, you know, I think if it was the January Budokan Hall show, you had your your great matches like Marafuji versus Kenta and Akiyama versus Tawe, the traditional matches that, you know, um, that I think it, didn't turn off the fans because it it was sort of an undercard match uh, that was something a little different and you know it it was just a one-off deal yeah uh the merchandise do did you purchase any merchandise at the show or do you remember the how that was going i mean what about that i think i just bought like a pro a program so which they had these very big programs they they were you know uh that had high quality photos but i didn't buy any t-shirts or anything like that but some of the friends i was with might have bought bought some merchandise themselves i mean i think it, it was like any major show it's like similar to a you know, big WWE show, you know, was, you know, they're, they're selling lots of T-shirts and, you know, uh, concessions, you know, in the sort of, you know, in the area where you enter into the the dome, the seating. Yeah. So, and Mushy King Terry with the kids. Um what did you think about how that played out? Because, I mean, Noah's not known for being a kids wrestling promotion. Well, I think it worked for this card. I'm not sure that there was that many children there. Uh, it seemed like they were, you know, trying to pick out the children in the crowds to, to um, you know, get the character over. 
So I don't I don't think that there was that many young children. I think because I think it was predominantly um, you know male, probably eighteen to forty fans there. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it worked this show because it was the debut and it was the first match on the card that came across as something special, you know, with, you know, the new characters and their managers, you know, and the presentation. Um, but it didn't work long term. You know, I don't I don't think it let you know, it wasn't like this created um, a tiger mask, a new tiger mask, which was probably the idea, or a Rey Mysterio that attracted a lot of fans to Noah. You know, um, so it, it didn't work out long term. And eventually, uh, Kataro Suzuki went back to being Kataro Suzuki. You know, and he, I think he, he perhaps. You know, was working some of the time as Kotaro Suzuki and some of the time as Mushikintari at, at periods as well. Yeah. It was a bit strange how they handled it. Yeah. Yeah, I know the Western fans weren't, uh, they weren't too hot on that gimmick, but it wasn't for them anyway. So there you go. All right. So let's talk about the show. Masashi Oyagi and Takashi Segura team with Sua to beat Shoshikakuchi and Mitsumoto. And Katsuko Nakajima in the opener in 9.32 when Sua pinned Kikuchi after a lariat in the pedigree, a move he does far better than Triple H. <laughs> good, good opener with lots of, fa- lots of fast-paced action. And that would be the FFF, correct? Yeah, the FFF. Which I correct. believe was a remnant of fucking, 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 crazy fucking Max. Yes. <laughs> um, it was. And we... Should probably talk about Ayagi since he just passed away as we were recording this. Yeah, yeah, Masashi Ayagi, who uh, was a regular no at this time, but of course had been a uh, a big time, you know, karate star in Japan and one of the key figures in the beginning of independent wrestling in Japan. Yes, with uh, with FMW, absolutely, and he was kind of having a career renaissance at this time as this. Just fun utility mid card wrestler. Yeah, like, he was a member high Shingun, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, he had been around for a long time, and yeah, just recently passed away. Sad to hear that because uh, he was always entertaining and good worker. So uh, yeah, sad and probably an under, uh, you know, under respected perhaps figure in Japanese wrestling history because his matches with Atsushi Anita uh, were key in you know setting up the FMW promotion that was such a big deal in the early 90s and and those matches are really awesome with Oyagi being the karate expert and Anita being like the traditional pro wrestler and doing sort of a mixed match uh, style. Yes. Yeah. And what makes it extra cool in a way that you don't have from like your New Japan different style fights, as they would call them, is a big part of the draw on those early shows is Oyagi, Oyagi getting all the students from his academy and the affiliate academies. 
and their families to buy tickets. So you have these legit split crowds who think he is legitimately defending the art of karate against the fake pro wrestler who's being cheered on by his pro wrestling fans. Yeah. Well, that that's sort of ironic because uh, I went to a show, uh, Korokun Hall, during this week, which was uh, a, a hybrid show of shoot grappling matches and one or two pro wrestling matches, which was, I think, largely they they sold tickets to um, you know uh, family members and friends of the athletes from the dojos and i can remember you know when the pro wrestling match came on which was like a traditional pro wrestling match you know with like you know high flying and things like that that almost probably half the crowd exited the the uh you know uh Korokun hall at that stage and i remember someone in the front row almost being wiped out by a plancher or somersault plancher like that because they didn't know that they they were supposed to get out of the way of the dives which was uh you know a strange a strange show to 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 watch it was probably wasn't the was the you know perhaps the you know least uh, exciting show i went to in my uh you know uh, week in japan all right, we'll move on here to Takeshi Morishima and Muhammad Yone beating Timon Honda and Go Shiozaki in A26 when Yone pinned Shiozaki at the Muscle Buster. Shiozaki looked very good, and people were into, into this match a lot. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the hot future young stars of uh, of Noah, and he would, uh, of course, um, become a player as time went on, absolutely. Yeah, so and there, later in the year, he's in one of the best Noah matches, you know, up to that point in time and probably still ever where it's uh, him and Kabashi against Sasaki and Nakajima. He, yeah. he, really, he really needed an opponent like Nakajima because I think one of the issues Shizaki had coming up in Noah was that he had no young lion peers. So, you know, um, he just got beat all the time. You know, and he was very good in the underdog role, like like here. He had it, it was a, an excellent undercard performance, but I think it, it you know it probably hurt him, you know, you know, you know, a bit that he didn't have a young rival that he could beat to show that he was like the you know you know one of you know one of the rising stars do you do you know what i mean yeah yeah all right uh masao in a way kishikawa bada akitoshito and shiroko shinaka be akira tawe takumasano juno zamina and haruka egan limp 56 when in a way pin is amina with axe bomber style there yet even this was said to be good because the crowd was in everything they did well these guys these guys were like the cult favorites you know of noah a lot of them they love the the comedy undercard stuff so of course this was going to be over it's, it's more over in a situation like this than other places. So there's that. Then we get Mushy King, Terry, or Black Mask, a 759. Kids were really into this, but the hardcore fans were not. 
They exchange flying moves, even though Black Mask in the game storyline is supposed to be a heel. He worked a lot two babyface against each other. Terry went after a 619 and a German suplex. Then we get Kent to win the junior heavyweight title for the first time in his career by pinning Yoshinobu Kanemaru in 2031. Match is built up for Kanemaru's brain busters, but Kenta kept kicking out and finally scored the pin with a flying knee. Usaiku. After the match, Kenta is challenged to Sua for his first title defense. He also said that he'd like to defend the title against the top junior heavyweights from other promotions and also about getting himself a partner and going out to the former tag, his former tag partner, Namichi Ranfuji and Minoru Suzuki's GHC tag titles. Yeah, it's hard. It's kind of hard to believe that in 2005, Kenta wins the junior title for the first time, but here we are, you know? And it was an awesome match. It, you know, I think, you know, I think Kanemura doesn't get credit for, you know, you know, how good he was as a, as a base, you know, for, for someone like, you know, Kenta Marafuji and, you know, you know, he 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 played a big part in the first Noah Dome show because he beat Liger for the belt, which was maybe a bit of a surprise that Kanemura was the one chosen to beat Liger for the belt rather than say Kenta or Marafuji, who who you know um, were were perhaps seen as being more more exciting in their style, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Kanemaru, I mean, still going today. Lord, we're to AEW <laughs> recently. <laughs> I mean, so he, he's still going. Of course, Kent is still going. And, um, yeah. Yeah, this is a, you know, a big deal at the time for Kent to, to uh, get that get that belt. Absolutely. GHC Tag Titles next. Minoru Suzuki and Namichi Marafuji kept the titles, beating Junakiyama and Makoto Hashi in 2455. This match should be great as well. Had a big storyline as if Akiyama and Hashi didn't win the titles. They could never team up again. Hashi ended up bloody after doing a diving headbutt off the apron on Marafuji. Marafuji ended up pinning Hashi after a Shunoi up the top rope. Yeah, you, know, you put that stipulation in there where Akiyama and Hashi would never be able to team again. I mean, I get, I get it, but yeah. I, I have a slight correction there, which shows how crazy this match was, was that it wasn't a diving headbutt off the apron. It was a diving headbutt off the top rope to the floor on Marafuji uh-huh. in, uh-huh. in the first minute. And this was an incredibly fun match. I mean, I think Hashi had, you know, this was the biggest match of, his career and he gave a career performance as an underdog, you know, you know, sort of taking a beating from, uh, you know, Suzuki and Marafuji who, who gelled really well as a team, you know, in, in, you know, perhaps surprisingly so considering their different styles, but they, they meshed really well together and, and, you know, you know, sort of, did double team type moves uh, that you wouldn't perhaps expect from them. Uh, and, and yeah, Hashi was really great here as the, you know, the underdog baby face showing fire and coming back with headbutts. Uh, and th- so this was a really fun match and, you know, you know, uh, you know, and they had a, a, tough act to follow because Kenta versus Kanemura 
is one of the better junior heavyweight matches of that era. It's probably not at the top, at the right top, but you know, it, it's certainly one of Kenta's great matches of his career. So this was like, you know, uh, you know, which you know put the 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 match afterwards in a very hard position to follow as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, Bix has pulled up the clip here. So there's Hashi up the apron to the floor. Hashi's head's bandage here. And uh Yeah, did he gig or did he open up an old cut or probably probably the latter, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he came into the match with the uh the bandage, yeah. Bandage around his head so it it seems like if it was shoot or not they were obviously wanting to have that as as a storyline in the match and you know at some point suzuki rips off the bandage as you would expect him to do as a sort of prick heel <laughs> well yeah that's what he does yeah, yeah exactly. and, and and this is you know we're in the early stages of the suzuki renaissance here mm-hmm. so Yes, who looks that, almost that exactly the started. same, though. Yeah, he's, he's aged some, but he's aged a little. Face. But he's also in better shape now than he was then. Yeah, there's that too. Um, and as far as you know, uh, like he said about like the camp mystery as a tag team. I generally liked Marafuji's tag team work better when he was with a contra- contrasting partner, like a Suzuki or like a Takeshi Morishima more than I did when he was teaming with someone like Kenta. Yeah. He, he... How do I put this? I think Marufuji was a better heavyweight wrestler in his prime than he was a junior heavyweight. Even when he was still built like a junior heavyweight. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was he, certainly a good, good move to put Marufuji with Suzuki to set him up for that you know, run as a heavyweight. Uh, although, you know, maybe it was a mistake because they sort of went backwards because they wanted to do the, you know, Kenta match as a junior heavyweight that, you know, maybe not doing that match would have actually been better in some respects because, you know, to, to you know, because in some sense he had already graduated to being a heavyweight by being part of this tag team. Yeah. yeah. All right, Rikio and Tanahashi. Takeshi Rikio retained the JC title in 17-11. This is a break from the history, as it may have been the first time a GC heavyweight title match wasn't the main event. Tanahashi worked really hard to try and get the crowd into it. The crowd was so negative on this being a world title match, and Rikio never showed any spark. Tanahashi did three different dives during the match. The first two hit perfectly, and on the third one, he crashed to the guard real hard, breaking his right leg and messing up one of his fingers on his left hand. No word on how long he'll be out of action. Although New Japan has announced that he won't be back this month. They didn't announce that he would be out of the G1 Climax tournament in August, although a broken leg would seem to indicate that doing the tournament wouldn't be possible. Rikyo retained the title with a Muso, which is probably a bad call. Of course, there's politics of putting the belt on someone from another promotion. And with Tanahashi New Japan, he wouldn't be protected as champion like Noah likes. The idea that the champion is a real-world champion that doesn't lose. And with the G1 coming up, Tanahashi isn't going unbeat. The timing in reality just wasn't there for a title change, but they do have to get it off of Rikio. 
we talked about this earlier and yeah, I mean, Tanahashi getting injured definitely uh, made that decision look even better on Masao's part to not change title. Yeah, and with the way the Rikio run had gone, which that's Masao's fault. We've talked about this a little bit before. Rikio was absolutely a good enough wrestler and had been pushed enough to be worth giving a try with the title. The problem was making him the guy who ended Kabashi's reign. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's the resentment. <laughs> yes, and because by the time they took it off him in November, though, with Tawei, Tawei made the most sense to do that big upset. Because after this kind of tepid, bad experiment reign, which again, not Rikyo's fault, you needed something to shake it up, and you couldn't just go back to someone who was in the mix to really shake it up, you needed, you know, this kind of starting to go a little downhill established main eventer in Tawei, and, you know, they had an incredible match, and that title switch might be the single biggest pop in the history of pro wrestling, Noah. Tawei was also really hot the Budokan Hall show beforehand where they set him up in a tag match uh, to be the contender. Yeah. Yeah, they really pop big for Tawei sort of getting the pinfall uh, and that preparing him for for the shot at the next Budokan Hall show. Um, and, and one note about the match, Dave is wrong that he hit the first two dives perfectly. So the first dive was, you know, uh, I guess the best of the bunch, but he still almost overshot Riccio and ended up landing like on the guardrail. Then the second dive, he sort of clipped the uh, ropes and barely hit like Riccio. And then the third one, he he crashed into the guardrail hard again and messed up his leg but it didn't keep him out of action for too long. So I don't think he must have had a broken leg because he did work the G1 Climax tournament the next month. And, and the note, and the real thing I got to say here is, is Dave, this is what, what I'm reading that is Dave getting res, his results from people in Japan because he, he hasn't seen it yet. Yeah. When he do, and, and this is none of those things. Where Dave promised a detailed rundown in the next observer, and you don't get it. I mean, he get, he gives a little bit of a rundown, but there's so much other shit going on that it doesn't happen. So, well, I I was emailing Dave from Japan, so he, uh, this is a, any mistakes here aren't my fault at the time. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I mean, who knows who he's getting information from? But yeah, it's not him. You know, seeing it and and relaying it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. All right. Tenugurichiro. Pen Yoshinaragawa in 10:27. Magno Tokyo came out the second Tenru. Both men used the war special, a double arm lock move popular in the early 90s. Tenru did his brutal kicks and worked just as people would expect. He kept giving him lariats and a brutally stiff match. Ogawa even kicked out the 53 year old jackhammer light move, as well as a normal ice bomb. But was finally pinned after a shotgun lariat. Well, what was it like seeing Tenru live? 
it, it was a, a, a ton of fun, and this really picked up the crowd after the previous match. Um, and yeah, I think I think this match worked really well because Akawa was, you know, you know, you had the storyline of Agawa, you know, being his mentee, and you know, you know, he he also developed into quite the prick. So you know, you know, so you had Agawa mocking his entrance by in the middle of the match by walking up the uh, steps you know because Tenryu needed to use the steps and you know towards the end of the match mocking the the you know punts to the face that Tenryu gives and then Tenryu sort of you know I think regained control with like a jab to the jaw and then just uh killed him with except uh the final lariat wasn't you know, wasn't that strong. So they perhaps should have called an audible and had maybe Tenryu hit the brain buster again or something like that because the finish just felt a little flat because the lariat looked a bit weak at the end. But other than that, it's a really fun match. Yeah. To, to be there live for. Well, at least Tenryu won. <laughs> so at least he... At least... One outsider won on this show. So there you go. <laughs> All right, next we get Kabashi and Kensuke. Kabashi wins 23-38. So Sasaki came out with both wife, Akira Hokuto, and adopted son, Katsuko Nakajima. The crowd reaction when Kabashi came out blew the roof off the dome. They battled mostly hard shots and high-impact suplexes. Both guys' chests were destroyed early on. At one point, after a series of chops, both men collapsed. Kabashi used a brain buster off top rope, half Nelson German suplex, and a brain buster on the apron. The big chop fist came in the 10-minute mark. Lots of chops and lariats back and forth. Saki did a plancha outside the ring as well as a Northern Lights bomb off the apron, where Kabashi laid out on his back until 19. He got up and quickly got in the ring just for 20. Saki used a Tiger suplex and lariat for near falls as well as hard power bomb, a judo ponzi, and got the power strangle in the middle of the ring. Kabashi escaped. Saki tried Northern Lights bomb in the ring, but Kabashi reversed to a brain buster. Kabashi used his usual assortment of half Nelson German suplexes and even a choke suplex. The finish saw Sasaki kick out of a lariat. Kabashi did his once or twice a year moonsault for another near fall. Kabashi used three spinning shots and two more lariats for the pin. Both men hugged after the match, and it was a long standing ovation when it was over. Keith, uh, yeah, I mean, this, uh, this match was an amazing match, as we talked about earlier. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the last great wrestling matches, pro wrestling matches of the 2000s in a way, too, because, like I said, there's, especially Japan, as Japanese pro wrestling just you know took a big dive for the last few years of the decade. Yeah, and it's one of Kabashi's last really, really great matches as well. I think probably the, the other one that's up there would be his... Um, would it be the return from cancer where he yes. had a tag match? Yes. Uh, um, with, I think it it definitely featured Misawa, probably Akiyama, and maybe Sasaki off the top of my head. That was really, or, or maybe it was Takiyama, not Sasaki, but that was really special uh, because of the 
because it was a really great match and it had the story of him coming back from cancer. Um, you know, I, I think this was like almost the perfect match for a dome show because, you know, you know, uh, because Kabashi and Sasaki are, are so charismatic, you know, they worked it, you know, as a big bomb fest. So it's sort of like the epic blockbuster. And I think you need to work big for a dome. And and they they definitely work big. And and re-watching this, I, I'd completely forgotten that the chop fest came so late in the match. And, you know, forgotten like how much like crazy stuff they'd done in the early going in the match, like the you know, the plancher to the outside that uh, that was mentioned there, top row Purakanrana by Sasaki, you know, uh, Kabashi doing a plancher, you know, both men hitting big suplexes at the start of the match. So they really were going balls balls to the wall, you know, for the whole 24 minutes almost. And probably the most awesome spot in the match, other than the chop vest, is, you know, when... Sasaki hit the Northern Lights bomb off the apron. Kabashi sort of crawled back into the ring and it was looked like he would get there at 60, in at 16. And then he sort of collapsed back down, you know, uh, and he, he just got back in at 20. And that, that moment where he collapsed and teased that he was going to be counted out was like, it really shocked the fans and got like a really notable pop. Yeah, so that was really good, really well worked, really good idea, you know, uh, to increase the drama at that point in the match. Oh, absolutely. Bix, what were your memories of this match? I remember liking it, but not being as crazy about the chop battle as everyone else was, but also understanding it's one of those specific ring psychology time and place things where it means so much more in the context of the Tokyo Dome and, you know, Japanese Bushido stuff or whatever that I still appreciated it for what it was, even if, you know, as far as the big Kabashi matches that year, I'd put it behind the tag I'd mentioned earlier and the Joe match that I saw in person. But, but you know, it, it, I don't know if I've watched it since 05, actually. You know, but it, I'm kind of curious to, you know, but it it is absolutely the match those two should have had in that building on that day. I think also, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, it, you know, it probably spoils it a bit that, you know, if you've read a report of the match that you know that they do like a, a big chop fest back and forth for five minutes because part of the drama is not knowing how long they go on for, you know, and, and sort of selling and then, you know, you know it had you know, Kabashi and Sasaki sort of firing back up again when you weren't expecting it, that, you know, know, if you know that's coming, I think that that probably hurts, you know, viewing the match a little bit. I'm trying to remember if I knew, because 
05 is early in the era, I believe, where the, a lot of the major Noah shows were showing up the next day on the wrestling torrent sites, um, when a lot of other Japanese wrestling wasn't. So I want to say that I would have seen this that week. So it's possible I didn't know that the Chop Fest was coming when I watched the match. Okay, so that that probably shows my lack of technological savvy as I <laughs> as I bought my DVDs from uh, one of the people I went with on the the uh, you know uh, uh, trip to Japan. Yeah, uh, was was yeah, this we, person's we initials uh, NB? Uh, well, his first name was uh, N. So okay, yes, okay, yes, okay. We're talking about the same person, yes, yeah, yeah. But, but, pal but, Taper, yes, okay, yes, that's right. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. I won't say his. Yeah, we talk about we we haven't talked about the trip yet. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second after we get doing the Kawada Masawa man. All right, Mr. Masawa Pinto shot Kawada in twenty-seven oh four. They did a stare down early. And followed by hard chops, elbows. Kawada used spin kick, did a half crab. Masao used tiger driver on the floor. They brought backstage. Kawada used power bomb backstage on him. Kawada got him back on the ring. They traded German suplexes. Kawada used a hard insegiri to the face. Followed by a brain buster and a sip looking pile driver. Masao bought another insegiri with his hand, hit a hard elbow, and his emerald frozen. Kawada kicked out. Masao used the release tiger suplex and a tiger driver. But Kawada kicked out again. Masao did two more hard elbows, and Kawada once again kicked out, but, followed a, but a follow-up hard elbow put Kawada down for the count. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't you know, one of the classic matches, but it still was a hell of a match for these two, and their last stand, basically, against each other. So, uh, yeah, fitting into the Noah Tokyo Dome show here. Now, let's talk about your trip. So... This, I mean, that's one thing that at this time, in the mid-2000s, there was a heavy, heavy UK fan base for Noah. And a lot of that was, you know, Adam Swift and his service and uh, Mochatra and, and all that stuff. So talk about the, the scene. Well, that the, Chris, you, you're forgetting a big part. Wrestling well, Channel, brother. Wrestling Channel, yeah. Yeah. So they're on that too. So, so yeah, talk about the Noah fan scene at the time in the UK. Um, yeah, I think so. I think definitely, you know, people, you know, in the UK circles were bigger fans of Noah than the New Japan at the time. And I think part of that is the, uh, the wrestling channel. Uh, and probably part of that is the coverage in Power Slam, you know, magazine of Japanese wrestling, you know. So you had, all, you know, about 10 years at this point of Misawa, Kawada, Tawei, you know, um, Kabashi, you know, being put over as the best wrestlers in the world, you know. So... You know, so, I mean, you know, Power Slam magazine was sort of like a glossy magazine on on the newsstands like PWI, but it was written in more of a fashion where where I think, you know, the idea was, I think, that, you know, it didn't try to break kayfabe for any young children that, 
you know, picked up the magazine, but was, you know, uh, written, you know, in an informed manner that, you know, uh, that older readers could appreciate. So it, it it covered like the real news stories and things like that, you know, and also treated wrestling more as an art form than a shoot, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that really, I think that really becomes a, a a gateway to to the tape trading scene that probably it wasn't as easily accessible in in the United States because you know the the most commonly available mag- magazines kept kayfabe. Yeah, and, and you know, it, again, like I said, you had the wrestling channel and you had this dvd subscription service over there you know it's it it was easier for the the folks in in europe and the uk to get access to japanese wrestling at that time than it was for us well and also new japan pro wrestling also aired on eurosport that's true yeah as well so you know uh in you know that would probably be be earlier so before the wrestling channel yeah so, so but we, they were in, in italy at this time that's the thing too they had their their penetration in italy was beginning big here in the mid-2000s yeah de- yeah definitely so new japan got tv in italy and had you know a boom period for them at a time when you know you know they they were at their almost their rock bottom you know in terms of you know, popularity. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that was uh, interesting. Um, so I, I guess you know how how I ended up going was you know being part in, of the uh, real in Memphis uh, message board. Oh yes, I remember that well. Interesting acronym. You know, uh, I, I probably wasn't the most popular person there. There, you know, when I. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, first signed up for the message board, but um, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know. So I think someone suggested going, and I think it was Rob Edwards. If some people, I I remember Rob Edwards. I I specifically remember the message board thread being titled "Rim in the Dome." Yeah, (laughs) and. I think Rob Edwards never didn't go, even though he suggested it. So, but six Which of us. It's crazy. Yeah, six of us uh, ended up uh, going, you know, uh, and we hadn't met each other before. But I mean, probably the key key person, like in terms of organizing the trip, was Pow Taper, who who was the uh, you know seller of Puro. Puro uh, Wrestling DVDs. Um, he had a website called PuroDVD.com. Uh, so he bought all the tickets, uh, which made everything much smoother, which would have been a real difficulty at that time because tickets weren't as easy to get hold of in the mid 2000s as that, you know, sort of as they would be today, which you could more easily buy online 
tickets today, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a Noah Dome show, but there's all kinds of other stuff going on in Japan. So let's continue. All Japan Pro Wrestling. They only drew a thousand fans to Cork and Hall on July 15th. Even with some interesting matches, including the appearance by Bob Sapp. Sapp was at ringside uh, for a match with Giant Bernard Albert, who faced Sal- Sapp on August 4th for the Wrestle 1 debut show at Sumo Hall against Tayo Kea. Kea juiced, and there was outside influence by Shuji Kondo, Yashi, and Taru on Kea, which gave Bernard the win. Sapp and Bernard had a post match confrontation. Bernard is several inches taller than Sap. Kazushi Miyamoto returned after a long Indies tour to the U.S. to beat Akira Raijin. After the main event, Kijimoto Taijichimori from Dragon Door over Satoshi Kojima and Kazayashi, when Ishimori pinned Hayashi, they did a ceremony for Hashimoto. After the ceremony was over, they did a 10 minute draw in honor of Hashimoto that was unadvertised. With Mudo and Arashi going to a draw with Kojima and Kensuke Sasaki. All right, results of this. Nosawa Mazada over Kikutaro and Psycho, all caps, in your opener. Arashi and Ryuji Jigata over Nobutaka Araya and Nobukazu Arai. Kazushi Miyamoto over Kira Raijin. Jamal and Buchanan over Chuck Palumbo and Johnny Stamboli. John Bernard over Taiokea. Hulu Murders, Taro, Shujikando and Brother Yashi over Kinsuke, Tomoki Homa and Katsuko Nakajima. Mundo and Nishimura over Kojima Hayashi. And then the uh, Hashimoto Memorial match. But the big show of the week was on July 17th at Kanazawa before 17-18, where Taioke and Jamal kept the World Tag Titles, beating Taro and Giant Bernard in 21-03 when Jamal pinned Taro with the Samoan driver. Shuji Kondo and Yashi kept the All-Asian Tag Titles, beating Kazayashi and Nosawa when Yashi pinned Nosawa after a schoolboy. Results of this show, three-way, Mazada over Akira Raijin and Kikotaro. Palumbo and Stamboli over Araya and Harai. Then we had the All-Asian Tag Title match. Muno Narashi over Otakam and Bull Buchanan. Kensuke Hoba Dakajiba over Kojima Miyamoto and Hichikata. And then Kei and Jamal retained the World Tag Titles over Taru and Giant Bernard. All Japan at this time is uh, not doing very hot in attendance, as you can tell. Only a 1,000 at Cork and Hall. Well, I, I was there, and I think Cork and Hall was fuller than that. Uh, unless that's uh, what they announced, that's what Japan announced. <laughs> I mean, it seemed fuller than that. It wasn't like maybe I've been a bit misled by some of the attendance numbers in the past, but yeah, well, yeah, there, there is that. Yeah, it didn't seem it didn't seem that empty. I mean, you know, I mean. Yeah, it wasn't probably fully sold out, but I would say it was probably more than three quarters full. So I, I, I don't know that 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 it seems a bit strange that number, but um, you know, probably a couple of things like from you know being at the show. Um, so one thing that stood out was how much better. Uh, how much better workers Jamal Buchanan, Chuck Palumbo, and Giant Bernard, and even Johnny Stamboli came across in All Japan than they did in WWE. So yeah. uh, that's one thing. Uh, so one thing not noted here. So the trios match between Taru Kondo and Yashi, 
versus Saki Honma and Nakajima. That was really wild. And there was an angle where the voodoo murderers either, I think, attempted to attack Hokuto or, or actually did attack Hokuto at the end of the match. So that, that was really wild. And the Hoshimoto Memorial match, I think, was not announced beforehand. So I think it was a complete surprise to the crowd. And it really, you know, really ended the show on a high note because they they did the memorial match and, you know, ended with Hoshimoto's music. And, you know, I mean, you know, it was a really respectful way to pay tribute to Hoshimoto. Uh, although at that stage in his career, Muto probably shouldn't be working 32 minutes straight, even wow. in a tag match. Though, I mean, his, he, I mean, even so, I mean, his presence and his charisma and his timing, you know, was amazing, even though probably, you know, it got a bit repetitive, you know, it, I'm, I'm sure he must have thrown like a dozen shining wizards during that match or uh, during those matches, or at least it felt like that. Uh, yeah. So just a couple of notes there that, you know, wasn't in the notes from Dave. Yeah. But um, yeah, New Japan, they're going through some things here. That's for sure. All right. All Japan, excuse me. Well, New Japan is too. The big show of the month was July 18th in Sapporo, where they drew a poor crowd and announced at 3,500 at the Sukasame Green Dome on a show that was loaded by company standards. So we're not following the WCW 2000 levels. Between all the hardcore fans, we're took because the hardcore fans of Tokyo Dome, we didn't even hear a real attendance figure. But they're announcing that number is probably more like 2,500, which is just sad. Talks about Fujita winning the IWGP title. This seems to be a doomed idea. Fujita first won a title in 2001 after he beat Mark Kerr and Ken Shamrock in Pride. But that ran in when he tore his Achilles tendon and had to vacate the title. He won it again last year after he destroyed champion Bob Sapp in a shoot fight. And Sapp decided not to return and defend the title, so they basically gave it to Fujita since everyone knew he was the reason why. When it came time to lose it to Kensuke, they did the worst finish in history where Fujita grabbed the choke, went to his back, and was counted out for a pinfall while choking Sasaki out in two minutes of his battle world title change matches they could recall. Shorty Hogan Nash one finger push farce. The other time matches on the show saw Tiger Mask. Tiger Mask 4 keeps his IWGP Junior title, pinning Dick Togo in 1544 after Tiger Suplex. The two feud with each other years ago mentioned Oku Pro. And Minoru Tanaka and Hiroki Goto kept the junior tag titles over El Samurai and Kuchi Kanemoto when Minoru pinned Samurai by tap out, well, beat Samurai by tap out with an arm bar in 2351. The other big match on the show was Tetsumi Fujinami, Osama Nishimura teaming up over Masahiro Chono and Ron Waterman. With Fujinami pinned Chono, which looks to be to get Fujinami up and going as a legitimate threat for the G1 Climax Tournament. After the match, Fujinami said his goal was to get the, under 220 pounds and challenge for the junior heavyweight title. There's the belt that put him on the map in 1978 when he was 24-year-old, but in match wrestling with the Master Square Garden and won the WWF World Junior title from Jose Estrada. In actuality, that belt was created to give him a title to defend because he was so small by the standards of that time, but would be, wouldn't be considered small at all by today's standards. The feeling was they needed to make a junior division to make him a star. 
the G1 be very interesting because even when the rest of the business is bad, G1 usually holds up because of its tradition of having so many great matches in a week. But unless the mission wrestler or somebody big, this year on the paper looks to be all good cards and a lot of good matches, but there's nothing special like in previous years. But the big takeaway here, Bix, is, you know, Dave talking about the Fujinami thing. I mean, that's the reason why there's a junior heavyweight division in Japanese wrestling was to make Tatsumi Fujinami a star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People probably don't realize that. Not anymore. Probably not, no. And it certainly worked. You know, um, you know um, some of those matches, like, you know, I think, I think his match with Dynamite Kid might be better than, you know, some of the matches between Dynamite and Tiger Mask. But that's just my, my opinion. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, New Japan's, uh, they, they having a tough time here. Absolutely. All right, results. Toriyano over Hiroshi Nagao in your opening match. Togi Makabe over Masuyuka Naruse. Mass CTUMZ, Mass CTUL, and Mass CTUJ, and Mass CTUG. Beat Testo Shigoto, Matsuhiro Kakihara, Nao Fumiyamoto, and Yujiro. Then we have the IWGP Junior Tag Tata match where Minoru Nakoto beat Kanemoto and Samurai. Takamatsu match four over Dick Togo. Yuji Nagata, Manabu Nakanishi, and Kendo Kashin over Takashi Azuka, Yutaki Yoshie, and Shinsuke Nakamura. Fujinami Nishimura over Chono and Waterman. And then Fujita over Tenzan to win the title. IS Bex, the mass CTUs. You mean an excuse for Liger to show how jacked he was? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. So um, let's see if anybody can guess who's who's who. Mass CTUMZ. I don't have a clue, to be honest. Yes. I don't, MZ, I don't know. Super Strong Machine. Okay. Mass CTUL. That's Liger. Mass CTUJ. Uh, Jado. And then the next one's Ghetto. Yes. Now, Minoru Tanako's Mass CTUM. Uh, or Mass CTUT. He was actually in both. And Goto was Mass CTUH. So there you go. The CTUs. All right, Tony Anuki this week was saying they were negotiating for New Japan Tour, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Of course. Well, Antonio Noki ahead of the curve uh, from WWE by about 15 years. <laughs> yes. Well, Noki wasn't afraid to uh, deal with shady, shady countries. So there you go. Nor, nor, nor was Vince McMahon. <laughs> no. DDT. Uh, DDT ran Azaka Azea Taisho Hall on July 17th for 257 fans. We have Sayamura Hashi and Kabuki Kid over Daichi Kakamoto and Gorgeous Matsuno. Poison Sawada and Juna Namada over Suichi Chimiya and Futoshi Miwa. Top of the Germanic Three Musketeers, Senjushi Triple Threat, Triple Threats, Triple Threats, Sleds, it says here, hilarious. Uh, Muscle Sakai over Denshoko Dino and Yusuke Inakuma. Kenshin and Riki Senshu over Tomoko Hashimoto and Shujishikawa. Dark Side Hero and Shogo Takagi went to a, a no contest with the Suicide Boys, Mikami and Tanamasaku Toba. And then Havana Guerrero and Rikubano over Sanshiro Takagi and Kota Ibushi in your main event. So, uh, 
DDT here and uh, fix it. Yeah. All right, there we go. Habana Guerrero and Riba Cubano. Any idea who they were? Mm-mm. Okay. <laughs> because uh, Antonio Honda was Habana Guerrero and Dick Togo was Rick Cubano. Okay. So there you go. Dragon Door. Ultimo Dragons Dragon Door promotion debuted on July 19th at Cork and Hall before a legitimate sellout of 1,546 fans. Due to not having his visa in order, Mystico had to stay in Mexico, which really hurt the car. And if that was announced, there were 50 refunds given, which is quite a lot for a niche show in such a small building, which shows Mystico's debut was a real draw. His title shot at Ultimo Guerrero's CML heavyweight title had to be switched to Yoshiro Asai, going as Tiger Mask. Yeah, Asai worked as Tiger Mask. With Guerrero retaining. Asai was supposed to use the Tiger Mask gimmick to learn team of the original, Satoru Sayama. So Grand Hamano was brought in as a replacement. It's a 1982 dream match beating Solar and Ultraman. Not a good match. I, I was there and I, I yeah, I can't remember it, but it doesn't stand didn't stand out as a particularly bad match. You know, I think you've got to remember that you know, Ultraman and Solar uh, and and Hamada were quite old here, so you know you can't really you know rate a nostalgia match like that like you would do perhaps the main event of this show. You know the the standards are a bit different when you when you're in your fifties. Yeah. All right, let's go to the results. And you can talk about the shows, you know, and the issue with there. Street Tiger with Joe Leader was the opening match. Aiken and Souls, Yashi and Shogo Takagi over Jin Station, Zaki and Shijushu Nahashi. The original Tiger Mask, Grand Hamada over uh, Ultraman and Solar. Ultimo Guerrero over the heavyweight title over the Tiger. Then we had a handicap elimination match where Aiken and Souls, Shuji Kondo, Brother Yashi, and Takuya Shigawara defeated Taiji Shimori, Kotobushi, Little Dragon, and Milanito Collection 18 and 27-11, ending with Kondo eliminating Little Dragon and Taichi Shimura to win the match. So what, what, what was this? how was this show? Uh, what did you think about this one? I mean, it, it was really a one-match show in one sense because the main event was a complete blast, uh, as you can probably tell by the, the talent on, on in that match. So, you know, I mean, it was... You know, very much Dragon Gate style, so fast-paced, lots of action. Uh, you know, so that was, you know, really exciting and a blast, and the crowd was really hot for, which, you know, this crowd was, you know, probably lot a lot more female fans, you know, than any of the other other cards we attended. Um, I mean, it was fun seeing, you know, you know, stars like Jinsei Shinzaki and, you know, I think Ultimo Guerrero had, had his working boots on. So that was the CMLL World Light Heavyweight title match. I remember being a good match. Um you know, I think the only thing that other thing that stands out was the opener was that it was a complete spot fest, which the crowd was completely dead for. 
And I think the the finishing move might have been something like a shooting star pressed to the floor, which led to the count out. Yeah, sounds about right with with Extreme Tiger this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, interesting looking show here. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned you know you got the Dragon Gate guys and Ultimo here. We got Dragon Gate. They ran Cork and Hall on July 12th for 2,100 fans. We're having Nuki Dai and Shingo Takagi over Anthony W. Mori and Super Shiza. Super Shiza. Handicap match. Susumu Yokozuka, Kness, and Kirisho Arai over Michael Iwasa, Daniel Mishima, Johnson, Florida, and Jackson, Florida. The Florida Brothers. Don Fuji over BB Hulk. Masaki Mochizuki and Katsuhiko Nakajima over Manu Tokyo and Nuki Tadazaki. Open the Triangle Gate title match. Two out of three falls. Ryo Saito, Dragon Kid, and Genki Horiguchi retained over Shima, Manitou Kishiwada, and Masada Yoshino. And then uh, they had... Um, it's on here twice. So it, 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 this turned to an elimination match where Shima, Kishiwada, and Yoshino uh, won the belts from Saito, Dragon Kid, and Genki Horiguchi in 2159. So there you go. 2100 for uh, Dragon Gate of Cork and Hall, so they're doing good at that time. So there you go. Hustle, June, July 13th, they uh, had a show at Fukuoka featuring a 10 count ceremony for Shin Hashimoto with Shinjiro Atani, Nagawa, and Toshi Kawada heading the ceremony. Ogawa pinned Tadao Yasuda in the main event with the STO. The show drew about 3,200 fans as the Hustle concept has pretty much died at this point. The gimmick is that Ogawa has paid more than a million dollars in taxes, and Yasuda never paid any taxes. And if he won, he'd get money to pay his tax bill. <laughs> they should have brought in Mike Rotunda for this one. Uh, Giant Silva wrestled as King Giraffa, wearing giraffe horns. Mark Coleman runs a pro wrestler with this group that's been winding down because he lost in the second match of the show to Wataru Sakata, who's a natural at it, but Dave guess they figured he took it up to too old an age. Also, the shooter in pro wrestling doesn't matter anymore. And Coleman's shooter rep, the wrestling fans, was hurt when Mirko Crocott really did a number on him. All right, results. We have Hosa Common Red, Hosa Common Blue, Hosa Common Yellow, teaming up to beat Min Taisu, Neo Devil Pedro number one, and Neo Devil Pedro number two. With Torsicata with Mark Coleman, Erica Marguerite, and Leonardo Spanky of Addison Z, Bianca X, or Blanca X, and Monster J. And Chris, remind everyone who Erica is, and Margaret. Well, Erica and Marguerite both are. Um, I'm blanking right at the top of my head right now. That would be Aja and Amazing slash Awesome Kong. Yeah, that's right. Doing their like happy-go-lucky little girls gimmick. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I totally forgot about that. Um, so then we had uh. No one contender match for the Hustle Hardcore Hero title, Royal Rumble, as Hito Akami beat Kasisa Fuji, Monster C, Quick Cook Lee, Red Devil Spider, Ryuji Sai, and Tetsuya Kuroda. That Monster C guy looks familiar, if I remember right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Shinjiro Otani won a handicap match over Yuji Shimada and Silva, number 28. Then Bruno Hercules, King Jirafa, Commander Anjo, and Yinling Sama defeated Toshi Kawada, Taichi Shikari, and Masato Tanaka in a handicap match. And then Naoya Gawa beat Tadao Yasuda in A25. And uh, Yinling Sama, I believe, would be the erotic terrorist Yinling. Uh, yes. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. She of uh, 
the great Muda blew green mist at her crotch, so she gave birth to Akibono, who came out of an egg like it was Jonathan Winters on Mork and Mindy storyline. <laughs> yes, this is uh, it's pretty crazy, folks. Um, so let's go down the list here real quick before we get to the next show. Hustle Common Red was uh, Takoya Shigawara. Hustle Common Blue was... Um, Masashi Okimoto, who would be known as Small Dandy Fuji. Then Hustle Common Yellow was uh, Bear Fakuda, Mango Fakuda. Neo Devil Peril number one was Keisado, which meant Neo Devil Peril number two was Shusado. Um, Arison Z was Ayaka Amada. Blanca X was Shigaya Nagashima. And Monster J was. Um, Sanjay Dutt. Uh, Monster C, Steve Carino. Red Devil Spider, Quesado. Wait, who, <laughs> was Qu- who was Quick Cook Lee? Don't have that. On Don't Gage Match, that. okay. Silva number 28 was uh, Higante Silva. Uh, Bruno Hercules, Don't Know. Um, Commander Anjo, Yoji Anjo. So, um, yeah. There's your uh, mystery people there. All right, now July 15th in Osaka drew about 3,000 fans with Bruno Hercules and Giraffa over Ogawa and his mystery partner who turned out to be Tadao Yasuda. Of course, since this group is boot like Vince Russo and has a profit margin of a 2,000 WCW, <laughs> Anjo, Yoji Anjo doing a transvestite gimmick. Well, no, 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 Chris, this is Anjo, A-N-N, J-O-E, yes. Came out with stacks of bills, and he broke, and the broke Yasuda couldn't resist. So he turned on Ogawa and hit him with a chair, causing him to get pinned. After the show, they did a big angle where Hustle K, Toshikawa, challenged Nobuhiko Takada. That's General Takada. Uh, Generalissimo Takada, actually. Ogawa then came out with former New Japan president Masakazu Kusama, and Ogawa said he wanted Kusama as the man in charge. <laughs> I just want to clarify, I don't think Rizzo could come up with shit this good. <laughs> and and uh, bringing out Kusama is uh, after Pix's heart. Oh, so there you go. Uh, the Wait, Rangers, what was Kusama's deal? He was one of the Nietzsche fan presidents, Bix. I know you love Nietzsche fan presidents, like Nagashima and uh, Director UA and all that. Well, so no, my, my heart belongs to Director UA. Yes. He's the only uh, one I also, care about. <laughs> Hustle Rangers beat Kidada Lowe, don't know who that is, and the Dart Von Maestros, don't know who they are either. Aris and Z, Blanca X, and Commander Anjo over Erica Marguerite and Ryuji Sai. Red Devil Spider and Monster C over Taro Sakata and Mark Coleman. Ishikara, Kuroda, Spanky, and Kasuzu Fuji over Gigante Silva, Quick Quick Lee, and Piranha Monster Omega, and Monster J. <laughs> Then the Hustle Hardcore Hero title, Masato Tanaka retained over Hito Akami. Bruno Hercules, Sadayu Student, King Jirafa over there, got in a handicap match. And then Yinling, Fujin, and Raijin um, went to no contest with uh, Kawada and Otani in a handicap match. Hustle confused the shit out of me <laughs> when, I was doing, when I was doing the new stuff, and I wouldn't even – I didn't even really report on it. <laughs> I, didn't, I mean, uh, it, people were into it, but – I just, I never got into it. Imagine yeah. the Japanese wrestling reporters who had to work out what was going on in WCW when Vince Rizzo was booking. They probably shared your pain. 
Yeah. <laughs> I also in, in Chikara were the two that was uh, I avoided. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also had other reasons for avoiding Chikara. Yeah, that's true. Um, Which I was vindicated for later, but yes. It took almost 20 years, but... Yeah, well, well, we you know, let, let's just see if we knew that uh, someone may or not have been inappropriate with students long before anyone else did, just <laughs> on the DL. Um, but at the time, it was less of a, it, it was less of a, it was less that, and it was more just he cheated on his girlfriend. Well, that wasn't really the thing with me. I mean, he's just a douchebag. Well, yeah, <laughs> that was the main thing with me. Well, uh, yes, of course he was. But anyway, um. I did like the earlier Hustle shows where it was more just the big one-offs. Because those those were just weird and could be fun and occasionally have good wrestling. But yeah, I just lost track of it and wasn't as interested once it became something resembling a full-time promotion. Yeah. All right, I mentioned Uncle Pro Wrestling. And what a wild story we have here. Grace Oscar ended up getting more embarrassing publicity on July 13th in WWE. Virtually all of the major media outlets in Japan ran with a story about Sasuke, who was a member of the assembly of his native Iwate, spending taxpayers' money to travel to one of his pro wrestling matches. It was actually only a $91 bill for a bullet train ride from the government office in Ninue to Akita on October 16th of the previous year for Michinoku Pro Show that was charged to the assembly with Sasuke claiming, under, claiming it under policy research funds. Part of the reason this guy so much play is that Sasuke goes to all of his assembly meetings in his pro wrestling mask because his constituency constituency voted him as in as great Sasuke. And there have been plenty of controversy from people who thought that was disrespectful to his elected office since the start of his term. Well, if he's voted in as Sasuke, he's got to be Sasuke. <laughs> not, not Masa Michinoku. All right. All right. The results from their show at Yahaba on July 17th. Well, also, that's not even his real name, Chris. Well, Masa Mishinoku is not his real name. That was his first gimmick name. It's uh, Masanori Murakawa. I know, but I just want I know him as Masa Michinoku. Well, or, oh, if, or if you're uh, Sheldon Goldberg trying to send him a summons for the money he owes you, he's Masahiro Chono when he signs it to try to get out of it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, Jin Seishinzaki and Mango Fakuda over Grace Sasuke and Kei Sato. They have the, an Iron Man tournament. Shu Sato over Danamai Tohoku. Kakatora over Shinao. Fanapa Hanai over Garuda. Gamma over Gaina. Kisa Numajiro over Takeshi Minamino. And Shinjishu Nohashi over Rase. Your main event. So there's Michinoku okay. Pro. Wait, remind me. Which one is El Blazer Yoshitsune? Is that Rase or is that Chanel? What was that again? El Blazer Yoshitsune, that, that guy. Which one is he on this card? Is that Chanel or Rase? I think that's Chanel, right? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember all of them. I got to uh, look all that up. Takayashugi. Oh, so, yeah. There's so many different gimmicks on this show. Okay, Takayashugi right. is Chanel. Yeah. Gaina was a Kazuya Yuasa. Um Garuda was Tomokazu Marita. Uh Kagetora was um Kagetora. I mean 
Kagatora, basically. That was his main gimmick. Um, Rossi was um, Masaki Okimoto, who we just talked about, small Danny Fuji. And of course, you said Chanel. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of different gimmicks at this time. I mentioned Okupra. Yeah. The guys. It really is most confusing, though, with the Toramon X guys. Yes. All those guys had tons of different gimmicks. Yes. Oh, and by the way, for the record, just on the ProRes Pro system wiki, here's the number of different gimmicks that Takai Shiki had. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, I think. Wow. All right, Osaka Pro. Osaka Festival Gate on July 16th, front of 229. We have La Uchida over Atsushi Kotogi. Three-way, Super Dolphin over Billy Kin Kid and Ice Penguin. Yes. Toro Owashi and Black Buffalo went to a no contest with Subasa and Takaku Fuke. Osaka Taka Festival quarterfinal match. Super Dolphin and Tiger's Mask over Dagoro Kishiwa and Tepe Ishizaka, and then Hideyoshi and Masimune in a quarterfinals match over Kuchimbo Kamen and Ebison number two. Now, well, speaking of us... Go, yeah, go ahead, Keith. Go ahead. I, I have the bonus results for you, you know, uh, for a show Osaka Pro did the next day, which I attended. So, you know, so I'm going to surprise Chris and Vix here with the lineup of that show. That so, was Corican, you said, off the air, right? Yeah. Korokun Hall. So apparently the attendance was 1,051, but there was less people there than uh, the old Japan show. So make of that what you will. Uh, so we had in the opener, we had the same opener, La Uchida defeats Asushi Katogi. And then we had uh, Hideyoshi defeats Tiger's Mask. And then we had, now this was quite the match, we had an MWF World Junior Heavyweight title match where the champion, Kabuto Beetle, defeated Onryu. Then a six-man tag team match with Eberson, Fuka, and Takaku Fukei defeating Haruka Matsuo, Kushinbo Kamen, and Super Delphin. And then a main event of Billy Kenkid, Super Dolphin and Subasa defeating Black Buffalo, Masamuni, and Toru Awashi. There you go. So, would you would you have liked to have uh, attended that show, uh, Chris? Yeah, I'm sure it was a fun show. Soccer Pro was always fun. Yeah, it didn't outstay its welcome, so it's like a nice, you know, two hour show. Um, you know. Lots of fun comedy in the semi-final match, and you know an exciting main event. And, yeah, uh, it was interesting seeing seeing you know you know uh, you know the the gimmick characters like doing handshakes before the match you know for their championship match <laughs> you know they had this uh, you know champion dressed up as a beetle. Yeah, uh, did they do the? thing where they shake hands with the fans or at ringside and stuff after like they would back home in Osaka or or no? I don't think that they did, but that might be my memory. You know, so it, they might have done that, but I can't remember it. And speaking of Osaka Pro, former Osaka Pro referee, uh, Yukino Masui is putting together a rival group to Osaka Pro in Osaka called Bakuri Pro Wrestling. 
He's going to use all the talent that left Osaka Pro over money, which includes Takahiro Murahama, Kikutaro, the former Ebison, Manitou Kishiwada, the former Big Boss Magma, and Gamma. And they, they do, that does happen. They do run in opposition for a little while against Osaka Pro. So uh, there's that. Yeah. All right. And- and didn't Okinawa Pro open not long after this as an Osaka, Osaka Pro affiliate, too? It's around later, oh, it's yeah. Around. Okay. So one, one last bonus uh, results uh, that, that wasn't covered in the Observer or, or Chris and Dixon's newsletters, which I went to. So this was, I think, a big Japan pro wrestling spin-off called Dreaming Project T, that was in Tokyo Shinkiba first ring, uh, which was a full attendance of apparently 280 fans. So this was the lineup for that show. So we'll we'll see if uh, Bix and Chris recognize the names. So we had in the opener, Dunchoko Dino beating Lingerie Muta. Well, they wrestled each other many times. (laughs) Quite the opener. Yes, and I saw Lingerie Mudo myself uh, four years ago in New Orleans at the Kaiju show because, uh, what's his face? Why am I forgetting his real name all of a sudden? Uh, Minoru Sawa was one of the imports on the WWN shows that week. Yeah, so I I wouldn't have thought he would still be going, but that's interesting. So then we had uh, a trios match between Takahiro Tanaka, Hideki Shioda, and Ken Murakami beating Space Power, Kazuhiro Tamura, and Ayori Sugawara. Uh, Then we had an elimination eight-people tag match uh, between Grim Rai, Gintaro, A. Cougars, and Masanori Ishikura, beating Gamma Keikid, Diyuki, and Kawasaki Fuma. I presume Uh, A. Cougar is Asian Cougar? I would think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. It's just the uh, translation has truncated its uh, their name. So I just have the initial here. Yeah. Then I have uh, Daiko Kubo Benkai and DJ Nira beating Kikataro and Tani Taro. Uh, <laughs> the next match was a Blast Live, which was a super hardcore tag match between uh, Bad Boy Hido and Takashi Sasaki beating Tomoeki Honma and the Winger. That sounds like a hell mm-hmm. of a match. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that was really, you know, like they, you know, being like so close and personal for a hardcore match where they're you know, sort of smashing tables in front of each other is quite something. And the main event was also quite something too as we had uh, a special dreaming six-man tag match with Kintsuki Sasaki, Jun Kasai and Katsuhiko Nakajima beating Daisuke Sekimoto, Men's Teo and Katsumasu Inui. And apparently this was Sekimoto's first match with Sasaki and Nakajima. I'm just finding it fascinating how many wrestlers on this show I've seen live. Because <laughs> I've seen Kikataro, I've seen Sakamoto, I've seen Lingerie Mudo. Was that it? I feel like there's one more I might be forgetting. But <sighs> interesting. I saw, Ken, I saw Kensuke <laughs> many times. Yeah, I don't think. I, yeah, I never saw Kensuke live. He never did ROH, right? 
Well, he did WCW. No, but I mean for me. Oh, I don't know. No, he didn't. Ring of Honor. Yeah. Listen, but, I just I just seen him at WCW. One 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 comment from my friend Power Taper, so that on YouTube you can find clips of the main event that he recorded. So he said, I filmed this at Ringside and it was perhaps the best show I've ever seen live. Yes, even better than Noah at the Tokyo Dome show two days later. And while I might not go as far as that, there is something seeing, you know, seeing wrestling in such an intimate setting with, you know, the the strikes being up front. So you really get to see the, I guess, the grittiness and everything of what's going on. And it was notable that Sasaki was having a blast you know, sort of working the main event. That's something that really stands out from that show as well. Oh yeah, well, he was he was having fun all the way around in wrestling at that time period. So, and yeah, it is a different experience just to see that style of match up close. Whether you know, like even you know, for me as someone who's never been to Japan, but still, you know, saw Joe Kabashi from the third row, saw. You know, uh, Sekimoto versus Eddie Kingston from the third row, stuff like that. You know, it, it, you feel it is the best way to put it. You know, exactly. Yeah, definitely. And this is your age of time, as uh, we have some England to talk about. And great, we keep being on the show. And we go to Figure Four Weekly for this information. Frontier Wrestling Alliance, which is the most talked about promotion in the UK, has run into difficulties now. That Alex Shane. The guy who had basically been in charge of everything has stepped down from the management side. He's still working there and is their top singles champion, but a new booking committee has been put in place. The main issue is that he was the backer of everything. He paid for all the major talent that was brought in over the years, like Christopher Daniels, AJ Styles, and Loki, and all the promotion. And in the process, ran up a lot of credit card debt. The new committee claims they're going to work to bring the promotion back to how it was during the glory years, but many believe it won't last a year. And they also lost their TV on the wrestling channel. All right, Keith, I'm, I'm pretty sure you have a lot to say about this, probably. So, uh, yeah, talk about Alex Shane. I, well, I, I I thought that was interesting phrasing. Like, who who told Dave, I presume? This is Brian. Oh, this is Brian. So, I, I, so I, I was just interesting in the phrasing of how, you know, the starting of that, it seems like everything has gone to shit because Alex Shane is no longer involved. And then it turns out that, you know, uh, you know, that actually, you know, obviously he didn't run the promotion that well in the sense that he ended up with a lot of credit card debt. And I think one of the issues here is that I think the FWA had some, you know, successful shows, big shows in, you know, arenas like Your Call. I think the biggest show was a dual show with Ring of Honor, you know, which I hope were, I presume were profitable. You know, it was, you know, but, you know, they they still brought in like these indie talent for smaller shows that probably drew a few hundred fans. So, you know, I question whether that, that you know, uh, you know, whether it's worth it bringing talent over from overseas for shows that are drawing only a few hundred fans. You know, so I'm not surprised that, 
you know, in the end, you know, this, you know, promotion didn't pan out uh, because, you know, indie wrestling wasn't as hot in the mid 2000s as it would be in, you know, probably 10, 12 years later with, you know, the the talent that was on the British scene, like Osprey and Zack Sabre Jr. and Marty Skrull uh, and others. Um, Zach Gibson. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, there's plenty more that I'm forgetting forgetting Travis Banks and people like that. Well, it's fine to forget Travis Banks. Well, there's a lot we want to forget about from that period of wrestling, you know, yes. uh, unfortunately. Um, so I guess, you know, I think what, what happened with the FWA is that they tried running in Morecambe. So they made Morecambe that you know, an arena there, their sort of home. And, you know, they probably kept running for another 12 to 15 months. But, you know, it did last a little longer than than what was predicted. But it, you know, eventually uh, closed down. And I think they tried to bring back the promotion, you know, a few years later. But, again, it didn't, didn't take off. Yes. And yeah, I'm looking. It's like the, the imports really start to dry up around this time, you know, whereas uh, they had done the show that they kind of build as being in conjunction. Oh, no, they build it as Noah Limits uh, in June in, in Morecambe, where they had uh, Suzuki and Marafuji defending the GHC tag titles against Doug Williams and Two Cold Scorpio. No, excuse me. That's where they won the titles. Yeah, actually. Well, we talked so, about that on a previous show. Yeah. So, do you know why why it was called Noah Limits? Was well, one of the that. previous show called No Limit? Well, there's a famous song in the you know in the UK that goes, "No, no, there's no limit." I guess. So, I guess it was named after that song. Ah, uh, okay. It was popular in the early '90s, I guess. <laughs> so a bit of a British cultural reference there. Uh-huh. Uh, by a band called Too Unlimited. Is this like when we learned about Mr. Blobby? <laughs> not not quite as embarrassing as that. No. <laughs> well, they I mean FWA was a big deal yeah. you know, for a while there. And uh yeah, once the once Everything started running out money-wise and not bringing in the big-name uh, Americans, then, yeah, this shelf life went away. All right, well, that's it for the first half of the show. It's halftime. So after some 2005 commercials, I don't know if I can shoot them great or not, we'll come back and we'll talk about Patreon, we'll hit the plugs, and then me and Pix will come back. And talk about uh, Lucha going on as we have a firing at AAA. We got uh, some big shows in CML to talk about. And uh, we got some Puerto Rico stuff, including one of the most Ballyhooed promotions, starter promotions of the 2000s, doesn't even run the first show. All that more after the break. 
It was a hot and sunny day. I was looking for something portable to take to the lake, so I headed over to the gang at Falconer Electronics. They knew what I wanted, something hot but cool. They had handheld radios, digital cameras, pocket TVs, cell phones, even weather radios to check the forecast. They even had two-way radios for the Rugrats over at the amusement park. Yeah, they still had the batteries, cables, and hookups that I needed, but those mugs keep proving they're the experts in gadgets. Go see them when you want to save some moolah on your next gadget. Falconer Electronics, you never look so smart for less. Ready for the big show? Let's get it started. The adventure. Come out and grab that dog. Unleash the laughs. Give me my pants back. Oh, it's a wedgie. No. Uh. And unleash the fun because of Win Dixie on DVD August 9th. All right now, it's the big yellow taste of Kellogg's Corn Pops, as portrayed by a music video. Yeah. Yeah. Pop sweet glaze goes bling like my ring that sweet puffed crunch is tight like my limousine so yellow and delicious are you feeling ambitious for a taste that's so large the cereal superstar it's a pop sweet crunchy bling bling the cereal is the dealio big yellow taste sweet puffed crunch part of this complete breakfast gotta have my pops imagine if everything were made by Willy Wonka. Everything is eatable. Wanna bring home the imagination of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? There are lots of ways with Wonka candy, like Wonka Bar and Nerds and Sweethearts, and especially new double chocolate Wonka Donuts. It'll be delicious. There's a golden opportunity waiting for you at Wonka.com, but ask your parents first. Winx Club now returns on Goozy. Adventures of Billy and Mandy at 8.30 and 11. Bring it! 
Oh, and to celebrate that smile, Tommy and Tara display the fine art of body language. Chili dog, chili dog. And it's all here on Fridays, tonight, starting at 7. Right here on Cartoon Network. This Sunday on the Life and Times of Juniper Lee, June takes a break from magic to attend drama camp. Clang, 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 went, thank you. I'm seeing. Thank you. But not everyone is observing the holiday. It's Edipan, you idiot! You're supposed to be on vacation! I don't observe Edipan. It's not crazy about Labor Day either. It's the life and times of Juniper Lee. Catch a new episode Sunday at 7.30, only on Cartoon Summer. All right, we're back. I mean, John's great 2005 commercials. Those are 50 and a half times some of the show. And we're going to try and make this kind of short since we got such a long show. But anyway, patreon.com slash between the sheets. Five dollars a month. Go there and get all the audio that we've got on that Patreon. And uh, six, almost six complete years of the Patreon. Of course, we're winding down the Titan Gate series. The last part will be coming at the end of this month. Part four of Titan Gate 92. So uh, we're moving on to something else, which we'll get into on that show. So yeah, five dollars a month. Get you access to all the audio that we've done on the Patreon. So do that, please. Dollar Month gets you access to the Discord and Thanks Nest segment, which we'll do in just a second. $25 lets you pick a show for the week. You know, we're in the middle of a three three week Patreon run. Last week was that twenty five dollars that Sean Dickinson put up. So you put twenty five dollars down and you get it get us to do a show for you. And you know, have two shows in your mind. Always you know get with us if you have questions. Whether it's a show that we can't do because we've already done, or a week that somebody's may has already picked, and follow the other rules that we always talk about, and you, we should be good to go in that regard. Fifty, let's for a segment, which Danny Cooper will do next week, and a hundred for the whole show, like Keith Harris is doing this week. Other than a couple of sections which he was not going to be a part of anyway. So uh, do all that, and you'll be able to be a part of us on uh, between the sheets. All right, so new patrons, Bix. Who I think this week is our new and or returning patrons. All right, we would like to thank uh, Daniel Hoey. Thanks, Daniel. Colby Sikowski. Thanks, Colby. Travis Bain. Thanks, Travis. Not that one. <laughs> uh, annual subscription from Tim Ostrander. Thanks, Tim. Christopher DeMar is guessing no re- relation to the Rousey family. Thanks, Christopher. Gary with two R's. Thanks, Gary with two R's. Brian Moran. Thanks, Brian. Anthony Ardolino. Thanks, Anthony. Andrew Swope. Thanks, Andrew. Daniel Cookler. Oh, they'll be on this week. Thanks, Danny. Jeremy Landry. Thanks, Jeremy. And an annual subscription from Twitter's own at Not Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Yes. Yes. A good man. Uh, Not Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Good man. Great Twitter follow. So thank you, Steve. And uh, I guess I was just going to say, long time listener. And, you know, remember uh, the story from from SEI 2017 where he saw me talking to Chris Wilcox and referring to Miss Chris and thought he was you? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I think that's 2018. No, I think that was 2017. It was one of them. Yeah. But anyway. But yes, uh, thanks, Steve. And uh, yeah, we thank all of you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that's coming on the way. 
patrons that have been there from the beginning. We thank all of you for being with us at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, IWTV picks. Uh, let's not go crazy here. Anything catching your eyes? Uh, a few things. Not much new on the on demand besides the recent live streams. Uh, Uncharted Territory, the premieres, uh, you know, not premieres, streams live Monday night, you know, day this goes up. Some interesting stuff on there. The first ever Choo Choo Rumble. Choo Choo Rumble. Oh, I love yeah. it. It's because it's in Chattanooga. Home yeah. of the Chattanooga Choo Choo. Yes, other matches. Choo Choo. Yes, I know. That's the idea. Other matches announced so far include Adam Priest, Anthony Henry, Tank, Terry Morton, and Bojack versus Kevin Koo. So, interesting looking show on there. Uh, also on Monday night, H2O has Monday Night Death Volume 2. Uh-huh. Which has a, what is this? A Hustle and War Cage match, which I guess is a War Games. Um, and also... There, you know, one of the more interesting matches on here, uh, Matt Tremont versus Sawyer Wreck. So, you are a fan of the New Jersey deathmatch scene. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, it's a weekend ending in a day ending in Y. So, of course, there are multiple ICW No Holds Barred shows. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. It, this is with them in Chattanooga. Uh, Reed Bentley, Casey Kirk. Danny DeManto taking on front of the show, Jaden Newman, Kevin Koo, Akira. This is a pit fighter show in the MMA cage, which explains why Koo is on that one. And more... Wait, which night was that? I didn't say. That is... That's Friday night. Then... Oh, there's also a prestige show, Friday night at 10 Eastern, 7 Pacific. Headlined by Kanosuke Takeshita versus Kevin Blackwood. Also featuring Alan Angels versus Frankie Kazarian. Hopefully he'll win that match. <laughs> uh, what else is on here? ACH versus Ethan H. I almost said HD, like it was like I'm Regal. Ethan HD, Triple H. Yes, H. and uh, oh, AIW Absolution, fifteen Saturday night from our friends over there. Headlined wow. by yeah, Derek Dillinger versus Tasha Bishop for the vacant Absolute Intense title. PME defending the tag titles against Bulking Season. Our dear friend Dominic Garini in a submit or surrender dog collar match against Casey Carrington. PB Smooth versus Isaiah Broner and more. So that's what's coming up on the live streams this week. Oh, and they're up. I missed the other ICW show somehow. Uh, that's Saturday night and includes uh, Cruel versus Tank and Casey Kirk versus Eric Ryan, among other matches. So. IWTV, if you're not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD. And as long as you stay a paid subscriber, uh, we get a referral fee for as long as you stay a paid subscriber. I know that ended up being redundant based on the way I said it. And uh, I didn't department act- or redundancy department. Yes, exactly. I didn't show you this yet, but uh, we did just get our Q2 payout, and it was our record high. Oh, that's great. So uh, let's continue that, shall we? Let's make it higher for Q3. All right. Well, another way to support this show is private internet access. And today's episode between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. But private internet access can help. Private 
Internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked. Get this, folks. It was just ranked the fastest damn VPN on the planet. Number one by PC Mag. And if you sign up with private internet access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's talk about that deal, shall we? You start out with a monthly plan. You get it for eleven ninety five a month if you want to go that route. If you want to go yearly, you can get it for $3.33 a month or $39.95 a year. Or the best deal of all, 83% off. Three years plus four free months, $1.98 a month, or $79 for three years. What a bargain. Amazing. That's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, you can take Private Internet Access's 30-day risk-free challenge. You can try it out for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just return it for a full refund. So... Go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk free. Next week on Between the Sheets, a show requested by Danny, Danny Kukler, and he'll be on for the WWE segment as uh, he was there at a show during our week. As uh, we go back to 2008, and this actually is our very first 2008 show. How about that, folks? So on 2008, during our week, we have the Great American Bash pay-per-view to talk about WWE. So there's that. I was there. What? You were at that show. And then we'll have Raw and SmackDown, which Danny was at SmackDown, which is in Philadelphia. So we'll have two different live perspectives. So we'll have uh, all that stuff. Plus we have WWE ECW stuff. Uh, Florida Championship Wrestling is getting going. So we'll have news on that. We got all the, the Japanese wrestling. And there's a lot of that. A lot of names that are familiar to you uh, starting to make their hay in Japanese wrestling and on the indie scene. So we'll be talking about that, Lucha, all that stuff. We've got total nonstop action, Impact pay-per-view. Uh, I mean, Impact, not pay-per-view. And then we got a wild story involving the Sandman at Captain Lou Albano's 75th birthday party. And yes, we will have a clip. But actually, there's one thing I didn't mention in the, in the big plug at the end of the show. That I didn't think about until after the fact, but next week will mark seven full years of Between the Sheets. Now is Our that seven and sixty-fourth show? Now with the week that we skipped, that wouldn't be seven no. years to the day, though, right? No, it's our seven. Yes, the seven full years show. Yes. So yeah, yeah. We, I mean, our seventh anniversary is actually basically this week in a way, yeah. but. No, the um, the 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 show next week is our se- the uh, end of seven years. Actually, uh, no, next week is both because actually, like like episode one, it's twentieth to twenty sixth. Well, how about that? Well, there you go. So it ended up working out. I forget how we did. We that. come around. For oh, because we did the double weeks and stuff too. I wonder if that maybe. I don't know. Yeah, anyway, that may have helped. But anyway, but yeah. So there you go. <laughs> seven full years, our seventh anniversary, 
and we'll begin eight, the eighth year the week after that. So yeah. what a way to spend this all about 2008 wrestling, huh? Yeah, and then we have uh, six years of the Patreon coming in October, I believe it is, right? Yes, yes, six full years of that. So everybody listen next week to Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper APT Sheets Pod, Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on in your world this week? I'll have something coming up this week at FanBite, I think. But I haven't gotten started on it yet, so whatever. We'll talk about it next time. Yes. And uh, yeah, and there, and there are things actually in the uh, ether too that uh, could be coming soon. So, well, I don't know how soon, but there's there's doings transpiring. Yes. Yes. So uh, I think people will be interested to uh, hear about that when the time comes. Believe. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for us in this segment. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to Mexico now, and we begin with Triple R. And Antonio Pena fired Zumbido this past week. He was arrested in front of fans at a show after one of his ex-wives filed charges of spousal abuse. If I remember right, this was him hitting her while he, she was holding the baby? Yes. Um, yes. Wasn't it also that he thought she had his cocaine? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, not good. Yeah. No. No. I mean, a lot of a lot of luchadors have have issues. <laughs> well, if you're gonna pattern your bumping style after Jerry Estrada, yeah. I mean, then you're patterning yeah. your life after Jerry Estrada. I mean, I, that never hit me before, but. <sighs> You can make some comparisons between Dynamite and ben, the Dynamite Benoit dynamic and Jerry Estrada and Zumbido if you really want to stretch it. Yeah, yeah, I mean ex- exactly. But Zumbido, I mean, it's just he's now in AAA. He's probably getting the biggest push of his life. You know, with, with Sh- Shocker and Scorpio Juniors, Los Guapos there. You know, and then this happens. You know, for all those years that he just he never was able to get the big push in CMLL. And then this happens when he's getting the big push. Just terrible timing for all this to happen. But yeah, this this is a thing, and he he paid for it. I mean, he he was relegated to working, you know, some real shitty indies for a while until he was able to work his way back up the scene again. But yeah, <laughs> this was a big deal at the time. So ye. All right, TV taping. Arena Carrasco Monterrey on July 17th. We have the Hechiceros over Chuy Escobedo Jr. and Dark Side. Estrella Dorada Jr., Maje Negro Jr., and Vaquero Romo went up against Incognito, Picudo, and Sangre Chicana Jr. And Incognito is the other Sincara, Junico, the original Mystico. Then we have uh, Cynthia Moreno and Oriental going to a draw with Granapachi and La Diabolica in a match for the AAA Mixed Tag Titles. Antifaz, Del Norte, La Parca Jr., Notegon over Chessman, Sangre Chicana, and Zumbido. And uh, Sexy Francis beat Pipinella Escarada in a Valle Tudo street fight. And then we have Latin Lover and Vampiro over Cibaretico and Hator in their main event. So there's your AAA TV taping for the week. And by CMLN, the, yeah, I was going to say, by ahead. the way, in case anyone might confuse them, 
Chewie Escobedo Jr., the son of Chewie Escobedo Sr., not to be confused with La Parca Jr., Chewie Escoboza. Yes. Felt like I should point that out just in case. Because I made that mistake once somehow, despite Chewie Escobedo not being a particularly notable luchador. No, he was just a Monterey local. All right, CMLO, we have a few shows here. Arena Mexico in July the 12th. Espirito Guerrero and Carisma over Artillero and Porvova. Then we have Starman, Io de Tejano, and Tony Rivera over Arcana de la Muerte, Dr. X and Veneno. Metro, Sagrado, and Virus over Nitro. Risuke Taguchi and Shigeo Kimura by disqualification. Io de Perov, Olimpico, and Ultimo Guerrero over Dos Caras Jr., Liz Mark, and Satanico by disqualification. And Blue Panther and Mystico over Evero and Mephisto in the main event. Then we, the big Friday show at Arena Mexico was the Torneo de Leyenda de Azul. The big tournament for the uh, Blue Damon trophy here. Uh, opening match with non-tournament match. A couple of them here. Espiritito and Fire over Bam Bam and Fantasy. Amapala and Dark Angel over Lady Apache and Marcella. And then we have tournament matches. Rebe Cañero over Heavy Metal. Dos Caras Jr. over Tarzan Boy. Ultimo Guerrero over El Bronco. This is Silver King doing the Bronco gimmick. Arroyo de Lisco Jr. over Kanek. Peroff over Blue Damon Jr., who lost in the first round of the tournament. And Hector Garza over Brazo de Plata. Francesca Shugi was in Garza's corner. Black Warrior over Mascara Sagrada. And Io de Lismarck over Olimpico in quarterfinals. Dos Caras Jr. over Arriba Cañero. Ultimo Guerrero over Arroyo de Lisco Jr. Hector Garza over Peroff. Io de Lismarck over Black Warrior. Then semifinals. Ultimo Guerrero over Dos Caras Jr. Io de Lismarck over Hector Garza. And in the final, Io de Lismarck over Ultimo Guerrero. And in the main event, Elantis over Dr. Bandner Jr. So a big tournament win for Io de Lismarck there uh, in this tournament with all, some, some big names. Yeah, I mean, he's not that much of a push guy after this, so that's kind of interesting. He's another guy that has his problems. Mm. <laughs> So there's that. So, by the way, <laughs> this really has nothing to do with anything, but I kind of feel like I need to point it out. <sighs> you know, thinking about how Dark Angel Sarah Stock hasn't really done much since she got let go by WWE at the beginning of the pandemic. <sighs> I was thinking about the coaching situation. Isn't it interesting that they hired a new female coach right before... Uh, NXT was removed from under Paul Levesque, and then because uh, what's her face, because Sarah Del Rey was on maternity leave, and I think still maybe, and then Alison Danger, that last female coach, is fired. You know, just in the next round of cuts after it's put under Vince and Pritchard and Laurinaitis in light of everything lately, almost as if maybe they don't want female coaches around for the women to talk to. It's possible. I mean. It's very possible. Never hit me till now for some reason. But, but I think Sarah Del Rey is back. I'm not positive. I haven't I asked in a while. Back. but it, I, I mean, think she's been back. Okay. But Norman, I mean, Norman has been the main guy anyway. Throughout the whole thing. Yes, Norman does have built up trust among the women because he does the beginner's classes and, and fit, they recruit and fit, a lot of new women. Yeah. Fit, fit does his things. But it's, it is different, though. It's still not the yeah. same thing. Well, you know, Sarah Stock was cut a long time before all this stuff was going on. Oh, no, no, no. I know that. I'm just saying it reminded me of that. Yeah, and 
props to her. I mean, she's been working her ass off getting back into ring shape and and wrestling again, getting back in the ring in Mexico. Yeah. So props to her. All right. Uh, back to 2005 here. Arena Coliseo, Guadalajara, Electrophobia of a Vertigo. That's a great Ex- name. Both great names, actually. Yes. Exterminador and <laughs> Metro over Anthrax and Valentin Mayo by disqualification. La Mascara over Magnum to retain the Mexican National Welterweight title. Then we had a three-way Caballero, Cocho Caballero, Cocho Caballero match where Mr. Mexico lost his hair in a match with Carlo Rogi and Prato de Oro. And then Dos Caras Jr., Jimmy Neutron, and Satanico defeated Averno, Io del Canec, and Mephisto in your main event. And by the way, for those who were not following uh, CML at the time, Neutron is just named Neutron. It's just the announcers would call him Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Neutron. Yes. Arena Pueblo on July 18th for the 52nd anniversary show of the building. We have... Asturano, Blue Center, and Tigre Rojo over Espirito Maligno, Mr. Rafaga, and uh, Toro Bill Jr. Dr. Marcus, Kraken, and Manyakap over Bobby Yak, Siki Asama Jr., and Tarahumara. Amapala, Doc Angel, and Lady Warrior over India Sue, Lady Apache, and Marcella. Petoff over Satanico by disqualification. And then our main event, Dos Caras Jr., Dr. Wagner Jr., and Groom Triple X. Over the Miria Chardis Jr., Masca Año 2000 in Olimpico. And of course, Grun Trupe X is the original Granta. Yes, yes. Uh, but having switched to a Batman inspired mask and coming out to entrance music that is a mashup of. of it, it's basically the ultimate Warriors theme, but with a bunch of Hawk wrote, Oh, what a rushes interspersed. Yes. It was interesting. And then uh, Rina Coliseo in Mexico City on July 19th. Fire in Pequeño Valencia over Fantasy and Chococito. Heke, Moguer, and Rammstein over Molotov, Sombra de Plata, and Valiente. Io de Tejano, Tony Rivera, and Psycho over Acapolizis, Acanel de Nuete, and Date X. Black Warrior, Sagrado, and Volador Jr. over Io de Perov, Emilio Chavez Jr., and Nitro. Olimpico, Pero, Tarzan Boy over Bronco, Tatapanda Jr., Negro Casas, and then Mystico over Everro in your main event. So there's your CMLL for the week. IWRG, they ran the Rina Lacapon on uh, July 14th. Ray Estrendo over Cata Brava Jr., Fantasma de la Opera and Paramedico over Galactic and Pantarita. Afisman, Rita Corazones and Ochomega over Calef, Nemesis, and Perotto Morgan Jr. We had an IWRG Intercontinental Tag Title match where Cerebro Negro, Dr. Cerebro, teamed up to retain their titles over Moco Rivera and Starboy. And then Fenino, Mystico, and Miki Segura Suicida over Everno, Mephisto, and Pantera in your main event. That's a heck of a main event on paper. Yeah. Yeah, of course, CML is still working with them at this point in time. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting main event there. Yeah, Felino and Pantera always worked really well together, but we didn't get to see that much of it. Yeah, yeah. Political reasons and the like. Yes. Now we talked about Triple R having their TV taping at Arena Coliseo, Monterrey. Their old building, Arena Solidaridad, had a indie show. Astro Negro, Astro Negro Jr. and Venom over Corazon de Adicto, Macario, and Picasso. Monterrey version. Monterrey version, correct. And this, yeah. And then you got Sky and Turbina won a uh, 
four-way here over Black Soul Titanic, Los Cafades Roqueros, and Coco Viper and Mimo Valles. Then we have Maniaco, Mongo Chino, and Super Parka over Chuchamar Jr., Potro Jr., and Silver Star. And then we have the main event, Diluvio Negro 2, LA Park, and Heavy Metal. Uh, well, Diluvio, Diluvio Negro 2 lost his hair in a match, excuse me, featuring LA Park, Heavy Metal, Mascara Sagrada, Etor Garza, and Diluvio Negro number one. So there you go, they had a big hair match against the AAA TV taping on a... And yes, L.A. Park could lose his hair <laughs> while he had his mask on. Why not? Which, that was a thing that happened in Mexico. Although he's the only mask, well, Sagrada. But, yeah, you know. But he has a mask that covers up his hair completely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so does Sagrada, but not in the same way. <clears throat> yeah, so... It's just one of those silly lucha stipulations sometimes you should get. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right, let's go to Puerto Rico, and this is a great story. The much ballyhooed Gladiator Championship Wrestling Show on July 23rd was officially canceled four days before showtime with less than 1,000 tickets sold. The promotion had spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in putting the show together, including an estimated $20,000 for flying in and putting everyone up and other expenses. Just on doing press conferences, I got no press. Oh, wait, Chris, hold on. I got to go put the laundry in the dryer. What? I thought you'd get that was a money laundering joke. Let's carry on. I thought you actually had a... <laughs> no. Oh, I deadpanned it that well. Okay. <laughs> uh, the weekend press conference was canceled due to Mick Foley pulling out. The group was, stu- <laughs> the group was still claiming it would be starting a promotion, but now it has a credibility problem. Really? It also will not become back to Puerto Rico. Another issue may have been the actual bookers for the group were Jake Roberts. Can you believe it? Not that he isn't smart, but how can anyone give him any kind of decision-making power? And Road Warrior Animal. And with Animal heading to the WWE, that threw a monkey wrench into things. Yeah, there's no way this was not a money laundering thing. Yes. This was a uh, – this was quite the deal in 2005. Um, <laughs> all the stuff that was going on um, – with that promotion, um, they were promising all these big names that was going to work. Um, and of course, everybody knew at the time that this ain't happening. Not like this. Um, and yet it just, it just was like some of these other groups that we, you know, we talked about in the, in the early 2000s, WCW that just, uh, you know, faded away, you know, and it was just, uh, didn't take place or what have you. So is, is, is like you said, money laundering, um, just various different things, you know, that they were uh, trying to get involved in. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> and Puerto Rico's had a couple of these promotions in recent memory. I would say more than a couple, but <laughs> to each his own. But uh, but yeah, I mean. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. On the one show. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, again, laundry. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a show that did happen, and kind of... <laughs> I don't know what the word would be for this. Creepy, maybe? Well, let's talk about it. WBC had their major show at the Bruiser Brody Memorial Weekend. On July 16th at the Juan Luperial Stadium, the site of Brody's murder... 17 years to the weekend, in the 12,000-seat stadium, they drew virtually nobody, with estimates of 750 fans. And they've also heard it could have been significantly less than that, 
as it was totally empty and hard to tell in the building so small. Um, they don't sound right because the stadium is huge. Uh, while WC is having a hard time under any circumstances, those who put, put their picos at the promotion of this show killed it because of the sleaze factor in using Brody's name and the show in the building that he died being heavily criticized. And by the end of the night, it only got worse. I'm sure you can tell where this is going, Vix. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. So the uh, other shows of the Birdie Weekend that weren't pushed as hard and weren't in the building, he dr- died, drew better. So this show opened with a 10 count for both Jose Miguel Perez and for Bruiser Brody. Also, Jose Miguel Perez okay. just died. He just died. So that's why they're having the uh, 10 count for him. Also, come on, Dave. He didn't die there. He was just stabbed there. Well, Dave already said murder a while ago, too. So, Well, yes, I'm just uh, – yeah, I know. And, and, and the Jose Miguel Perez obituary is in the Observer mm-hmm. for our week, and it's pretty damn massive. And, and you know, I just was looking over. I remember reading it at the time. People need to check that out. They want to learn some stuff about some Puerto Rican wrestling right there. All right. Um, Vigo do Barico and Joe Bravo kept the WC tag titles over the market crashers. Super Medico beat Carlos Colon. Rico Suave distracted the referee. And a second man in the Super Medico costume did a run in and loaded his mask and headbutted Cologne for the pen. The second Super Medico ended up being a mass as Jose Estrada Sr. Diamante, who no showed the prior night show, came back for a final appearance as he was paid the money he owed just to drop the Universal title to Eddie Cologne in a TLC match. The two did a lot of high risk spots. Diamante, after the match, told the fans it was his last match with the promotion. Even though he's a heel, the crowd gave him a nice response and he said they were, un- they were hypocrites. But then said WC had the best fans anywhere. He then, upon leaving, said he wanted to pay tribute to his two favorite wrestlers ever and mentioned Brody and Victor the Bodyguard. Brian won a three-way over Sandman and Jim Steele by pinning Steele after a DDT. The Puerto Rican Bronco and Sabu beat Abdul the Butcher and Rico Suave by DQ in a grudge match. Lots of blood and weapons. Now here's where it gets creepy. Eddie Colon came in for the save as the heels were doing a number on Bronco. In the class act on this oh-so-classy idea for a show, Suave said over the mic that Bronco needed to thank Eddie or he would have ended up the same way as the guy 17 years ago. Wow. <laughs> wow. On the show, you're paying tribute to Bruiser Brody. You make that remark. Double, double, see everybody? Yeah. Um, also, we should note the reason they're doing the Brody Memorial is that IWA had been doing the Brody Memorial, but then Victor Quinones, who had been good friends with Brody, um, felt he was in a bind as far as the business not doing well and how many, you know, this is the way Meltzer reported it. I'm not trying to lionize, well, that's not the right word. I'm not trying to make Victor Quinones look better or anything, but this is what was reported. He felt like he had so many families relying on IWA for income that he needed to bring in Invader. But he felt that he couldn't do the Barodi Memorial show anymore if he had Invader on the roster. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Double Double C started doing the Barodi Memorial show. So that was in the main event. The show number two ring cage battle royal was getting the Sabu pinning the Sandman the win. Fans chanting ECW and Sandman and Sabu holding the ring after it was over. Now, the next day in Ormigueros, Sabu no-showed, which they blamed on the injuries from the night before. The big angle was 
Carlos and Eddie against Rico Suave and Medico. The Colones each have one of the Estradas. Rico is Julio Estrada, Jose's old son. In the figure four, when Sandman ran in and did a heel turn attacking the Colones. Then El Bronco clean house. Bronco asks the Colones to join him and with the Carlos, saying Eddie will never join him unless Carlos says it's okay. Carlos thanks Bronco for making the save when he's done a flight, but said it's not enough for them to trust him. Bronco apologized for everything he had done to them in the past and asked Carlos to listen to the fans who wanted them to unite with him. Carlos didn't agree to it yet. Bronco then pinned Sandman in the hardcore match afterwards. Uh, Bronco was the guy, for people that may remember, when we did the, the uh, show, I can't remember what year it was now, and we played the video of the, uh, the like a snuff film. Remember that one, Bix? Oh, God. He was the guy, the heel. Yeah, he was the guy. Do, the we didn't actually play it, I don't think. I think we did, or something. We put on we we posted online. I think we told we tweeted about it and told people yeah. they could watch it if they wanted to. But that was about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's he's back, babyface again. <laughs> okay. Uh, so there's double C now. IWA. They ran five minutes away from the Brody Memorial at the Coliseum in Bayamon, drawing sixteen hundred fans, paying fourteen thousand dollars. With their big counter being the return of Apollo as a heel aligned with Savio Vega. They are teasing that Glenbor Shane's going back babyface as he thinks he's owed $5,000 by Vega. But Vega said it was Ray Gonzalez's fault because he burned the papers and Gonzalez had his money. He also blamed Shane for not destroying Golden Boy. Vega said all the Canadians. Vega's gimmick is he's not Puerto Rican, but Canadian. have <laughs> to stick together and Shane isn't. Shane again asked for his money, and Vegas said friendship is more important than money. Gonzalez came out to, uh, came out to Shane and asked him why uh, Vega could pay Slash Venom ten grand to jump, but couldn't pay Shane his $5,000. He also said Vega offered Apollo $10,000 to join him. Vega tried to attack Gonzalez, but Invader won, and Peyoyito Vasquez came out. Gonzalez asked Shane to join him, knowing Shane's wife is Puerto Rican and his son is Puerto Rican. Jose Chaparro, Vega's right-hand man, then came and gave Shane ten grand. And they made up and hugged. Well, there you go. The SWAT team beat Diabolico and, and Cruz to win the IWA tag titles. Apollo went to no contest with Gonzalez of all sorts of interference. Shane came out as the heels were dominant. Vega gave him a bat. Shane didn't hit Vega. And Apollo with a bat took off his shirt and had an I love Puerto Rico shirt on. Gonzalez and Shane hugged when it was over. And the other main event was Ricky Banderas against Slash Venom. Went to no contest. Went lots of interference over the hardcore title. Fun Puerto Rico, folks. That's that's one way to put it. <laughs> oh, I did remember something from Double Double C. I almost forgot to mention. Not good that Sabu is already missing dates due to injuries a month after coming back from nearly dying. Well, he's not injured. Oh, we'll get to that in the next section. <laughs> um, I think it comes up. Okay. Um, he he had another booking. Okay. So I don't. I, maybe the okay. Maybe we don't have that in the. Well, yeah, he worked TNA. Oh, that's right. That is coming up. <laughs> that is coming up. <laughs> so we'll have more on that TNA. But yeah, he worked the TNA pay-per-view. So that's understandable, I guess. <laughs> All right, let's go to the indies now. And we begin with a show that always did fairly good whenever they ran them. The Ballpark Brawl Series. And this one was at the Duntire Park in Buffalo, New York on July 15th. Where we have our opening match, the Backseat Boys, Johnny Cashman and Trent Acid over the Outcast Killers, Diablo Santiago and Armand Tatuga. 
They have John McChesney over Johnny Devine. A six-way where Chris Saban beat Jay Lethal, Mastiff, Petey Williams, Roderick Strong, and Sean Spears. Then Abyss went to a double disqualification with Slip Wagner Brown. CM Punk beat Homicide. Dusty Rose defeated Kid Cash. Ariel defeated April Hunter. And then for the natural heavyweight title, two out of three falls, Christopher Daniels defeated AJ Styles, two falls to one in 1947 to win the championship. Uh, No comment on the natural heavyweight title. (laughs) So should we do something of a where are they now for this one? Oh, all these people are still hanging around the day. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, but limiting it to people who are still around. Um, Saban's in impacted on indies. Lethal is AEWROH. Pete Williams did get hired full time as a WWE producer, right? Yeah, he's been on TV as a producer. Yeah, yeah. Rod- I think I've seen. Yeah, Roddy Strong's uh, NXT, although trying to get out of his contract, and Sean Spears is AEW, although he hasn't done much of anything lately. Uh, Abyss, well, there's a reason for that, too. Well, Abyss WWE producer, Slick Wagner Brown, hopefully out of the business. Uh, <laughs> CM Punk. His lifts. Yes, CM Punk, AEW champion, but injured, homicide, NWA World Junior Heavyweight champion. Amazing. Um... AJ Styles, still in WWE. Christopher Daniels, head of AEW Talent Relations. And April Hunter is still uh, around on social media and does stuff. So She's still part of the wrestling community, even if she's not wrestling. Yes. Conventions and the like. Ariel fell off the face of the earth, though. John McChesney. Yeah, that's another one. John McChesney was... Uh, he was... It was him and Sterling James Keenan that were the hot young guys coming out of Pittsburgh. Well, one of them's still in the business. <laughs> Although not wrestling, but Sterling James Keenan, of course, being Corey Graves. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk more about CM Punk in Ring of Honor. It continued the CM Punk not losing the title angle on July 16th and whipped okay, Connecticut. Okay. So here's the thing. I just realized I forgot that. He had more indie matches while he was purple-haired heel ROH champion. Yeah. Gabe Sapolsky estimated about 50% of the audience, which was larger than the previous jaunt to New Haven, was new fans drawn specifically to see Matt Hardy. And said he more than paid for himself. Punk beat James Gibson. I'm not there, Dave says, but the angle seems to be losing steam. Like, it went from really clever to, okay, you've done your angle, now let's move on. It hurt that the show was three and a half hours long before they got in the ring for the main event, so the crowd had lost its steam for the match. They did an angle early in the show with fans chanting Sunday Night Heat at Punk, which is a step up from OVW. Punk bloodied Gibson up with a chain. Gibson came out hours later for his main event with his head bandage. This was basically the uh, Ric Flair, Teddy Biasi angle in the 80s on Mid-South Wrestling. He had a good match, and then with Punk using the ties to win, Punk said he was now leaving the promotion for good. Christopher Daniels came out, KO Punk with a belt shot, and left with a belt. He said, Punk, everyone to see his belt again. I'll have to come back and get it. The plan was for Daniels and Punk uh, on July 23rd in Philadelphia. Okay. It's weird seeing the booking here, because, you know, especially coming off of us doing the week that kicked this off several weeks back. The direction the booking keeps pointing in is Daniels taking the title back to save it for ROH. 
but that's not what happens, although they do the hour draw with Daniels. And it ends up being James Gibson, Jamie Noble, with the claim being, I mean, they still kind of do the angle, but it only goes like a week or even just a few days because he's already re-signed with WWE. The, the Where allegedly, as was going to be the plan, if he was going to be around longer too, the idea was going to be that since everyone knew he was going back to WWE sooner or later, he would say that he was not leaving ROH until he lost the title. So, I don't know. Do you, like, reading this and looking back, do you think Gabe is necessarily telling the truth that that was the plan all along? No. Right? Because it looks like it was set up for Daniels. Yeah, and then they do, and then on this show... Well, and then on this show, you have you have the Noble thing, too, right? Well, no, well, not just that. You do this angle with Daniels after you have this. Matt Hardy debuted and beat Christopher Daniels. <laughs> Crowd was split as people were too, were ha- very happy to see Daniels. Probably sixty percent pro Daniels, but nobody wanted to boo Hardy. Excellent match, and there was concern considering Hardy's layoff and how long it's been since he's been in the position to work this style. Hardy at one point gave Daniels suplexes on all four corners, but never got a three. Punk hit Daniels with a chain, which Hardy never saw. Hardy needed two twists of face and a guillotine submission. Daniels never tapped, and they did a referee stoppage because it was a WWE versus TNA guy on a Ring of Honor show. There's that too. There were a lot of a lot of political implications. Worse, because he was a TNA champion. TNA office did approve of Daniels losing because of the outside interference and his not tapping. There were fans mad that Daniels lost. The idea that since Hardy's going to WWE and Daniels is standing with the promotion and challenging for the title, he should have been the one. He shouldn't have been the one to lose. But Hardy still got a great ovation when it was over. Before the match, Hardy did a promo being in the ring after the lights went out and scaring away a heel beatdown. He put over Ring of Honor and said he was glad to be in a promotion that put on a good show. He was smart about not lying, just saying he wasn't going to talk about the piece of shit Adam Copeland or whore Amy Dumas. (laughs) Crowd was into him and chanted, fuck Johnny Ace and fuck Edge. He never knocked WWE directly, although some of his pro Ring of Honor statements kind of implied knocking WWE. He said WWE writers should watch some ROH DVDs to see what wrestling should look like, which is more good advice than anything else. Wait a second. What's, over- what's, what's a writer in the context of a promo after his competitive <laughs> wrestling match that he just won? <laughs> he put over how hard everyone in Ring of Honor worked and what professionals they were. He asked for Daniels to come out so he could work his first world match in over a year. Okay. Why even book this match? <laughs> If if you if, I mean if, really why even book this match if you're gonna have a situation where the guy that you're planning to to put the belt on well it, you know what though it, was it wasn't it booked before Hardy was back doesn't matter it doesn't matter why I mean if if Daniels is the guy you're gonna have beat Punk you know unless you're planning on Hardy being the guy to beat Daniels which could have been the plan but I mean. Really, Gabe Gabe had to know that Matt Hardy would not be in Ring of Honor for very long. Mm. No. Well, no, no. Here, here's my argument. Until it became clear it was going to be an angle, I don't think anyone foresaw that they would turn it into an angle. Well, you remember, Fix. Well, I said it, it, when we read in the WWE in the notes. At the wedding, when they played the music, it already was an angle. But the wedding was when everyone knew it was going to be an angle. That was what the signifier to everyone yeah, that had that, turned it to an angle. That, yeah, but 
Bex, look how long that, that's been before the, the show. I know, but I think the match was announced before that, wasn't it? If it was, can't you change it? Yeah, well. They give you enough time. But yeah, it also you makes you up, wonder. You can, come up with some, you can come up with some, you know, reason why you're having to change the match. Yeah. I, also, I wonder if there was at any point a plan for Hardy to win the title. That's what I, that's what I'm saying. If yeah. Gabe Gabe may have thought that Hardy was going to win the championship, but when you know that's not the case now, why even do that? You know he's not going to be here with you no more. You know that. Also, this makes me wonder if the Daniels plan, especially since their one match ends up being a draw, went to hell because Gabe didn't realize he was booking a TNA guy against a guy who'd already signed with WWE. Yeah. All of this so just, just has the feel of plans changing. Absolutely, but you got to be smart, you know, and when plans change, you change with them. You know? Mm-hmm. But anyway, Samoa Joe beat Jimmy Ray to keep the pure title of a pin after a muscle buster. Joe yelled Hashimoto at one point and hit a DDT. Said not to be one of Joe's better Ring of Honor matches, but decent. Oh, boy. Well, Chris, don't you know? Jimmy Rave's such a bad worker. Don't you read the ROH message board? <laughs> I guess that's where that said came from. That's kind of... The fans of... that were there. <sighs> okay. How long has Jimmy been in ROH at this point? He's been there for a little bit. <sighs> I, I never understood why those ROH super hardcores didn't like him in the first place. Like, it wasn't like Iceberg, where he didn't fit their idea of what an ROH wrestler was. He worked the style, more so when he was a babyface. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I didn't get it either. But I don't know if it was a Southern thing or what. I, I, I guess I remember some people complaining about his look being too Hardy-ish, at least at the beginning. Well, fucking Hardy's there. But before this, I don't know. Okay. Uh. All right. So when did he start in ROH? That's right. He he did a dark match at the end of '02, and he's yeah he's been a regular for over two years. I don't know. It was weird. I'll say this much though. Kudos to Gabe for in this case just rolling with it, making him a heel, and realizing that he was smarter than the fans in this case. Yes. And Jimmy got over. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes. So. And I think maybe it didn't used to be, but I think nowadays, I think people consider the Punk Ray feud one of the best feuds in the history of the promotion, right? It's definitely up there, that's for sure. Anyway, uh, AJ Styles versus Roger Strong had what was for the best match on the show. When Styles went in with the Styles Clash, Heat was awesome, great work. There was some booing on Styles during the match, but both got stand ovation when it was over. It's pretty clear that Strong is moving up to the main level with his work and unique style built around his different bat breakers. Now, let's talk about after the CM Punk match. This is the Pro Wrestling Torch. A fan threw debris at CM Punk after his match at Whitbridge. Punk actually jumped into the crowd chased the fan out of the building, down the street, before being talked into returning. Punk was either really worked up from his match or trying hard to submit his heel image by his overreaction. 
after Punk left the building, Homicide, Tony DeVito, and Loki were among a group of wrestlers who chased after Punk, trying to coax him into letting the fan go or watch his back in case it turned into a legitimate street confrontation. Eventually, Punk did return. He was a conspiracy backstage later as a doctor attended to a nasty gash on his back that he suffered during the match. Other fans threw garbage at Punk, but the one fan he chased in particular set him off. There was a message on the post on the Ring of Honor website's message board asking about it, but the post was deleted. <laughs> Thanks, ROH right. Gabe. Um, yeah. oh, before we even get into the results, though, think about that sentence for a second. After Punk left the building, Homicide, DeVito, and Loki were among the wrestlers who were trying to coax him into letting the fan go. <laughs> well, it says, does say, or watch his back, though, so there is that. But Homicide and Loki, definitely the people you want to defuse a confrontation. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, let's go to the results of the show. Nigel McGinnis beat Claudio Castagnoli in your opening match. Austin Aries over El Generico. Homicide won a four-way over Azrael, Dixie, and Kevin Steen. The Carnage crew, Tony DeVito and H.C. Lowe, retained the Ring of Honor tag titles in the Ultimate Endurance match, beating Cheech and Derange, Dunn and Marcus, and Eddie Vegas in XS69. AJ over Roger Strong, Joe over Rave, Hardy over Daniels, and Punk over James Gibson. Any thoughts on the results? So we're in the early run of the Montreal guys coming in, but mainly just for New England shows? Okay. Because um, I think, based on when I stopped going to ROH for a while, I think I only saw Generico live once and never saw Steen until right as he was leaving. Um, as far as the rest of the show, you forget that Don and Marcos were around this late. And Carnage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we forget that Asriel got his little mini push, too. Yeah. You know, post-Special K, which... He did pretty well for himself, all things considered. Yeah, still a hell of a worker today, but I, I think he might have a good day job, and he just tends to work local indies. Yeah. But I don't know if I ever saw this show, but some interesting stuff on here. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Torch has this. With some former Ring of Honor names returning and new wrestlers rise to the top of the cards, some longtime R.H. men inventors have been working early card matches. The Whippers show saw a Ring of Honor champion, full, uh, Ring of, former Ring of Honor champion, Austin Aries, work a second match for the card against Generico, and Homicide working with Kevin Steen, Dixie, and Azrael in the third match. Oh, wait a second, Gabe, wait a second. One of them was Austin Aries, and the story in the Twin Cities-based Pro Wrestling Torch leads with that? Okay, just carry on. Well, let's continue. Where Gabe Spolsky's got quotes. Supposedly said, that's not a demotion for those wrestlers. It's a natural rotation of talent that's been difficult to promotion all along. Austin Aries and Homicide are by no means pushed down the card, Supposedly told the Torch. I wanted them in matches that would feature them and highlight them for the new fans that were coming to the show. They were in matches that would display their talents to get fans hungry to see more of them while giving the younger guys like Kevin Steen and El Generico a chance to have higher profile matches. In Ring of Honor, it doesn't matter where you are on the card because pretty much every match can be a main event or semi-main event. We've had people like Brian Danielson, Spanky, James Gibson, Tats out of matches, Cole Cabana, many more in opening matches this year. It's a testament to the depth of the roster, and it does not mean they were pushed down the card. And he's not wrong that in this era they really started doing that more. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a pretty loaded card. Yeah. 
if this so, was if this was two thousand two two thousand three ROH, it would be a more valid complaint. But yeah, they've been rotating name guys, you know, into you know like featured prelims a lot by this point. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, the guys are fine. Yes. Jersey All Pro Wrestling. What's up about them? Charlie Haas did his first indie match on July 16th for Jersey All Pro Wrestling in Rawway, New Jersey, as an unannounced surprise since promoter Fat Frank Adavia found out the night before the show the headliners, the Sandman and Teddy Hart, were no showing. Sandman worked at Puerto Rico, but didn't tell him. You would think by this point in time that with, with stuff getting out there on the internet, that Frank would have saw that Sandman was booked in Puerto Rico and think, okay, maybe he may not make my show. I don't know. Uh, when Teddy no-showed Buffalo the night before, yeah, Teddy was supposed to be in the ballpark show. Adavia figured he was no-showing his card as well. Hart and Jack Evans were supposed to drop their tag titles. Evans, in his final match before an extended hiatus, because his body's all banged up from the crazy risk he's taken, ended up working alone and lost a handicap match for the titles to the backseat boys. Hart has a history of finding all sorts of excuses, whether working injuries on promoters or other things when he's supposed to do jobs. In this case, he claimed he was stopped at the border and couldn't get in. Haas teamed with Jersey All Pro champion Jay Lethal and Jay's famous father, who was at all his shows, to beat Steve Carino, Ricky Landell, and Rick Silver. Haas turned on Lethal after the match to sub title match on September the 10th. Haas is under the impression he can work indies, but only can't work TNA until his non-compete clause ends in October. Different guys have been told different things. Guesses there are fire guys who have to sit on the sidelines for 90 days. Okay. Um, shall I remind everyone that Teddy is an American citizen? Mm-hmm. Now, he could be stopped at the border for other things, especially since it's Teddy Hart, but it wouldn't be an immigration issue. Not that it said it was, but that's the implication. Yeah. But his mom's an American citizen. All of the Hart kids are American citizens. Because of mm-hmm. Helen, it just all, you know, if one of your parents is an American citizen, then you're an American citizen. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, yeah, so all of that generation of the family, because all of the 12 heart, you know, siblings are American citizens, you know, every everyone, regardless of whether they were born in Canada or whatever first, you know, whether it's, you know, TJ or Teddy or... Well, I forget if Harry was born in Canada or Florida, but still. And again, and, and again, it's Teddy's mom. That's a heart. Yes, that's a difference. You know, Brett's kids, if they were not born in America, aren't, Ameri- aren't American citizens. Yes, they are. Brett's an American citizen. I thought it was had to be. Well, no, it's not. It's not like Judaism, Chris. You, it doesn't have to be the mom that's an American citizen. I thought it did. No. Okay. I don't think I don't so. Know. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Okay, okay. Do you want me to... I think I, I, I think it is. Okay, wait, wait, let's see. I'm pl- pl- using my phone. Are you an American citizen if at least one parent is an American citizen? According to Allah, if only one parent was a U.S. citizen, that parent must have resided in the U.S. for at least 10 years before your birth. At least five of those years must have been after that parent reached the age of 16. Okay, so as far as it being automatic, that's the requirement. Okay, so neither of us were exactly right. Well, there we go. Yeah, so... But I think... 
I'd have to look deeper to see what the requirement is if there was no residency, though. Okay. But anyway, let's read the results of this show. Outcast Killers, Diablo Santiago, Romantuga over Eric Cooper and Nino Capone. Ooh. Talia over Alicia. That'd be Talia, Talia Madison? Velvet Sky. Velvet Sky, yeah. yeah. Loki over Sanjay Dutt. Then a handicap match for the tag titles, back seats over Jack Evans. Jersey Pro Light Heavyweight title, B-Boy retained over Arcadia. No no jokes uh, about uh, <laughs> Arcadia and Election Day or anything like that. Rhino over Balls Mahoney. And then, Char- I love this result. Charlie Haas, Jay Lethal, and Jay Lethal's dad. <laughs> Rick Silver, Ricky Landell, Z Carino. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Lethal's dad. Papa Lethal. I forgot about Papa, Papa Lethal. Lethal. Um, yeah. You should have said that... As far as wrestlers go, you didn't like Arcadia as much as you did Power Station. <laughs> well, Power Station was the better of the uh, Duran Duran offshoots. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's the thing. Even though it doesn't. I don't like ever... Arcadia though. No, I like Arcadia too, but Arcadia just sounds like Duran Duran. Yes. More or less, because it's the Simon Lebon Nick Rhodes side project. But then you got Power Station, which you know is the Taylors, Randy and John. But you got fucking, you know, Bernard Robert Palmer, Edwards. Tony yeah. Thompson. Bernard Edwards, Tony Thompson, Robert Palmer, yeah. So it's a t- totally different sound. All right. Now we have uh, some XECW guys to talk about, but not wrestlers. Oh, boy. S- Steve Carroll, Greg Bagarosi, and Dan Kowal, who all worked behind the scenes at ECW and also attempted shortly after ECW folded to start a new promotion based on ECW, are now looking to produce ECW reunion shows for pay-per-view. The idea for a new promotion called Extreme Hardcore Wrestling would be to run house shows that are taped for pay-per-view. Where this gets interesting is to make it authentic. They want Joey Styles as an announcer. Styles believes that his contract with WWE stipulates he can't work appearing in any form on live pay-per-view shows, so it'd be okay for him to do these shows since they went there live. Hmm. This doesn't happen, well, I don't think. doesn't happen, yeah. Talking about rec- the promotion everybody's trying to recreate the most. It's not even WCW, it's fucking ECW. Mm, well, that pay-per-view did huge business. Yeah, one night stand just to happen. Yeah, just to place. So, yeah, every, that train is rolling again. IWA East Coast ran a show at the Community Center in South Charleston, West Virginia, in front of 250 fans on July 13th. Kudo from DDT won your opener over Eddie Kingston. Sure. Eddie Kingston working DDT guys in 2005 and 2022. <laughs> then you had Trick Nasty over Tracy Smothers. That's Trick Davis, right? Yes. War Pig over Darling New. Ian Rotten over Mickey Knuckles. No comment. Gypsy Joe over Necro Butcher. IWA East Coast Heavyweight title match. Chris Hero retained over Billy Gunn. Sure. And then No Road Barbara match. Man Man Pondo over J.C. Bailey. Ah, yes, the era where DDT and DDT-associated guys would just randomly show up in West Virginia for Pondo. Because <laughs> there was the Dick Togo thing. Yes. Yeah. I feel like there's more I'm forgetting. Yeah. What so. a show. Oh, yeah. Those are always interesting shows, those IW East Coast shows. A, a promotion called Iron Ring Wrestling. Just uh, 800 fans on July 17th in Kingsport, Tennessee, headlined by area favorite Jimmy Golden. Team with Eddie Golden against Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton. Plus, they brought in David Flair, Tony Atlas, The Barbarian, Kit Cash, Easy Money, James Gibson, and Ricky Morton to work underneath. 
Nice. Sounds like a good time in Kingsport. I'm sure Bo will probably have something to say about this when he listens to it. So. Mm-hmm. Of, it's in his neck of the woods. Speaking of shows that people might have something to say about when they listen to it, to the show. In WA Anarchy on July 16th at the NBA Arena in Cornelia, Georgia, we have Seth DeLay, Patrick Bentley, and Sal Renaro defeating Skeeter Frost, four touchdowns in one game, Crew Jones, and Ken Westbrooks. Brent Silver of Andrew Alexander, Michael Adrian, Michael Judas, one of three way over Heath Miller, that's Heath Slater, and Randall Johnson. Azrael and Gabriel, the Lost Boys over Slim J and Jay Fury. Nick Halen over Billy Buck. Ray Gordy over Todd Sexton. Rayman over Jeremy V. And Jeff Lewis over Jay Fury in your main event. So we'll be talking about this era of anarchy in about four years. So, <laughs> so is Exile officially just a, a Cornelia podcast now? Right now it is. <laughs> That's all I have time for. Because this shows that between this show and Patreon shows and uh, in my in real life, that's what I have time for. All right, I have in Mid South, July fifteenth at the Partnership Recreation Center in Midlothian, Illinois. We have Ryan Boz over Chandler McClure, Eddie Venom over Brad Bradley, Brandon Tomaselli over B.J. Whitmer, Danny Daniels over Matt Seidel. A 3-2 handicap match. Chris Hero and Ian Rotten over Eddie Kingston, Orlando Colon, and Vito Tomaselli. The Black and the Brave. Merritt Brave and Tyler Black over Crazy J and Lotus. Trick Davis over Eric Priest. Eric Cannon over CJ Otis. Josh Abercrombie retaining the IWA Light Heavyweight title over Tyler Black. And then IWA Mid-South Heavyweight title special referee Danny Daniels. Well, he knows how to do that. Jimmy Jacobs retained over Jerry Lynn. Shall we, uh, where are they now at again? I mean, it's an IWA show, and it's a set with a lot of names, so let's see. Uh, Brad Bradley is still involved with Billy Corgan stuff, of course, in the NWA. Whitmer is in AEW. Uh, is he is he a producer there, technically, or is he more just general office person? He's office, basically. But I think he does some producer stuff. Uh Danny Daniels, of course, is the owner of AAW. Uh, Matt Seidel's in AAW. Uh, Ian Rotten may have finally killed IWA Mid-South. Hero is, I guess, mainly still doing stuff for high spots. Kingston, and Twitch. Yes, Kingston is the most over babyface in wrestling somehow. Uh, not to take away from him, but still, it seemed unlikely. Uh... Merrick Brave and Tyler Black have their wrestling school. I feel like Tyler Black's doing something else I'm forgetting. Um, Eric Cannon is... He's a fashion influencer. He's got that drip. Uh, Eric Cannon still wrestles some, but he's mainly the promoter of first wrestling. Uh, Jimmy Jacobs is one of the impact office jacks of all trades, and Jerry Lynn is an AEW producer. There you go. A lot of people still active in a major way here. Well, here's a show you can't say that much. Well, you can't say that about some on this show. FCW, not far Championship Wrestling, but FCW drew an estimated 6,000 fans to the Grand Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles on July 16th for their combination hardcore matches that 98% of the audience doesn't want to see, except that it's the style the guys running the promotion wants to work, and lucha matches that continually draw in the fans. Oh, I forgot about these. These are what, XPW guys promoting lucha shows? Kind of, sort of, yes. This was large, likely the largest crowd for any wrestling in the United States in a long time. Well, I wouldn't say that because I was at a show a year earlier that drew more than that. But that's a whole other story. Uh, it, it, it was a lucha show, too, with some of these guys involved. 
This is likely the large. Uh, I said that. Ilya Santo beat Scorpio Jr. in the main event of a Mascara Cochicabiera match. But after Santo won, L.A. Part turned on him after he saved him. Uh, match was a bloodbath. He saved him when, uh, and then when Scorpio was fouling him. Part turned on him, saved Santo because he wanted to be the one to take his mask. They teased the idea of a mask match on September 24th, which will draw huge. But David St. Park would be wise to lose his mask. <laughs> Park himself has been rumored to be willing to lose his mask in Mexico for a giant payoff that nobody's offered yet. And still hasn't got this day. This is also Bill's the farewell appearance of Los Hermanos Dinamita in Los Angeles. We'll see Encarros retiring soon. They beat Blue Panther, L.A. Park, and Mascara Sagrada. Underneath, they had a 25-man battle royal won by the Messiah. The gimmick is the entire ringside floor is made up of barbar boards, which means to be eliminated... You had to go over the top rope and take a bump onto the boards. Oh, boy. Results of this show. Chaos and Mongol over Damian Seis and Halloween. Then Los Luchas, Phoenix Star and Zucker over Matt Jackson and Nick Jackson. If I remember right, isn't this the show where they get the Young Bucks name? Yes, I think so. So this is the beginning of the Young Bucks. Yep. Alter Boy Luke over Angel. The Los Angeles version, which means, yes, it's Angel the Hardcore Homo. Yes, a.k.a. Dirty Sanchez in uh, Lucha Vavum. Yes. Then Los Hermanos Dinamita over the Dimension, La Parca, and Mascara Sagrada. It says La Parca Jr., but it's La Parca, L.A. Par. And he had the Santo over Scorpio Jr. in the uh, Apuestas match. So, yeah, I remember this. I mean, I remember covering this show, 6,000 fans. And the thing is, the Olympic always, whatever shows they ran there, whether it's FMLL or whatever, always drew big houses for indie shows, but nobody talked about them because the people that would go mainly just posted on SoCal Uncensored, and then they wouldn't post a whole lot of information on them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, some... They were hidden shows, basically, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and there's even, I mean, there's some interesting where they now is here, too, because, you know, Chaos is a fairly respected trainer these days, you know, with Santino Brothers. The Bucks are the Bucks. Uh, Alter Boy Luke is Luke Hawks. You know, better known, I guess, for stunt work than for pro wrestling at this point. Well, he's in. He works in, he works in WA. Well, that too. I forgot about that. You got to remember. I never watched those shows. Uh, but you know, big part of heels in the produ- in the production of that show. And um, I mean, you know, the Luchadors are the Luchadors. But yeah, interesting show here. And yeah, if I remember right. The story is like that just someone just decided to call them like those young bucks or whatever, right? Yeah. So something, It was something like that, yeah. Yeah, interesting way to close out the indie section here. Mm-hmm. All right, Keith's back with us as we close the show out with total nonstop action. Well, largely in a booking holding pattern until starting on television in October. The TNA No Surrender pay-per-view on July 17th. Orlando's Universal Studios turned out to be a great wrestling show. A rarity as a pay-per-view show with no bad matches. The usual full house of 775 fans saw a series of hot, fast-paced matches with Samoa Joe versus Chris Saban, Sean Waltman versus AJ Styles, and Christopher Downs versus Petey Williams, ending in a bloody dog collar match featuring countless broken tables with Raven and Abyss for the NWA title. While still not announced officially, it's been confirmed by several sources that a TV deal is official and will start in October for a one-hour show at 11 p.m. on Saturday nights, the old velocity time slot. Spike is putting the show on large because they are being paid for the time, and those with more knowledge of the deal say it's going to be very difficult to make it work in building a profitable business model. As far as we're still in ECW, and ECW is not buying the time, but didn't have to pay the TV production costs. 
TNA has to do both. Yeah, it's the worst time slot. Which WWE hasn't been able to get ratings sent in since the early days of Confidential. It's believed the announcement would be made this past week to the wrestlers, but there's some sort of contractual holdup reason we're not aware exactly of that doesn't allow Spike to release the information until it comes out. There's apparently some form of confidentiality of over-releasing the information on both sides, although the actual announcement should be coming very soon. Yeah, this is not a good TV deal, Bix, for uh, for TNA, but they're getting on TV, so I guess any TV is good TV. Look, they did well enough that they got a better deal out of it. Yeah. They had to work their way into it. Yeah. Um, I forgot that it was a time buy at first, though. Mm-hmm. So they're having uh, to cover everything. Yeah, I had no recollection. Okay, so wait a second, though. Actually, now that I think about it, I believe, unless he's thinking of when it, when it became a paying deal, doesn't Jeff insist now that this is when they started becoming profitable because they were getting paid by Spike? Whenever they get start getting paid by Spike, yes. And so, is it you think it's maybe he's just conflating, maybe not even intentionally, the beginning of the deal with the beginning of the paying deal? Probably. Okay. I mean, there are all sorts of different stories about that. I mean, yeah, look, when it comes to telling his own history, Jeff has been pretty credible, you know, when he's, since he's been out putting himself out there more. Um, so I'm going to be inclined to believe him more than other wrestlers and promoters of that ilk. But, I mean, we also know what people who had, other people who had seen the books of the company had said in the past. So, I don't know. But... They made it work. I'm, I'm guessing they start being paid maybe once they move to Thursdays. Yeah, that's probably when it happens. Or once they All move right. to prime time, one of those. Yes. I think, though, they, they had to take this deal because, you know, I think the company would have been dead otherwise because, you know, you know the alternative option was to go back to Fox Sports Net, which was clearly a deal that they would just keep losing money on and couldn't grow. Whereas Spike TV being a much better station, even with the bad time slot in the beginning, had more growth potential um, you know, for the company. So you know, it was a do or die situation for them, I think, here. Pretty much. It's a do or die situation. We will be invincible, as they've proven <laughs> to be, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, just to be clear, though, too, I'm not sure if you realize this or if other international listeners would realize this. Even though it was on Fox Sports Net across the board, that's still the network of the regional sports networks, and the time slot wasn't always consistent. I think it was on most places Fridays at whatever afternoon slot it was on. But that wasn't a guarantee. I mean, it would be... I mean, I guess the comparison would be like if there was a Fox Sports Midlands, Fox Sports Wales, etc. And it was on all of those. Yeah. Friday afternoons is a, is a great slot to be in, though. I think for nah. wrestling, I'd prefer late night Saturday than uh, Friday afternoons. Yeah. Well, the other negative is the same negative for some time. It's the clear promotion. It is clear the promotion is going. The idea that their biggest star is Jeff Jarrett. 
even though he was on the pay-per-view show, he was presented as the biggest star. As the show-long storyline was not a bill for any match, but the swerve, where they announced the debut of Rhino during a pre-game show, with Jarrett freaking out and at the concerned. And in the end, at the Raven beat Abyss in a dog car match, keep the NWA title. Jarrett and Rhino showed up in the ring, and Rhino gored Raven. Now the wrestlers were given live interview time, and most weren't even uh, even taped interview time, given taped interview time. This will be the albatross around the company's neck on live television. The idea that Jarrett has the most name value of anyone, in reality, is casual fans, both Raven, particularly whatever w- ECW residue momentum there is, and likely to be arriving Dudley's have far more. So he, sh- so he should be on fo- the focal point on de- television is dated. <laughs> well, little does Dave know how <laughs> how long this is going to last because Jeff is, I mean, he is TNA. For many years. So. Well, to defend him, that you know, he was the you know you can rely on yourself. It's the same way Jim Cornette built Smoky Mountain Wrestling around him. You know that you, as you know the the owner or part owner of the promotion, you know you're not going to quit the company. You can rely on yourself. Yeah, so which does explain a bit why why you know someone like Jarrett pushes himself. And uh, in a company that's on such a budget, he's one of the few people that's not on a per date contract. Yes. So he knows that for his, you know, whatever it was, low six figures a year. He's not only giving the company his uh, what do call it his executive services, but also he can be at every show, and it won't cost them anything more than what they're already paying. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, and you know, I mean, you know, Jeff Jarrett was a successful star with some name value that he he should have been pushed uh but perhaps not to the quite to the degree he was you know where where fans felt he was pushed down their throat you know so they they didn't quite get the balance right i think yeah dave sahai did a video early in the show playing things backwards with a few subliminal messages including rhino is coming to tna tna is coming to spike tv in october Someone will get gored tonight, and Vince fears Jeff Jarrett. The first three are funny, and when they get on television, they should not be in ways to point out their superiority, tag division, superior baby shows, superior young talent. But this type of stuff only makes the company come across as being diluted. Past the point, there was a hell of a show. Observer's responses were down for 6% from last month's show for the first pay-per-view in the television promotion whatsoever, aside from a few markets like Sun Sports that carries impact and syndication. At this stage of the game, holding that close to even has been considered a big success and shows they've gained at least a small loyal following based on a track record of usually top-level pay-per-view events. Well, they've hit the point where they got their crowd that's going to watch them no matter what. That's where they're at at this point in time. So, as long as you keep them in the fold, I mean, at least you got them. So there's that. And, yeah. and they, they were putting on you know, an entertaining product on pay-per-view. So they had reasons 
to buy, you know, buy the shows, you know, in terms of entertainment value, you know, um, you know, particularly with the X division that was something that WWE wasn't offering at, at, at you know, offering at the time really. That's yeah. that wrestling. Yeah. All right, so let's go to the show and Brian Alvarez. Early on the show, Brian thought to himself, you know, everyone who are these pay-per-views and shows at the Arena Orlando should be given some sort of gift by the folks at TNA. I mean, these fans are loyal. There's no TV, no buzz. These people still buy tickets to pay-per-views month after month. And then when the show was over, I realized that TNA has, in fact, given all these loyal fans a gift. This show, where everyone worked their ass off regardless of everything else and gave us three fun hours of entertainment. Show up on a very creepy video. Don't get me wrong, it was awesome, but most of it played in reverse. Everyone was doing their spots backwards, their promos were being cut backwards, whole nine yards. Reminds me of an indie film I saw the other day that was just killer. It was black and white, silent, and they had this actor perform the entire thing in reverse. Then they reversed all his footage, so in the final cut, he was moving normally. Well, sort of normally. It came up looking really odd. Everything else in his world was moving in reverse. It was awesome. So anyway, this reminded me of that, and this was sweet. <laughs> All right, first match, James Storms and James Storms. James Storm and Chris Harris, America's Most Wanted, against Alex Shelley and Michael Shane. A basic open with four good workers having a good match that nobody should have had any reason to care about, but they did. They were teasing that Shane wanted nothing to do with Storm. As Storm went after him, he was blindsided by Shelley, and the bad guys got the heat. Tracy was interfering left and right, so Harris finally grabbed her and handcuffed her to the ropes. Good guys made their big comeback, hit such spots as the Whirly Bird. And the heart attack. Well, AMW are huge fans of Heart Foundation. Ton there falls and Storm Wallace Shelley with a super kick for the pin. Very good match. Afterwards, Shane re- whacked Storm with a super kick of his own. So this feud must continue. Two and a half stars. I I have uh, a comment about this match which doesn't come across in Brian's review. So watching this match, you know, uh, back. You know, I felt like AMW was steamrolling Shelly and Shane. There wasn't really like an extended heat segment. You know, even with, you know, Tracy interfering, it was sort of like, you know, you, Tracy interfered and you expected them to take over and it didn't happen. You know, Tracy gave a low blow to Chris Harris. I think, and you expected them to take over, and they didn't because Harris very quickly handcuffed her to the ropes. So it was very much, I mean, it was an enjoyable match, but, you know, it it did seem a bit more one-sided than it needed to be. Uh, Although that sort of played perhaps into the end a bit with Shane, you know, sort of, uh, super kicking storm and then running off. So they did get a little bit of heat back at the end, but but to me it seemed seemed like you know it could have been worked a bit better, you know, for getting over the heels. And AMW would do that sometimes, where they would eat up, especially the smaller heels. So that's not a surprise, I don't think. Yeah. That was probably their biggest faults as a te- team, really. Yeah. 
Cliff's here from earlier in the evening of Jeff Jarrett ranting and raving the Mike Tanae about TNA is going to fire all the shitty guys at WWE laid off. <laughs> going to hire, I guess, all the shitty guys at WWE laid off. Tanae said, no, they'd only hire the people that were deserving of being in TNA. Jarrett wanted to know if Rhino was in the building. Crowd chanted, we want Rhino. So Tanae confirmed that, yes, Rhino would be here later. I would rant that they're sure spoiled his surprise debut. But truthfully, they at least told the pre-show fans that they have to order the show, they get to see Rhino. And from a business standpoint, that's a much smarter thing to do. They had a lot of this interview, including the part where Jarrett and Tanae went face-to-face. I've been waiting on that match for two years now, Brian said. It is surprised Tanae didn't wrestle. Somehow get wrestling TNA. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Also, since it's Brian, it wouldn't shock me if they actually had promoted that Rhino was coming on the... Uh... TV show no one was watching, and he didn't know that. That's possible. I uh, I just want to say, I think, how stupid it is running an angle where about WWE laying off guys and that TNA might do the same thing. It just seems like... I know Jarrett's being a heel and everything, a paranoid heel, but it it just, to me, seems a bit... No, that was a ty- that was a typo from Brian. <laughs> yes, hire. Uh, uh, okay. They were going to hire all the shitty guys. W. And Tanae said, "No, we're only going to hire the people who deserve it." Right. Yeah. I I mean, oh, so maybe this comes across later on in the show because Jarrett was going up on to other talent saying. You know, there could be a Black Wednesday here. You know that they're, you know, they're going yeah. to hire all these shitty WWE guys and then fire the rest of you. And I just think, you know, um, you know, don't don't make WWE, you know, you know, the emphasis of your storylines. Make your own world. You know, um, you know, I mean. Yeah, it didn't work as a knock on WWE, I don't think. Well, they couldn't help themselves. Team uh, Canada hyped up their match later, including the moment where Bobby Roode ran down Lance Hoyt. This was great unintentional comedy. Jarrett walked in and said he needed to know where this goddamn rhino was. <laughs> they didn't know. Jarrett said he needed to band together and make sure these Johnny-come-latelys don't come in and steal their jobs. God, typical short-sighted man of a stupid wrestler. It's saying something when I buy both a man and his on-screen character to read WCW. <laughs> oh, man. Jared right. lived it, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he lived all of it. Uh, next, Sharp Boy and Sanjay Dutt went against Elit Skipper and Mikey Bats. I think. May have been a four-way. I love matches where it's a mystery. Your typical yeah, yeah, what the, okay, see, that's just Brian being an idiot with no attention span because, like, I, I didn't watch the show, but it was a four-way X-Cup qualifier, and I gotta think that was explained. I, I watched the show back, and when I read that, I, I, I said, what the fuck? <laughs> okay, it was clear. It's, Good. It's yeah. Your typical second match on the car, TNA bout, with four small guys doing crazy indie stuff. Skipper went to his rope while Frankenstein and screwed up, fall on top, rope down to the floor. This is for sure a blown spot because he was actually in the midst of the move when he fell and therefore almost landed on top of his head on the ground. It was terrifying. Everyone was momentarily confused. Then they turned it to a four-way dive spot. High spot after high spot. Very similar actually to an arena Mexico Segunda. Crowd got numb to it after a while and stopped popping for everything, really watching it as it transpired. 
Skipper and Sharkboy tell me outside on the spot, and Sanjay Penn bats with the Hindu press. There's almost a hoovy all over again as Duck came this close to driving his shin into Bats' face, but Bats was smart enough to get both hands up to protect himself and appear to be okay. Due to the pre-match step, Sanjay won a slot in the X-Cup tournament, which starts this Friday on the no TV. Two and a quarter stars. <laughs> Shane Douglas, perplexed as usual, interviewed Conan and Truth backstage. They didn't know where BG James was at. Conan wanted to beat his ass, but Truth said he needed to trust him and wait for him, and it'd be okay. Conan finally said, fuck it, let's worry about our match. That's coming up later. None of them use these exact words. <laughs> Next, Eric Young and Simon Diamond went against Apollo and Sonny Siaki. Simon had a problem before the match. Let me try to explain this to you. Apparently, he has a crew called Diamonds in the Rough. I never knew such a crew existed. Second, his newest member is David Young. He knew that Young had not won in a match of two years, and that now he was going to start winning because he was under Diamond's guidance. Yes, you have a problem, buddy. This was four large men working hard. Siaki ended up outside after a low bridge, and Young, who was a large man, hit him with an aside moonsault. Apollo, who's even larger, decided he was going to do a dive on his own. It says Eric Young, so that should be David Young. This sounds like a horrible idea. <laughs> uh, but actually did a hell of a dive, and then landed on the ground, and nonchalantly walked off like nothing had happened. Young and Siaki had a chop fest that the folks really got into. Back with the work of Siaki for a few minutes. Then Apollo made his big comeback. I should note right now that I'm watching this pay-per-view alone. Yes, I ordered it at my house. For all of you who think I hate TNA or have something against the company, you must know that unless I'm mistaken, this is the first pay-per-view in 10 years in the history of this newsletter that I ordered at my house. Yep, every single other pay-per-view I ever watched was at a friend's house. But tonight, Craig had no interest in seeing it. Blake and the team that moved to Ireland, and Brent had a barbecue that wouldn't get him back in time, so I ordered it. And let me tell you something. Watching a pay-per-view alone is like drinking alone. It's a sign of a profound, deep sadness. And I should tell you how much I love wrestling. I began buying pay-per-views alone before I began drinking alone. This must mean something, but I don't have the time to get into deep of analysis because there's a match going on that I paid fucking $29.95 for out of my own pocket and thus want to enjoy. So anyway, get to get this finish. After all the hype earlier, Apollo pinned David Young clean. A basic TV match, star three quarters. <laughs> wait, wait uh, for your readership, because I guess a lot of them will be watching the pay-per-view alone, I guess. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Aye, aye, aye. Well, I, I mean, I... I, I you know, there was there were some pay-per-views I watched alone, but mainly I watch, I mean I was always watching them with a group. So also so, Ed and Blake yeah. Norton been back living in Ireland for like two years by this point. Uh yeah, I think so. Because he was he was there for the launch of wrestling channel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's because I'm from the UK and so like, you know, if you're watching pay-per-views live, they're in the middle of the night. So other than maybe going to WrestleMania for, uh, you know, live showings at bars, most of the time I'd watch pay-per-views on my own. Well, yeah. Yeah. In the UK, it's definitely understandable. (laughs) So, yeah, there is that. All right. So next we got Chris Saban against Samoa Joe. Okay. Hopefully... This will be worth a good chunk of that thirty-four ninety-four. The price went up. <laughs> it's a minute in. I already love this match. Loud Joe chants. 
you know, people talk a lot about Joe's physique. To me, that's the perfect physique for Samoa Joe. Samoa Joe should not look like Batista or Chris Masters. He should look exactly like he looks now. That's part of his charm. I once made the off-frame remark that George Thurgood had a terrible voice. And then my friend replied with bad to the bone, be bad to the bone, that George Thurgood had a beautiful singing voice. And he was right. Samoa Joe is Samoa Joe. And no one should uh, make him not be Samoa Joe by the man he trim up and change his physique. The longer this went, the more the crowd got into it. They have to go all the way with Joe. He's so great. Same made a huge comeback, and the place was going crazy. He even had a drop kick off the apron to the floor, which is dangerous. Dueling, let's go, Joe. Let's go, Saban, Chance. Saban went for the cradle shot, but Joe was too fat. See? His physique is a benefit. <laughs> Joe had an awesome power swim off the ropes for a good near fall. He was so awesome, they showed a replay. Joe had a powerbomb maneuver to an SDF and a crossface. Don West went to see what the move was, but he said he never seen anyone get out of it. Saban finally got to the ropes, and the crowd applauded. TNA! Joe went for middle muscle buster, but Saban turned into a running powerbomb for a near fall. They had the fans jumping up and down. Saban hit an Insegiri, went up top, but Joe cut him off with the muscle buster. Oh, that hurts, Don explained. Joe then choked him out, and the referee stopped it. Holy crap, that was great. Three and three-quarter stars. Yeah, hell of a match. I remember this. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a tremendous match. I really, really like going back and watching it. You know, a perfect way to build Joe up. I think they gave Saban enough offense to make it an exciting match, but Joe still came across as a dominant force. So, yeah, this was really well done. And they really needed Samoa Joe, you know, in the promotion when they got him because I think he was a key guy to you know, taking the X Division to the next level because he perfectly fit their hype about the X Division not being about weight limits. So he was the perfect guy because, you know, he he was thicker, you know, in his physique, but he could really go and keep up with, you know, Styles and Daniels and have, you know, match of the year contenders you know, which for hardcore fans, you know, is an incentive to buy, you know, TNA pay-per-views. Yep. All right. So next, as I scroll down here, Team Canada against Lance Hoyt and the Naturals. I wish I could explain to folks who have never watched TNA the phenomena of Lance Hoyt. It would be like if Tess suddenly became the most popular guy in every building he appeared in, and the people would get on their feet and chant, Test! Over and over and over again for really no logical reason. Chase Stevens did an insane moonsault from a post into all of Team Canada, and like he blew out his knee. And then amidst the insane Hoyt chance, Lance Hoyt did a dive. He did not die. Because of Hoyt, this match has super heat. It was crazy. Good guys ran wild early. The Nationals are improving finally after three years. You would think fans would get tired of chanting Hoyt, but you'd be wrong. So anyway, then something really odd happened. Bobby Roode grabbed the flagpole, and Jimmy Hart, who was the manager of the Naturals, jumped on the apron. It appeared he asked Roode for the flag, so Roode tossed it to him and then sold his eyeball, and he'd been hit with it. The ref saw Hart with the flag and ejected him. Sorry, the Hart's turning heel. That was one horribly executed spot. While the ref was gone, the bad guys triple teamed and destroyed the blonde natural. This match went so long as in twice as long as I had to, I've had booked it, but to their credit, they never lost the crowd. Much of this was due to the absurdly popular Hoyt. 
Apparently, this natural's name is Chase because the people were chanting, let's go, Chase. Hoyt got the hot tag around wild. He choke slants, the big boots all around. It's amazing to see men who apparently idolized folks like Kevin Nash and Tess growing up. I mean, I am literally amazed. So many awesome workers. And these men grew up thinking, I want to be the next test. Broke down to a six-way and root hit both naturals with a megaphone. Yep, Jimmy Hart's megaphone, which just had to be left at ringside. Eric Young, this time for real in the match, got the pin. Looks like Team Canada will have a new manager soon. I was stunned afterwards to see not one, not two, but three Hoyt signs and one single camera shot alone. Two and a half stars. So had it not been reported yet why Lance Hoyt slash Archer is so over at the Impact Zone? Uh, I don't know. Do you, either of you remember why he was so over at the Impact Zone at that time? No. I don't. Because <laughs> he was the one wrestler who would go out drinking with all the fans after each taping. Well, that'll do it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I would also say if you know, uh, idolizing Kevin Nash is not the worst worker to idolize. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, he made a lot of money. You know, I mean, and, you know, I mean, he had some very good matches with the right workers. I mean, you know, I think most wrestlers would like a career with the level of success that Kevin Nash had got. Maybe and he, not ten, though. <laughs> and he prioritized his family and seems like a relatively decent human being. So, yeah. Yeah. A three-line crew promo aired. Beat Jizzles where he was with his crew. My actions will prove where my loyalty lies. Trust me. You know what that means. Backstage, Bill E. Gunn made his big announcement. He was changing his name, he said. to This was in honor of B.G. James's father, The Bullet. He used to say Bill E. was like his own son. And so Bill E. said his new name from now on forever was, are you ready? Kip James. Oh, yes. Kip. Clearly no one in TNA has seen Napoleon Dynamite. That movie was a big hit with the kids, which TNA should be targeting. And no kid can hear the name Kip in 2005 and not think of that geek from Napoleon Dynamite, which really just makes the name even better for Bill E., which leads to Kip James and Monty Brown against Conan and R-Truth. Chillings did a uh, flip dive early. Conan did not. It was a hardcore match with a street fight or something. I know this because Plunder was involved and the heels were in their street clothes. You can never tell with the good guys because their usual gear is their street clothes. The first ref was killed quickly with a pan shot to the noggin, so they brought a second ref in. This man was described as the substitute official by TNA. Don West noted that BG James was conspicuous by his absence. Kip James was bleeding from the forehead, and, and I'm not sure if it was a hard way or not. Didn't look much like a blade job, but it was in the place where a blade job should be. Kip then beat up the substitute referee, and DDT Conan on a chair on the floor. What an outlaw! Wait, we can't call him that. In the ring, Monty pounced the shit out of Truth. A third ref ran down and counted from outside the ring, apparently not willing to risk his life. Afterwards, Kip, 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 Kip grabbed the mic and said he was going to say two words he hadn't said in a long time. If the crowd wasn't down with that, he had two more words for them. Suck it, they screamed. No, he said the two words were actually, my brother. BG looking confused on the ramp, finally went down to the ring. Kip gave him a chair and told him to waffle Truth, his former partner. BG grabbed the chair, pulled it back like a baseball bat, paused, and dropped on the ground, left the ring. The crowd booed loudly, wanted to see a New Age Outlaws reunion, and then the segment was over. 
I guess we'll have to wait for TV for him to make a decision. Two stars. Ah, uh, yes, Kip James, which means the James gang is coming soon. So, hilarious. All right, clips aired of AJ Styles and Sean Waltman's feud. They also had comments from Jerry Lynn, who would be the special guest referee. Good thing JL can work because he's cut one goddamn boring promo. <laughs> AJ Styles and Sean Waltman with Jerry Lynn's referee. Waltman was working early like he wanted to make a point about how to work a match. He also like he was hurting. It didn't help that AJ was pounding the piss out of him. I hope Waltman's starting to learn that once you hit the indie scene, you need to accept the fact that guys are going to beat the shit out of you and not get pissed about it. It's annoying, but it's a fact of life. AJ nailed him right in the jaw with a drop kick. Jesus. Waltman got the heat by crunching him on the post. He was bleeding from the lip. Styles ended up outside, and Waltman hit a flip dive. He hit him square, but he also hit him low, which meant the back of his own head cracked on the floor. Worse, AJ came up and hit, had a bloody nose. Waltman went for something and got sent crotch first to the post. AJ hit the springboard for him and started his big comeback. He went for a suplex, but Waltman slipped behind. Mule kicked him. He had a normal suplex for a near fall. He went up top and met with a drop kick on the way down. Styles killed him with a double hook into a Styles clash, driving Waltman's face into the mat. Waltman still kicked out. He had to be rethinking his career at this point. It wasn't as bad as Kazarian one, but it couldn't have felt good. AJ missed a spiral tap, and Waltman hit the X-Factor. AJ kicked out. Waltman was so pissed he grabbed the chair. He went for the Pillman ankle spot, but Lynn refused to allow it. They got face-to-face. AJ then came from behind with a cradle attempt. Waltman grabbed the ropes to save himself. Lynn, like any good referee, kicked his hands off the ropes, and AJ rolled through into a Styles clash with the pen. So it looks like we'll eventually get Lynn versus Waltman, but they're doing the slow build. Three and a half stars. So one one thing here. Uh, I guess Sean Waltman doesn't seem to be, like, come across a guy who would get pissed off about, you know, things being a bit, like, stiff as long as it, you know, wasn't reckless or, you know, know, just given his his own style, you know. I mean, you know, uh, what what are your thoughts about that, I guess? I mean, that did strike me too, because, like, less so as his career went on, but, I mean, Sean's a guy who we've seen give a few people bloody noses over the years on TV. So, I kind of with you there. Like, it, granted, AJ seems to be going extra hard and has not really eased up as much yet in this era. So I can kind of see where Brian's coming from, but I, I, I was mostly kind of with you there as Chris was reading that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's been, it's back. He hasn't worked this style in a while, so you know he's got to get used to that again. So, yeah. I thought he did a good job here, though, of hanging with Styles. You know, I mean, you know, it wasn't quite as good a match as uh, Joe Sabin, but it's very enjoyable. You know, and 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 there were certainly moments where you know. You know, Waltman was clearly working very hard. You know, didn't want to be outshone. Yeah. All right. Uh, backstage, Jeff Jarrett was bitching Larry Zabisco about something or the other. Well, let's just be specific. He wants his belt back. Yawn. He also wanted to know where Rhino was. Larry said he had no idea. So Jarrett said when he found them, tell him the welcoming committee was waiting for him, which was a guitar. That's a pretty shitty committee. <laughs> Next, Petey Daniels versus Chris Daniels. Petey Williams versus Chris Daniels. That one big team Canada guy came out with Petey. He's big. That would be uh, A1 Alistair Ralphs. Yes. 
Anyway, they were working their ass off from the opening bell. Within a minute, Petey, the heel, hit him with a slingshot over the top with Hurricane Rana to the floor. Incredible spot. The announcer's actually under play. Petey's been taking his vitamins lately. Or perhaps he's been just training with that one big guy he's hanging out with. Well, it seemed like everyone was taking the same vitamins because their hair was thinning in the exact same way in the exact same spot in Team Canada in that era. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. uh, Eric Young's back knee was, like, noticed. Oh, yeah. When they gave a close-up in the match uh, earlier. <laughs> yeah, they were doing that. I said, I know I identify Petey as the heel, but I now realize they are both heels. I sort of just assumed initially that if either one of these men was a babyface, it would be Daniel. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Jesus, I just saw the craziest spot in a long time. Petey went for another diving Frankenstein off the apron, but Daniels caught him in mid-move, hoisted him up, and then powerbombed him hard into the edge of the ring apron. Someday, Petey would be sitting in a wheelchair with his grandchildren, and one of them will say, Grandpa Petey, tell us a story again about why you can't walk no more. <laughs> Holy Christ, that was dumb. Wait, is, is Brian taking issue with this because that's the hardest part of the ring? Well, you would know, Bix. Yes, because uh, it is, in fact, the hardest part of the ring, but I, it's not really a thing yet. It becomes a thing. Uh, I would say Steen and Generico have the most uh, influence on that, right? Yeah. It it was a cool spot, but yeah, you know, now in twenty twenty two eyes, it doesn't come across as holy shit because yeah, you know, it it's so overdone, I guess now. But it's still a cool spot. Daniels, of course, with the work on his back. About fifteen men in the front row began dueling. Let's go, PD, fallen angel chance. Daniels is so awesome. He had PD with a tilt of world, which was the beginning of PD's comeback. Petey, however, is a heel. So Daniels tapped his foot on the mat three times, and that was enough to get the crowd clapping along. And then they were in the Petey's comeback. It was so great. Samoa Joe came out on the ramp to watch. Daniels left the ring to jaw jack with him, but the big guy threw him back inside. It was clear watching this match that Petey can do lots of cool spots, but he's not in Daniels' league as a complete worker, which is sort of what Daniels was telling Petey in interviews, hyping up this match. Both guys went for and blocked each other's finisher. Tons of near falls. That big guy took the ref and threw a chain to Petey. As Petey was wrapping around his fist, Daniels took a chain out of his own, out of his own boot and clomped him with it. That was poetic. He didn't hit the best moonsault over what Brian assumed was the pin because his cable immediately went out. And then when it came back on, he was celebrating with his belt. Not a blow-away match or anything, but really good three-and-a-half stars. So uh, there you go. Petey, uh, Petey was definitely uh, you know, improving and starting to you know, come into his own here in TNA. So he was uh, he was becoming that more complete worker as time went along. All right, Raven and Abyss in a dog collar match for the NWA title. Wow, look who's back, Jim Mitchell. He's Abyss's manager. They were in the front row swaying back and forth and singing the Abyss song, which is a real song. One was holding a chair that had Use My Chair Abyss spray painted on it. He really should after that performance. Basically, both wrestlers were chained together. The only way this was to win was by pinfall. Tanae promised the violence in this match would be off the charts, and that'd be completely barbaric. That's quite the promise. Well, they got off to a slow start, but they delivered. Among the plunder that ended up in the ring was a staple gun, and then that staple gun was real staples. The reason I know this is this is because Raven took a dollar bill and stapled it to Abyss's head. Ow, wow, 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 wow. Unless Abyss was smart until Raven actually stapled it to his leather mask, I don't think he was smart. Both guys are bleeding from the head. They brawled towards the back. Mitchell helped Abyss set up some tables near a ramp. This can't be good. Abyss took him up there and went for a choke slam, but Raven fought free, 
with a low blow and shoved them off the ramp through the tables. The ramp was only about five feet above, off the ground, so as compared to some stupid stuff we've seen, this was way down the scale. It did get added to 50 points because when Abyss landed, they zoomed in, and he still had the dollar staked to his skull. Abyss, dead, gave one tug of the chain, and Raven was yanked off the ramp do- through another table. Near the finish, the chain ended up coming off both guys, and nobody bothered to put it back on, so that was a useless step. Abyss did grab the bag of thumbtacks, spread them out in the ring. He went to toss Raven on them, and who should make the say but Cassidy Riley? Oh, yes. Apparently, Raven broke his fingers once. Do not ask me why this would cause him to run out and save Raven from a powerbomb to thumbtacks. Abyss grabbed him and choke slammed him over the top through a table outside. Crowd chanted, holy shit. Abyss went after Raven again, but Raven powerbombed him off the top into the tacks. Abyss hopped around on his ass, selling it. That looked uncomfortable. Abyss hit the black hole slam, but Raven kicked out. Next one for a choke slam onto the tacks, but Raven turned into a DT and landed back first on the tacks himself. And crawled over to get the pin. A brutal spectacle, but the thumbtacks were getting overdone. And then second set of the bell rang Jeff Jarrett's music hit. God, no wonder everyone hates that man. He was ranting and raving about his belt. Yawn. He jumped up on the apron and said he had two words for Raven. Turn around. Raven turned around right into a gore, gore, gore from Rhino. Crowd jumped to their feet and standing Rhino. Good job turning him heel. <laughs> yeah, it was such a good job that they turned him babyface about two months later, if I recall correctly. Which, uh, you know, probably would have been a better idea bringing him in as a face and building him up to be the Bound for Glory main eventer, you know, ra- rather than turning him heel, which clearly wasn't what the crowd wanted, I guess. No. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a pretty violent match, that's for sure. And uh, at least they delivered in that regard. All right, uh, Shannon Moore's at the pay-per-view show backstage. Chris Canyon's backstage at the TV tapings on July 19th. Michael Shane changed his name on TV this week to Matt Bentley. There's an angle based on reality where Shane was said was served with papers about using a name and said from this point forward, he'll wrestle in his real name. They did this angle a few months ago and called him Bentley a week or two, but then dropped it when TNA Legal felt they would have no problems with the name Mike with with the name. Then Mike and Todd Shane were for WWE, registered their names, and now that WWE is going to use them as something other than mass terrorists, Dave guesses their legal department came back at him. <laughs> okay, I looked this up. The trademark is for Michael Shane. Uh, Games and Services Entertainment for the Nature of Wrestling Contests. Um, First used 96. Did they really start wrestling then? Um, Published for opposition February 02, registered August 03. So, I mean, that seems like a pretty good case for Ford and Mike Shane. Although, did he wrestle as Michael Shane ever or just Mike Shane? This is Mike Shane. That's what I found weird about that. But his trademark was for Michael Shane. Well, they're screwing Michael Shane. <laughs> well, okay, here's the reason, too. I just looked. There is no Todd Shane trademark. Yeah. <laughs> so he did this He did this because uh, he heard about Matt Bentley, basically, it seems like. Yeah. All right, the main stuff of the TV tapings, the Hoyt versus Abyss match was set up when Hoyt wrestled David Young. And Abyss came in and laid both them out, including a black hole slam on Hoyt. In the Super X tournament, Samoa Joe beats Sanjay Dutt with a choke. Joe's gimmick is that he walks off when he when asked to do promos. 
Rhino and Jarrett double team Raven. It's at the angle where Rhino giving the gore and Jarrett putting Raven in the figure four. Styles beat Bentley due to interference from Jane Storm, who super kicked Bentley in next tournament match. Alex Shelley upset Shocker in the tournament. Pete Williams playing Chris Sabin in the tournament with a Canadian Destroyer and distractions from A1. Samoa Joe beat Alex Shelley in the semifinals of the tournament. Naturals beat Bobby Roonier and Young Team Canada when by DQ and Rude got caught using a megaphone of Jimmy Hart. Team Canada did a 4 on 2 on the Naturals until America's Most Wanted made the save. After Abyss beat Apollo clean, Hoyt issued his challenge. Raven and Sabu beat Simon Diamond and David Young when Sabu pinned Young after the Arabian face buster. Jared and Rhino came out, but Sabu developed the ring on both of them. AJ Styles, PMPD wins in the other S Cup semifinal. It was a big upset when Mercus was one losing to Simon Diamond and David Young when Young pinned Storm after a spine buster. See, he started winning matches. Team Canada distracted Mercus was one and beat him down after the match. Naturals made the save for Team Canada. Conan confronted BG James, demanded an answer as to where his loyalties are. BG walked away without answering. Rhino pinned Chris Saban after a gore. Raven hit the ring, followed by Jarrett, followed by Lights Out and Sabu. Rhino powerbombed Sabu on top of Raven on a spot where a table was supposed to break and didn't. Rhino did slam Sabu through the table while Jarrett put Raven in the figure four. The biggest spot was said to be when they did the Lights Out deal and turned it back on as Sabu was in the ring, of course. The exit tournament matches were generally said to be very good, but overall, the wrestling table was strong. There was nothing done in front of the people to push Jerry Lynn and Sean Waltman. Apparently, they did some extremely strong personal issue face-to-face stuff on June 8th, July 18th. They talked a lot about being friends when they both started, and Lynn blaming Waltman for not being a true friend when he became a star. And it was pretty intense. So there's your TNA TV tapings. Now, Rhino was telling people he was a big fan of Chris Saban. In fact, they had to keep him from giving up too much in their final TV show main event. Rhino sold like crazy for Saban and asked if Saban could kick out of the gore. Since it was Rhino's debut and they need to get the move over big, the feeling was incorrectly that the right thing for business is he has to establish the move for months before they think about having someone kick out of it. <laughs> so Rhino's doing the Ric Flair thing here from early in the show, but this is not the time to do that. You know, they were right. I mean, it's good sentiment from Rhino to want to do that for Saban, but no, not at all. I mean, it's good to see that he was motivated by, to, yeah, you know, to put on, you know, a a great performance in his debut, and also to be giving to his opponent because you don't want people coming from another company and treating the established talent in a new company like shit. So I think. Uh, Although, you know, uh, it wasn't the right thing for business uh, to have uh, Sabin kick out of the gore in his debut. I mean, it, it, it is a positive thing that he was thinking that way, that he wanted to, you know, uh, help Sabin out and work with him, you know. So, yeah, props to Rhino. Yeah, but also... Clearly, part of this is all, all that they're part of the Demore clique, anyway. Yeah, because these are all your Detroit and Windsor guys. Yeah, yeah, I thought that myself as well. And Segway, as we close the show, Scott Demore's trying to keep himself off TV so he can devote his time at the shows to being the Booker and not to worry about performing as well. What a original idea! Well, <laughs> that, that didn't last that long though did it of course it? not 
<laughs> uh, you know, by the time you know, uh, you know, they're back on Spike TV, Demore was back on TV, and Jeff Jarrett was back champion again. So, you know, they 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 didn't. Uh, they only learned this lesson, you know, when when they didn't have like a TV deal, you know, uh, you know that that people watched. Yeah, yeah. It, during their lame duck sort of period, yeah. I mean, yeah. The same with Jeff Jarrett. He wasn't working on pay per view as much when they had no TV. When you know they wouldn't do any business. So I mean, he he wouldn't get like if there was any blame for you know weak pay per view buys, he didn't get the blame for it. All right. Well, that is it for us this week, Keith. We appreciate you uh, wanting to do this show and uh, you know, putting the money down for that. So, uh, whatever you want to plug, go ahead and plug away. Uh, well, I guess the only thing I've got to plug is my Twitter account. So, if people want to follow me for an eclectic mix of uh, probably my wrestling thoughts and my thoughts on other things, they can follow me on. Glasgow uh, KJH um, and you know uh, probably just a shout out to all my friends I've met you know you know on various wrestling trips to the states or in the UK you know hope all my friends are doing well you know and I hope to see them in the future awesome awesome alright next week on Between the Sheets the last of the three-part Patreon requested shows for the 2000s here. Yeah. And this is 2008, and we will be joined by one of the, the names that you hear the most during the uh, halftime segment and Patreon stuff is Danny. Danny Kukler will be on with us next week for uh, one segment, which will he'll be on for the WWE segment, which we'll talk about at the end here. But first off, we have TNA. And we have an interesting episode of Impact to talk about as we have uh, Kurt and Karen Angle getting heavily involved in television. So we'll have that and uh, some other TNA stuff to talk about, including an interesting interview from Kurt Angle on a house show tour that uh, he has some things to say. Matt Morgan makes his debut on American Gladiators, Bick. So we'll talk about that. Plus, we have uh, news on... Uh, uh, Brooke knows best on VH1 since that's wrestling related. We got Corey Macklin's Memphis Wrestling, another incarnation of it we'll talk about. We got uh, some Ring of Honor shows to talk about. We got two shows, one in Toronto and one in Detroit. We got Lucha stuff to talk about, including the Grand Prix Tournament with CMLL or in Mexico. So we'll have that featuring TNA talent. And uh, other stuff at AAA, TV taping, and news like that. We'll have um, Japan to talk about the usual indie stuff, as well as uh, some major stuff. New Japan, they have uh, some interesting uh, matches going on there. All Japan as well. WWE, of course, is the dominant force in this show. So we'll have news on WWE, WWE Films. We'll have... Um, Florida Championship Wrestling starting up. We'll talk about them and their, some of their first shows. Um, you know, various interviews from people in the company to different media stuff. We got Dave's thoughts on uh, Edge 
and Vicky Guerrero's angle going on. We have SmackDown to talk about, Raw to talk about. We have a pay-per-view, the Great American Bash to talk about. And um, the reason why Danny's doing the show is because he attends uh, the SmackDown TV taping. So he'll be talking about that. But hey, Oh, wild... wait a second. Great American Bash 08 is Nassau, right? Yeah, Nassau. Oh, so I was at that show. So you're at that show. And we'll have the news on uh, WWE taming their programming down and changing uh, some stuff in their wellness program. But the, the wildest story on our show, and uh, this is quite the story. Lou Albano's 75th birthday party and the <laughs> Sandman causing quite the scene. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. Okay, I have a question. Have you checked to see if the video is still on the internet? No, I have not. Okay. <laughs> but we have a full story. And boy, there was some guests at this party. So, uh, <laughs> oh, that's going to be something else. So, next week on Between the Sheets. All right, Keith, again, we thank you for uh, being a patron and uh, wanting to do the show. So, I appreciate you. Bix, uh, appreciate you as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris Stan, so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 69. Ha ha ha. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co host, David Bixen Span. And Bix, it's time for round three of Titan Gate, the 92 version, not the 2022 version, although. I've already had people on Twitter telling me that they're they're wanting to request this week in ten years for the, sh- the 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 main show. So, oh, that's something I look forward to. But anyway, uh, here we are. It's time to delve back in time thirty years to uh, talk about stuff that is ringing hollow even more today. The uh, post wrestling and WrestleNomics endorsed uh, Titan Gate series. We should say too, especially after absolutely. Yes, we all definitely want to uh, thank. John and Way and Brandon for uh, doing that, and uh, an honor for them to put us over like that. We appreciate that, and yeah, so hopefully we gain some new patrons from that, and uh, for those of you new patrons, make sure you listen to some of the old stuff that we've done, too. There's a lot of great stuff on on these shows, and tell your friends about it. Let's spread that word, patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Get it out there. But anyway, so let's... Uh, Quit dilly-dallying, and let's get started, shall we? But if that was bizarre, what was going on behind the scenes and putting together the store was far more bizarre. This probably best explains John Stone's despair in putting it together. Who's John Stone? I think the, the whichever current affair reporter was anchoring the segment. Let me see if it's Inclu- at the beginning here. Okay, well, you find that while I read. John Stone's despair in putting together the close of comments that's hard to tell the good guys from oh, the John villains. John Stone, not John Stone. John Johnston, there we go, both in and out of the ring. A new personality came forward, claiming his name was Paul Baumgartner, claiming to be a former pro wrestler, to now can be told producer Brutskolsky. Baumgartner is apparently a small-time independent promoter in Ohio reality. According to Skolsky, he claimed to have a videotape showing something in fairness to the person he claims it is of, we shouldn't elaborate on because I don't believe for a second he has such a video. But if he had what he claimed, it would have been up a story that now can be told was going to do a follow-up pro wrestling segment based on climaxing the show with that video. In a later conversation, Bob Gartner claimed to have been good friends with Rita Chatterton, the woman who's gone on two television shows to talk about an incident involving McMahon directly. Bob Gartner supposedly told Skolsky that he didn't know for certain, but that he believed Chatterton's claim. He later claimed that there were parties trying to get him to change his story to discredit Chatterton. Just a few days later, McMahon's attorney, Jerry McDevitt, comes forward to a current affair with a man named Bill Gardner, who they claim was coming forward to say Chatterton told him he was making up her story. A current affair interviewed the man in what was supposedly his home in Ohio, who claimed to have been a former wrestler for WF and then Vincent Man Sr., using the name The Wolfman. There was a WWF wrestler in the late 60s and early 70s who used the ring name The Wolfman, but that was Willie Farkas. And Dave knows that, has no idea if that was the same person. He told him he was coming forward because he knew Chatterton was making up her story because she had told him personally. He also said Chatterton would never go to court and reclaim because he would be there to testify for McMahon against her. He went on to say that he was coming forward because McMahon was such a great man and had done so much good for the wrestling business and done so much work for charity and was being unfairly accused. Chatterton's attorney, Robert Wolf, said that Chatterton had never heard nor remembers even meeting a Bill Gardner or a Paul Baumgartner or the Wolfman, let alone what he claims he told her. Wolf theorized something strange based on a conversation he had a few days earlier with Skolsky, who told him that an ex-wrestler named Paul Baumgartner had claimed to her that someone was attempting to get him to discredit Chatterton. This is crazy. As it turns out, Gardner and Baumgartner, according to Skolsky, are the same person. 
His phone was disconnected the next day, and a current affairs investigating him found out the house he claimed was his, that the interview man wasn't his. They contacted McDevitt, who denied the man's involvement in this, and said that Gardner had to disconnect his phone because he claimed he was being inundated with harassing phone messages from Chatterton. The current affairs said they were going to show clips of their interview with Chatterton and with Gardner on the piece and also uncover what they learned about Gardner. However, that segment of the story was edited out because the piece had to be shortened because of a late edition piece to the show that evening covering the riots in Los Angeles. Damn you. Damn you, riots. In addition, Lee Cole, the older brother Tom Cole, the former and current WF Marine boy whose claims of being sexually abused between the ages of 13 and 19 by three members of WF's management, led to this story garnering so much media attention, asked the current affair if he could be interviewed for the piece. He claimed he wanted to set the record straight in an interview where he would tell them a story negative to WF about the settlement and talk about the terms of the agreement made between his brother and the WF. However, Cole, just before he was scheduled to leave for the interview, allegedly asked for $2,500 to do the interview and was turned down. Okay. Dave, bring, Dave brings us something here in this whole thing that we've now hit that time that I think with it happening totally changes the media covering this story and other stories like this in particular. The L.A. riots. Mm-hmm. When, you ha- when you have something like that, a major story that is going on like that was at that time then stories like this would either be buried to, you know, a peripheral spot on the, on a show or just not covered basically at all. Mm-hmm. It's left. It's, it's, you know, it, it's basically the, um, uh, it's the Chandra Levy to nine 11 type thing. Remember that? Which the, also ended up being bad for Con Gary Condit because it Gary Condit, yeah, because it fell out of view by the time it turned out he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, the whole Gary Condit Chandra Levy thing, yes, which was a major story in this country, and then nine eleven hits and that knocks it out completely. Mm-hmm. So the Rodney King riots totally changes, you know, a lot of the media's trajectory on covering stories like this. They're going to spend most of their time covering that. Now, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, about Gardner, Baumgartner, whatever the fuck his name is. Okay. Reading this, as you're going through all this, the gears in my head are turning. This is all conjecture on my part, but... So, three and a half years later, when we hear about Marty Bergman, what do we hear? That he would go to media as both a friendly who was going to help them get dirt on WWF. And at other times, he was pretending, you know, to be... He was, you know, pretending to be, you know, either his brother or confuse people with his brother, who was, you know, the legendary uh, 60 Minutes producer, uh, Lowell Bergman, or whatever, in a way... And he was being sneakier in a different way to get information about WWF, or, or he'd be claiming to be on the WWF side, or whatever. Boy, does this feel like it has Marty Bergman's fingerprints all over it. Mm-hmm. It's almost exact. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. And also... But McDevitt put the put him in touch with Current Affair. Uh-huh. But also, there's no reason to think that Laura Brevetti's in the mix yet either. Which makes you wonder <laughs> if it's... Not Marty Bergman so much as... McDevitt? 
I wouldn't go far as to say that, but I get what you're, it, that it would be coming from that side and wouldn't, that kind of plan would not necessarily be his idea in and of itself, I guess was what I was trying to say. Um, but, you know, I have and I've posted, you know, the FBI docs that at least were released under Freedom of Information Act to me about Bergman. There's nothing about this, but I guess it's not really obstruction of justice or anything at this time, so they wouldn't be looking into it. Um, huh. And I guess we should we should note too, because no one knows this at the time, the first subpoena that Titan got making them aware of the grand jury was the day of WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. So they they know when most people don't that shit is on in a way that in a way that is a very big deal. Yes. What a weird so I wonder who this who do you think this was? Who knows? <laughs> but that's why that's something I I don't think I've ever heard of this story talked about since it happened. It's first I've really heard of it. I remember most of the other stuff from around the scandal like shows, and I don't remember this. Like, you know, even in going back over coverage, I did not remember this whole thing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Wow. <laughs> wow. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.